Halleck stared back at Tuek. In that moment, the smuggler reminded him of Duke Leto, a leader of men, courageous, secure in his own position and his own course. He was like the Duke, before Arrakis. Do you wish my blade beside you? Halleck asked. Tuek sat back, relaxed, studying Halleck silently. Do you think of me as fighting men? Halleck pressed. You're the only one of the Duke's lieutenants to escape, Tuek said. Your enemy was overwhelming, yet you rolled with him. You defeated him the way we defeat Arrakis. Eh? We live on sufferance down here, Gurney Halleck, Tuek said. Arrakis is our enemy. One enemy at a time, is that it? That's it. Is that the way the Fremen make out? Perhaps. You said I might find life with a Fremen too tough. They live in the desert, in the open. Is that why? Who knows where the Fremen live? For us, the central plateau is a no-man's land. But I wish to talk more about... I'm told that the guild seldom routes spice lighters in over the desert, Halleck said. But there are rumours that you can see bits of greenery here and there, if you know where to look. Rumours, Tuek sneered. Do you wish to choose now between me and the Fremen? We have a measure of security, our own siech carved out of the rock, our own hidden basins. We live the lives of civilised men. The Fremen are a few ragged bands that we use as spice hunters. But they can kill Harkonnens. And do you wish to know the result? Even now they are being hunted down like animals, with laze guns, because they have no shields. They are being exterminated. Why? Because they killed Harkonnens. Was it Harkonnens they killed? Halleck asked. What do you mean? Haven't you heard that there may have been Sardaka with the Harkonnens? More rumours. But a pogrom. That isn't like the Harkonnens. A pogrom is wasteful. I believe what I see with my own eyes, Tuek said. Make your choice, fighting man, me or the Fremen. I will promise you sanctuary and a chance to draw the blood we both want. Be sure of that. The Fremen will offer you only the life of the hunted. Halleck hesitated, sensing wisdom and sympathy in Tuek's words, yet troubled for no reason he could explain. Trust your own abilities. Tuek said. Whose decisions brought your force through the battle? Yours. Decide. It must be, Halleck said. The Duke and his son are dead. The Harkonnens believe it. Where such things are concerned, I incline to trust the Harkonnens. A grim smile touched Tuek's mouth. But it's about the only trust I give them. Then it must be. Halleck repeated. He held out his right hand, palm up and thumb folded flat against it in the traditional gesture. I'll give you my sword. Accepted. Do you wish me to persuade my men? You'd let them make their own decision? They've followed me this far, but most are Caladan-born. Arrakis isn't what they thought it'd be. Here they've lost everything except their lives. I prefer they decided for themselves now. Now is no time for you to falter, Tuek said. They've followed you this far. You need them. Is that it? We can always use experienced fighting men, in these times more than ever. You've accepted my sword. 
Do you wish me to persuade them? I think they'll follow you, Gurney Halleck. Tis to be hoped. Indeed. I may make my own decision in this, then. Your own decision. Halleck pushed himself up from the bucket seat, feeling how much of his reserve strength even that small effort required. For now, I'll see to their quarters and well-being, he said. Consult my quartermaster, Tuick said. Drisk is his name. Tell him it's my wish that you receive every courtesy. I'll join you myself presently. I've some off-shipments of spice to see to first. Fortune passes everywhere, Halleck said. Everywhere, Tuick said. A time of upset is a rare opportunity for our business. Halleck nodded, heard the faint susurration, and felt the air shift as a lock port swung open beside him. He turned, ducked through it, and out of the office. He found himself in the assembly hall through which he and his men had been led by Tuick's aides. It was a long, fairly narrow area, chewed out of the native rock, its smooth surface betraying the use of cutteray burners for the job. The ceiling stretched away high enough to continue the natural supporting curve of the rock and to permit internal air convection currents. Weapons racks and lockers lined the walls. Halleck noted with a touch of pride that those of his men still able to stand were standing, no relaxation in weariness and defeat for them. Smuggler medics were moving among them, tending the wounded. Litter cases were assembled in one area down to the left, each wounded man with an Atreides companion. The Atreides training. We care for our own. It held like a core of native rock in them, Halleck noted. One of his lieutenants stepped forward, carrying Halleck's nine-string balisette out of its case. The man snapped a salute, said, Sir, the medics here say there's no hope for Matai. They have no bone and organ banks here, only outpost medicine. Matai can't last, they say. And he has a request of you. What is it? The lieutenant thrust the balisette forward. Matai wants a song to ease his going, sir. He says you'll know the one. He's asked it of you often enough. The lieutenant swallowed. It's the one called My Woman, sir. If you... I know. Halleck took the balisette, flicked the multi-pick out of its catch on the fingerboard. He drew a soft chord from the instrument, found that someone had already tuned it. There was a burning in his eyes, but he drove that out of his thoughts as he strolled forward, strumming the tune, forcing himself to smile casually. Several of his men and a smuggler medic were bent over one of the litters. One of the men began singing softly as Halleck approached, catching the counterbeat with the ease of long familiarity. My woman stands at her window, curved lines against square glass, upraised arms, bent, downfolded, against sunset red and golded. Come to me. Come to me, warm arms of my lass, for me, for me, the warm arms of my lass. The singer stopped, reached out a bandaged arm, and closed the eyelids of the man on the litter. Halleck drew a final soft chord from the balisset, thinking, Now we are seventy-three. Family life of the Royal Crèche is difficult for many people to understand, but I shall try to give you a capsule view of it. My father had only one real friend, I think. 
That was Count Hazimir Fenring, the genetic eunuch and one of the deadliest fighters in the Imperium. The Count, a dapper and ugly little man, brought a new slave concubine to my father one day, and I was dispatched by my mother to spy on the proceedings. All of us spied on my father as a matter of self-protection. One of the slave concubines permitted my father under the Bene Gesserit Guild agreement could not, of course, bear a royal successor. But the intrigues were constant and oppressive in their similarity. We became adept, my mother and sisters and I, at avoiding subtle instruments of death. It may seem a dreadful thing to say, but I'm not at all sure my father was innocent in all these attempts. A royal family is not like other families. Here was a new slave concubine then, red-haired like my father, willowy and graceful. She had a dancer's muscles, and her training obviously had included neuro-enticement. My father looked at her for a long time as she postured unclothed before him. Finally, he said, she is too beautiful. We will save her as a gift. You have no idea how much consternation this restraint created in the royal creche. Subtlety and self-control were, after all, the most deadly threats to us all. In my father's house, by the Princess Irulan. Paul stood outside the still tent in the late afternoon. The crevasse where he had pitched their camp lay in deep shadow. He stared out across the open sand of the distant cliff, wondering if he should waken his mother, who lay asleep in the tent. Folds upon folds of dunes spread beyond their shelter. Away from the setting sun, the dunes exposed greased shadows so black they were like bits of night. And the flatness... His mind searched for something tall in that landscape. But there was no persuading tallness out of heat-addled air and that horizon, no bloom or gently shaken thing to mark the passage of a breeze, only dunes and that distant cliff beneath a sky of burnished silver blue. What if there isn't one of the abandoned testing stations across there? he wondered. What if there are no Fremen either? and the plants we see are only an accident. Within the tent, Jessica awakened, turned onto her back and peered sidelong out the transparent end at Paul. He stood with his back to her, and something about his stance reminded her of his father. She sensed the well of grief rising within her and turned away. Presently she adjusted her still suit, refreshed herself with water from the tent's catch pocket, and slipped out to stand and stretch the sleep from her muscles. Paul spoke without turning. I find myself enjoying the quiet here. How the mind gears itself for its environment, she thought, and she recalled a Bene Gesserit axiom. The mind can go either direction under stress, toward positive or toward negative, on or off. Think of it as a spectrum whose extremes are unconsciousness at the negative end and hyperconsciousness at the positive end. The way the mind will lean under stress is strongly influenced by training. It could be a good life here, Paul said. She tried to see the desert through his eyes, seeking to encompass all the rigors this planet accepted as commonplace, wondering at the possible futures Paul had glimpsed. One could be alone out here, she thought, without fear of someone behind you, without fear of the hunter. 
She stepped past Paul, lifted her binoculars, adjusted the oil lenses, and studied the escarpment across from them. Yes, saguaro in the arroyos, and other spiny growth, and a matting of low grasses, yellow-green in the shadows. I'll strike camp, Paul said. Jessica nodded, walked to the fissure's mouth where she could get a sweep of the desert, and swung her binoculars to the left. A salt pan glared white there with a blending of dirty tan at its edges, a field of white out there where white was death. But the pan said another thing. Water. At some time, water had flowed across that glaring white. She lowered her binoculars, adjusted her burnous, listened for a moment to the sound of Paul's movements. The sun dipped lower. Shadows stretched across the salt pan. Lines of wild colour spread over the sunset horizon. Colour streamed into a toe of darkness testing the sand. Coal-coloured shadows spread, and a thick collapse of night blotted the desert. Stars! She stared up at them, sensing Paul's movements as he came up beside her. The desert night focused upward, with a feeling of lift toward the stars. The weight of the day receded. There came a brief flurry of breeze across her face. The first moon will be up soon, Paul said. The pack's ready. I planted the thumper. We could be lost forever in this hell place, she thought, and no one to know. The night wind spread sand runnels that grated across her face, bringing the smell of cinnamon, a shower of odours in the dark. Smell that, Paul said. I can smell it even through the filter, she said. Riches. But will it buy water? She pointed across the basin. There are no artificial lights across there. Fremen would be hidden in a sietch behind those rocks, he said. A sill of silver pushed above the horizon to their right, the first moon. It lifted into view the hand-pattern plain on its face. Jessica studied the white silver of sand exposed in the light. I planted the thumper in the deepest part of the crevasse, Paul said. Whenever I light its candle, it'll give us about thirty minutes. Thirty minutes? Before it starts calling a worm. Oh, I'm ready to go. He slipped away from her side and she heard his progress back up their fissure. The night is a tunnel, she thought. A hole into tomorrow. If we're to have a tomorrow. She shook her head. Why must I be so morbid? I was trained better than that. Paul returned, took up the pack, led the way down to the first spreading dune where he stopped and listened as his mother came up behind him. He heard her soft progress and the cold, single-grain dribbles of sound, the desert's own code spelling out its measure of safety. We must walk without rhythm, Paul said, and he called up memory of men walking the sand, both prescient memory and real memory. Watch how I do it, he said. This is how Fremen walk the sand. He stepped out onto the windward face of the dune, following the curve of it, moved with a dragging pace. Jessica studied his progress for ten steps, followed, imitating him. She saw the sense of it. They must sound like the natural shifting of sand, like the wind. 
but muscles protested this unnatural, broken pattern. Step, drag, drag, step, step, wait, drag, step. Time stretched out around them. The rock face ahead seemed to grow no nearer. The one behind still towered high. Lump, 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 lump. It was a drumming from the cliff behind. The thumper, Paul hissed. Its pounding continued and they found difficulty avoiding the rhythm of it in their stride. Lump, 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 lump. They moved in a moonlit bowl punctured by that hollowed thumping. Down and up through spilling dunes. Step, drag, wait. Step, across pea sand that rolled under their feet. Drag, wait, step and all the while their ears searched for a special hissing. The sound, when it came, started so low that their own dragging passage masked it, but it grew louder and louder out of the west. Lump, 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 drummed the thumper. The hissing approach spread across the night behind them. They turned their heads as they walked, saw the mound of the coursing worm. Keep moving! Paul whispered, don't look back. A grating sound of fury exploded from the rock shadows they had left. It was a flailing avalanche of noise. Keep moving, Paul repeating. He saw that they had reached an unmarked point where the two rock faces, the one ahead and the one behind, appeared equally remote. And still behind them, that whipping, frenzied tearing of rocks dominated the night. They moved on, and on, and on. Muscles reached a stage of mechanical aching that seemed to stretch out indefinitely, but Paul saw that the beckoning escarpment ahead of them had climbed higher. Jessica moved in a void of concentration, aware that the pressure of her will alone kept her walking. Dryness ached in her mouth but the sounds behind drove away all hope of stopping for a sip from her still-suit's catch-pockets. Lump, lump, renewed frenzy erupted from the distant cliff, drowning out the thumper. Silence. Faster, Paul whispered. She nodded, knowing he did not see the gesture, but needing the action to tell herself that it was necessary to demand even more from muscles that already were being taxed to their limits the unnatural movement. The rock face of safety ahead of them climbed into the stars, and Paul saw a plain of flat sand stretching out at the base. He stepped onto it, stumbled in his fatigue, righted himself with an involuntary outthrusting of a foot. Resonant booming shook the sand around them. Paul lurched sideways two steps. Boom! Boom! Drum sand! Jessica hissed. Paul recovered his balance. A sweeping glance took in the sand around them, the rock escarpment perhaps two hundred meters away. Behind them, he heard a hissing like the wind, like a riptide where there was no water. Run! Jessica screamed. Paul, run! They ran. Drum sound boomed beneath their feet. Then they were out of it and into pea gravel. For a time the running was a relief to muscles that ached from unfamiliar, rhythmless use. Here was action that could be understood. Here was rhythm. 
but sand and gravel dragged at their feet, and the hissing approach of the worm was storm sound that grew around them. Jessica stumbled to her knees. All she could think of was the fatigue and the sound and the terror. Paul dragged her up. They ran on, hand in hand. A thin pole jutted from the sand ahead of them. They passed it, saw another. Jessica's mind failed to register on the poles until they were passed. There was another wind-etched surface thrust up from a crack in rock. Another. Rock. She felt it through her feet. The shock of unresisting surface gained new strength from the firmer footing. A deep crack stretched its vertical shadow upward into the cliff ahead of them. They sprinted for it, crowded into the narrow hole. Behind them, the sound of the worm's passage stopped. Jessica and Paul turned, peered out onto the desert. Where the dunes began, perhaps fifty meters away at the foot of a rock beach, a silver-gray curve broached from the desert, sending rivers of sand and dust cascading all around. It lifted higher, resolved into a giant, questing mouth. It was a round, black hole with edges glistening in the moonlight. The mouth snaked toward the narrow crack where Paul and Jessica huddled. Cinnamon yelled in their nostrils. Moonlight flashed from crystal teeth. Back and forth the great mouth wove. Paul stilled his breathing. Jessica crouched, staring. It took intense concentration of her Bene Gesserit training to put down the primal terrors, subduing a race-memory fear that threatened to fill her mind. Paul felt a kind of elation. In some recent instant he had crossed a time barrier into more unknown territory. He could sense the darkness ahead, nothing revealed to his inner eye. It was as though some step he had taken had plunged him into a well, or into the trough of a wave where the future was invisible. The landscape had undergone a profound shifting. Instead of frightening him, the sensation of time-darkness forced a hyper-acceleration of his other senses. He found himself registering every available aspect of the thing that lifted from the sand there seeking him. Its mouth was some eighty meters in diameter, crystal teeth with the curved shape of crisp knives glinting around the rim, the bellow's breath of cinnamon, subtle aldehydes, acids. The worm blotted out the moonlight as it brushed the rocks above them. A shower of small stones and sand cascaded into the narrow hiding place. Paul crowded his mother farther back. Cinnamon. The smell of it flooded across him. What has the worm to do with a spice melange? he asked himself. And he remembered Liet Kynes betraying a veiled reference to some association between worm and spice. Baroom! It was like a peal of dry thunder coming from far off to their right. Again, Baroom! The worm drew back onto the sand, lay there momentarily, its crystal teeth weaving moon flashes. Lump, 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 lump. Another thumper. Paul thought. Again it sounded off to their right. A shudder passed through the worm. It drew farther away into the sand. Only a mounded upper curve remained, like half a bell mouth, the curve of a tunnel rearing above the dunes. Sand rasped. The creature sank farther, retreating, turning. 
It became a mound of cresting sand that curved away through a saddle in the dunes. Paul stepped out of the crack, watched the sand wave recede across the waste toward the new thumper summons. Jessica followed, listening. Lump, 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 lump. Presently the sound stopped. Paul found the tube into his stillsuit, sipped at the reclaimed water. Jessica focused on his action, but her mind felt blank with fatigue and the aftermath of terror. Has it gone for sure? she whispered. Somebody called it, Paul said. Fremen. She felt herself recovering. It was so big. Not as big as the one that got our thopter. Are you sure it was Fremen? They used a thumper. Why would they help us? Maybe they weren't helping us. Maybe they were just calling a worm. Why? An answer lay poised at the edge of his awareness, but refused to come. He had a vision in his mind of something to do with the telescoping barbed sticks in their packs, the maker hooks. Why would they call a worm? Jessica asked. A breath of fear touched his mind, and he forced himself to turn away from his mother to look up the cliff. We'd better find a way up there before daylight, he pointed. Those poles we passed. There are more of them. She looked, following the line of his hand, saw the poles, wind-scratched markers, made out the shadow of a narrow ledge that twisted into a crevasse high above them. They mark a way up the cliff, Paul said. He settled his shoulders into the pack, crossed to the foot of the ledge and began the climb upward. Jessica waited a moment, resting, restoring her strength. Then she followed. Up they climbed, following the guide poles until the ledge dwindled to a narrow lip at the mouth of a dark crevasse. Paul tipped his head to peer into the shadowed place. He could feel the precarious hold his feet had on the slender ledge, but forced himself to slow caution. He saw only darkness within the crevasse. It stretched away upward, open to the stars at the top. His ears searched, found only sounds he could expect, a tiny spill of sand, an insect burr, the patter of a small running creature. He tested the darkness in the crevasse with one foot, found rock beneath a gritting surface. Slowly he inched around the corner, signalled for his mother to follow. He grasped the loose edge of her robe, helped her around. They looked upward at starlight framed by two rock lips. Paul saw his mother beside him as a cloudy grey movement. If we could only risk a light, he whispered. We have other senses than eyes, she said. Paul slid a foot forward, shifted his weight, and probed with the other foot, met an obstruction. He lifted his foot, found a step, pulled himself up onto it. He reached back, felt his mother's arm, tugged at her robe for her to follow. Another step. It goes on up to the top, I think, he whispered. Shallow and even steps, Jessica thought, man-carved beyond a doubt. She followed the shadowy movement of Paul's progress, feeling out the steps. Rock walls narrowed until her shoulders almost brushed them. The steps ended in a slitted defile about twenty meters long, its floor level, and this opened onto a shallow, moonlit basin. Paul stepped out into the rim of the basin, whispered, What a beautiful place! 
Jessica could only stare in silent agreement from her position a step behind him. In spite of weariness, the irritation of recaths and nose plugs and the confinement of the still suit, in spite of fear and the aching desire for rest, this basin's beauty filled her senses, forcing her to stop and admire it. Like a fairyland, Paul whispered. Jessica nodded. Spreading away in front of her stretched desert growth, bushes, cacti, tiny clumps of leaves, all trembling in the moonlight. The ring walls were dark to her left, moon frosted on her right. This must be a Fremen place, Paul said. There would have to be people for this many plants to survive, she agreed. She uncapped the tube to her still suit's catch pockets, sipped at it. Warm, faintly acrid wetness slipped down her throat. She marked how it refreshed her. The tube's cap grated against flakes of sand as she replaced it. Movement caught Paul's attention, to his right and down on the basin floor, curving out beneath them. He stared down through smoke bushes and weeds into a wedged slab-sand surface of moonlight inhabited by an up-hop, jump, pop-hop of tiny motion. Mice, he hissed. Pop-hop-hop, they went, into shadows and out. Something fell soundlessly past their eyes into the mice. There came a thin screech, a flapping of wings, and a ghostly grey bird lifted away, across the basin, with a small dark shadow in its talons. We need that reminder, Jessica thought. Paul continued to stare across the basin. He inhaled, sensed the softly cutting contralto smell of sage climbing the night. The predatory bird. He thought of it as the way of this desert. It had brought a stillness to the basin so unuttered that the blue milk moonlight could almost be heard flowing across sentinel saguaro and spiked paintbush. There was a low humming of light here, more basic in its harmony than any other music in his universe. We'd better find a place to pitch the tent, he said. Tomorrow we can try to find the Fremen who... Most intruders here regret finding the Fremen. It was a heavy, masculine voice chopping across his words, shattering the moment. The voice came from above them and to their right. Please do not run, intruders, the voice said as Paul made to withdraw into the defile. If you run, you'll only waste your body's water. They want us for the water of our flesh, Jessica thought. Her muscles overrode all fatigue, flowed into maximum redness without external betrayal. She pinpointed the location of the voice, thinking, Such stealth! I didn't hear him! And she realized that the owner of that voice had permitted himself only the small sounds, the natural sounds of the desert. Another voice called from the basin's rim to their left, Make it quick still! Get their water and let's be on our way! We've little enough time before dawn. Paul, less conditioned to emergency response than his mother, felt chagrin that he had stiffened and tried to withdraw, that he had clouded his abilities by a momentary panic. He forced himself now to obey her teachings. Relax, then fall into the semblance of relaxation, then into the arrested whip-snap of muscles that can slash in any direction. Still, he felt the edge of fear within him and knew its source. 
This was blind time, no future he had seen. And they were caught between wild Fremen, whose only interest was the water carried in the flesh of two unshielded bodies. This Fremen religious adaptation, then, is the source of what we now recognize as the pillars of the universe, whose Quizara Tafuid are among us all with signs and proofs and prophecy. They bring us the Arakeen mystical fusion, whose profound beauty is typified by the stirring music built on the old forms, but stamped with the new awakening. Who has not heard and been deeply moved by the old man's hymn? I drove my feet through a desert, whose mirage fluttered like a host. Voracious for glory, greedy for danger, I roamed the horizons of Al-Kulab, watching time-level mountains in its search and its hunger for me. And I saw the sparrows swiftly approach, bolder than the onrushing wolf. They spread in the tree of my youth. I heard the flock in my branches and was caught on their beaks and claws. From Arrakis Awakening by the Princess Irulan. The man crawled across a dune top. He was a moat caught in the glare of the noon sun. He was dressed only in torn remnants of a jubber cloak, his skin bare to the heat through the tatters. The hood had been ripped from the cloak, but the man had fashioned a turban from a torn strip of cloth. Wisps of sandy hair protruded from it, matched by a sparse beard and thick brows. Beneath the blue-within-blue eyes, remains of a dark stain spread down to his cheeks. A matted depression across moustache and beard showed where a still-suit tube had marked out its path from nose to catch pockets. The man stopped half across the dune crest, arms stretched down the slip face. Blood had clotted on his back and on his arms and legs. Patches of yellow-gray sand clung to the wounds. Slowly, he brought his hands under him, pushed himself to his feet, stood there swaying. And even in this almost random action, there remained a trace of once precise movement. I am Liet Kynes. I am His Imperial Majesty's planetologist. Planetary ecologist for Arrakis. I am steward of this land. He stumbled, fell sideways along the crusty surface of the windward face, his hands dug feebly into the sand. I am steward of this sand, he thought. He realized that he was semi-delirious, that he should dig himself into the sand, find the relatively cool underlayer and cover himself with it. But he could still smell the rank, semi-sweet esters of a pre-spice pocket somewhere underneath this sand. He knew the peril within this fact more certainly than any other Fremen. If he could smell the pre-spice mass, that meant the gases deep under the sand were nearing explosive pressure. He had to get away from here. His hands made weak, scrabbling motions along the dune face. A thought spread across his mind, clear, distinct. The real wealth of a planet is in its landscape, how we take part in that basic source of civilization agriculture. And he thought how strange it was that the mind, long fixed on a single track, could not get off that track. The Harkonnen troopers had left him here without water or stillsuit, thinking a worm would get him if the desert didn't. 
They had thought it amusing to leave him alive, to die by inches at the impersonal hands of his planet. The Harkonnens always did find it difficult to kill Fremen, he thought. We won't die easily. I should be dead now. I will be dead soon. But I can't stop being an ecologist. The highest function of ecology is understanding consequences. The voice shocked him because he recognized it and knew the owner of it was dead. It was the voice of his father, who had been planetologist here before him. His father, long dead, killed in the cave-in at Plaster Basin. Got yourself into quite a fix here, son. You should have known the consequences of trying to help the child of that duke. I'm delirious, Kynes thought. The voice seemed to come from his right. Kynes scraped his face through sand, turning to look in that direction. Nothing except a curving stretch of dune dancing with heat devils in the full glare of the sun. The more life there is within a system, the more niches there are for life. The voice came now from his left, from behind him. Why does he keep moving around? Kynes asked himself. Doesn't he want me to see him? Life improves the capacity of the environment to sustain life. Life makes needed nutrients more readily available. It binds more energy into the system through the tremendous chemical interplay from organism to organism. Why does he keep harping on the same subject? Kynes asked himself. I knew that before I was ten. Desert hawks, carrion eaters in this land as were most wild creatures, began to circle over him. Kynes saw a shadow pass near his hand forced his head farther around to look upward. The birds were a blurred patch on silver-blue sky, distant flecks of soot floating above him. We are generalists. You can't draw neat lines around planet-wide problems. Planetology is a cut-and-fit science. What's he trying to tell me? Kynes wondered. Is there some consequence I failed to see? His cheek slumped back against the hot sand, and he smelled the burned rock odor beneath the pre-spice gases. From some corner of logic in his mind, a thought formed. Those are carrion-eater birds over me. Perhaps some of my Fremen will see them and come to investigate. To the working planetologist, his most important tool is human beings. You must cultivate ecological literacy among the people. That's why I've created this entirely new form of ecological notation. He's repeating things he said to me when I was a child, Kynes thought. He began to feel cool. But that corner of logic in his mind told him, The sun is overhead. You have no still suit, and you're hot. The sun is burning the moisture out of your body. His fingers clawed feebly at the sand. They couldn't even leave me a still suit. The presence of moisture in the air helps prevent too rapid evaporation from living bodies. Why does he keep repeating the obvious? Kynes wondered. He tried to think of moisture in the air, grass covering this dune. Open water somewhere beneath him, a long cannot 
flowing with water open to the sky except in text illustrations. Open water. Irrigation water. It took 5,000 cubic meters of water to irrigate one hectare of land per growing season, he remembered. Our first goal on Arrakis is grassland provinces. We will start with these mutated poverty grasses. When we have moisture locked in grasslands, we'll move on to start upland forests. Then a few open bodies of water, small at first, and situated along lines of prevailing winds with wind-trap moisture precipitators spaced in the lines to recapture what the wind steals. We must create a true Sirocco, a moist wind, but we will never get away from the necessity for wind traps. Always lecturing me, Kynes thought. Why doesn't he shut up? Can't he see I'm dying? You will die too if you don't get off the bubble that's forming right now deep underneath you. It's there and you know it. You can smell the pre-spice gases. You know the little makers are beginning to lose some of their water into the mass. The thought of that water beneath him was maddening. He imagined it now, sealed off in strata of porous rock by the leathery half-plant, half-animal little makers, and the thin rupture that was pouring a cool stream of clearest, pure, liquid, soothing water into... A pre-spice mass, he inhaled, smelling the rank sweetness. The odor was much richer around him than it had been. Kynes pushed himself to his knees, heard a bird screech, the hurried flapping of wings. This is a spice desert, he thought. There must be Fremen about even in the day sun. Surely they can see the birds and will investigate. Movement across the landscape is a necessity for animal life. Nomad peoples follow the same necessity. Lines of movement adjust to physical needs for water, food, minerals. We must control this movement now. Align it for our purposes. Shut up, old man. We must do a thing on Arrakis never before attempted for an entire planet. We must use man as a constructive ecological force, inserting adapted terraform life, a plant here, an animal there, a man in that place, to transform the water cycle, to build a new kind of landscape. Shut up! It was lines of movement that gave us the first clue to the relationship between worms and spice. A worm? Kynes thought, with a surge of hope. A maker's sure to come when this bubble bursts. But I have no hooks. How can I mount a big maker without hooks? He could feel frustration sapping what little strength remained to him. Water so near, only a hundred meters or so beneath him. A worm sure to come, but no way to trap it on the surface and use it. Kynes pitched forward onto the sand, returning to the shallow depression his movements had defined. He felt sand hot against his left cheek, but the sensation was remote. The Arakeen environment built itself into the evolutionary pattern of native life forms. 
How strange that so few people ever looked up from the spice long enough to wonder at the near ideal nitrogen-oxygen-CO2 balance being maintained here in the absence of large areas of plant cover. The energy sphere of the planet is there to see and understand. A relentless process, but a process nonetheless. There is a gap in it, then something occupies that gap. Science is made up of so many things that appear obvious after they are explained. I knew the little maker was there, deep in the sand, long before I ever saw it. Please stop lecturing me, father. A hawk landed on the sand near his outstretched hand. Kynes saw it fold its wings, tip its head to stare at him. He summoned the energy to croak at it. The bird hopped away two steps, but continued to stare at him. Men and their works have been a disease on the surface of their planets before now. Nature tends to compensate for diseases, to remove or encapsulate them, to incorporate them into the system in her own way. The hawk lowered its head, stretched its wings, refolded them. It transferred its attention to his outstretched hand. Kynes found that he no longer had the strength to croak at it. The historical system of mutual pillage and extortion stops here on Arrakis. You cannot go on forever stealing what you need without regard to those who come after. The physical qualities of a planet are written into its economic and political record. We have the record in front of us, and our course is obvious. He never could stop lecturing, Kynes thought. Lecturing, 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 always lecturing. The hawk hopped one step closer to Kynes's outstretched hand, turned its head first one way and then the other to study the exposed flesh. Arrakis is a one-crop planet, one crop. It supports a ruling class that lives as ruling classes have lived in all times, while beneath them a semi-human mass of semi-slaves exists on the leavings. It's the masses and the leavings that occupy our attention. These are far more valuable than has ever been suspected. I'm ignoring you, father. Go away. And he thought, surely there must be some of my Fremen near. They cannot help but see the birds over me. They will investigate, if only to see if there's moisture available. The masses of Arrakis will know that we work to make the land flow with water. Most of them, of course, will have only a semi-mystical understanding of how we intend to do this. Many not understanding the prohibitive mass ratio problem may even think we'll bring water from some other planet rich in it. Let them think anything they wish, as long as they believe in us. In a minute, I'll get up and tell him what I think of him, Kynes thought. Standing there lecturing me when he should be helping me. The bird took another hop closer to Kynes's outstretched hand. Two more hawks drifted down to the sand behind it. Religion and law among our masses must be one and the same. 
An act of disobedience must be a sin and require religious penalties. This will have the dual benefit of bringing both greater obedience and greater bravery. We must depend not so much on the bravery of individuals, you see, as upon the bravery of a whole population. Where is my population now, when I need it most? Kynes thought. He summoned all his strength, moved his hand a finger's width toward the nearest hawk. It hopped backward among its companions, and all stood poised for flight. Our timetable will achieve the stature of a natural phenomenon. A planet's life is a vast, tightly interwoven fabric. Vegetation and animal changes will be determined, at first, by the raw physical forces we manipulate. As they establish themselves, though, our changes will become controlling influences in their own right. And we will have to deal with them, too. Keep in mind, though, that we need control only 3% of the energy's surface. Only 3%. To tip the entire structure over into our self-sustaining system. Why aren't you helping me? Kynes wondered. Always the same. When I need you most, you fail me. He wanted to turn his head, to stare in the direction of his father's voice, stare the old man down. Muscles refused to answer his demand. Kynes saw the hawk move. It approached his hand, a cautious step at a time, while its companions waited in mock indifference. The hawk stopped only a hop away from his hand. A profound clarity filled Kynes's mind. He saw quite suddenly a potential for Arrakis that his father had never seen. The possibilities along that different path flooded through him. No more terrible disaster could befall your people than for them to fall into the hands of a hero. Reading my mind, Kynes thought. Well, let him. The messages already have been sent to my Siege villages. Nothing can stop them. If the Duke's son is alive, they'll find him and protect him as I have commanded. They may discard the woman, his mother, but they'll save the boy. The hawk took one hop that brought it within slashing distance of his hand. It tipped its head to examine the supine flesh. Abruptly, it straightened, stretched its head upward, and with a single screech, leaped into the air and banked away overhead with its companions behind it. They've come, Kynes thought. My Fremen have found me. Then he heard the sand rumbling. Every Fremen knew the sound, could distinguish it immediately from the noises of worms or other desert life. Somewhere beneath him, the pre-spice mass had accumulated enough water and organic matter from the little makers, had reached the critical stage of wild growth. A gigantic bubble of carbon dioxide was forming deep in the sand, heaving upward in an enormous blow, with a dust whirlpool at its center. It would exchange what had been formed deep in the sand for whatever lay on the surface. The hawks circled overhead, screeching their frustration. They knew what was happening. 
any desert creature would know. And I am a desert creature, Kynes thought. You see me, father? I am a desert creature. He felt the bubble lift him, felt it break and the dust whirlpool engulf him, dragging him down into cool darkness. For a moment, the sensation of coolness and the moisture were blessed relief. Then, as his planet killed him, it occurred to Kynes that his father and all the other scientists were wrong, that the most persistent principles of the universe were accident and error. Even the hawks could appreciate these facts. Prophecy and Prescience How can they be put to the test in the face of the unanswered question? Consider, how much is actual prediction of the waveform, as Muad'Dib referred to his vision image, and how much is the prophet shaping the future to fit the prophecy? What of the harmonics inherent in the act of prophecy? Does the prophet see the future, or does he see a line of weakness, a fault, or cleavage that he may shatter with words or decisions, as a diamond cutter shatters his gem with the blow of a knife? Private Reflections on Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan Get their water, the man calling out of the night had said, and Paul fought down his fear, glanced at his mother. His trained eyes saw her readiness for battle, the waiting whip-snap of her muscles. It would be regrettable should we have to destroy you out of hand, the voice above them said. That's the one who spoke to us first, Jessica thought. There are at least two of them, one to our right and one on our left. Signoro robosa sucaris in manje la chagavas doi me cavavas na beslas lele padrobas. It was the man to their right, calling out across the basin. To Paul, the words were gibberish, but out of her Bene Gesserit training, Jessica recognized the speech. It was Chakovsa, one of the ancient hunting languages, and the man above them was saying that perhaps these were the strangers they sought. In the sudden silence that followed the calling voice, the hoop-wheel face of the second moon, faintly ivory-blue, rolled over the rocks across the basin, bright and peering. Scrambling sounds came from the rocks, above and to both sides, dark motions in the moonlight. Many figures flowed through the shadows. A whole troop, Paul thought with a sudden pang. A tall man in a mottled burnoose stepped in front of Jessica. His mouth baffle was thrown aside for clear speech, revealing a heavy beard in the side light of the moon, but face and eyes were hidden in the overhang of his hood. What have we here, gin or human? he asked. When Jessica heard the true banter in his voice, she allowed herself a faint hope. This was the voice of command, the voice that had first shocked them with its intrusion from the night. Human, I warrant, the man said. Jessica sensed rather than saw the knife hidden in a fold of the man's robe. She permitted herself one bitter regret that she and Paul had no shields. Do you also speak? the man asked. Jessica put all the royal arrogance at her command into her manner and voice. Reply was urgent, but she had not heard enough of this man to be certain she had a register on his culture and weaknesses. Who comes on us like criminals out of the night? she demanded. 
The burnoose hooded head showed tension in a sudden twist, then slow relaxation that revealed much. The man had good control. Paul shifted away from his mother to separate them as targets and give each of them a clearer arena of action. The hooded head turned at Paul's movement, opening a wedge of face to moonlight. Jessica saw a sharp nose, one glinting eye, dark, so dark the eye, without any white in it, a heavy brown and upturned mustache. A likely cub, the man said. If you're fugitives from the Harkonnens, it may be your welcome among us. What is it, boy? The possibilities flashed through Paul's mind. A trick? A fact? Immediate decision was needed. Why should you welcome fugitives? he demanded. A child who thinks and speaks like a man, the tall man said. Well now, to answer your question, my young Wally, I am one who does not pay the fai, the water tribute, to the Harkonnens. That is why I might welcome a fugitive. He knows who we are, Paul thought. There's concealment in his voice. I am Stilgar, the Fremen, the tall man said. Does that speed your tongue, boy? It is the same voice, Paul thought and he remembered the council with this man seeking the body of a friend slain by the Harkonnens. I know you, Stilgar, Paul said. I was with my father in council when you came for the water of your friend. You took away with you my father's man, Duncan Idaho, an exchange of friends. And Idaho abandoned us to return to his duke, Stilgar said. Jessica heard the shading of disgust in his voice, held herself prepared for attack. The voice from the rocks above them called, We waste time here still. This is the Duke's son, Stilgar barked. He's certainly the one Liet told us to seek. But a child still. The Duke was a man and this lad used a thumper, Stilgar said. That was a brave crossing he made in the path of Shai Hulu. And Jessica heard him excluding her from his thoughts. Had he already passed sentence? We haven't time for the test, the voice above them protested. Yet he could be Lisan al-Gaib, Stilgar said. He's looking for an omen, Jessica thought. But the woman, the voice above them said. Jessica read it herself anew. There had been death in that voice. Yes, the woman, Stilgar said. And her water. You know the law, said the voice from the rocks. Ones who cannot live with the desert. Be quiet, Stilgar said. Times change. Did Liet command this? asked the voice from the rocks. You heard the voice of the Cielago, Jamis, Stilgar said. Why do you press me? And Jessica thought, Cielago? The clue of the tongue opened wide avenues of understanding. This was the language of Ilm and Fik, and Cielago meant bat a small flying mammal, voice of the Cielago. They had received a distrans message to seek Paul and herself. I but remind you of your duties, friend Stilgar, said the voice above them. My duty is the strength of the tribe, Stilgar said. That is my only duty. I need no one to remind me of it. This child man interests me. He is full-fleshed. He has lived on much water. He has lived away from the father-son. He has not the eyes of the Ibad. 
yet he does not speak or act like a weakling of the pans, nor did his father. How can this be? We cannot stay out here all night arguing, said the voice from the rocks. If a patrol... I will not tell you again, Jamis, to be quiet, Steelgar said. The man above them remained silent, but Jessica heard him moving, crossing by a leap over a defile and working his way down to the basin floor on their left. The voice of the Lago suggested there'd be value to us in saving you two, Stilgar said. I can see possibility in this strong boy man. He is young and can learn. But what of yourself, woman? He stared at Jessica. I have his voice and pattern registered now. Jessica thought, I could control him with a word. But he's a strong man, worth much more to us unblunted and with full freedom of action. We shall see. I am the mother of this boy, Jessica said. In part, his strength which you admire is the product of my training. The strength of a woman can be boundless, Stilgar said. Certain it is in a reverend mother. Are you a reverend mother? For the moment, Jessica put aside the implications of the question, answered truthfully, No. Are you trained in the ways of the desert? No, but many consider my training valuable. We make our own judgments on value, Stilgar said. Every man has the right to his own judgments, she said. It is well that you see the reason, Stilgar said. We cannot dally here to test you, woman. Do you understand? We'd not want your shade to plague us. I will take the boy-man, your son, and he shall have my countenance, sanctuary in my tribe. But for you, woman, you understand there is nothing personal in this? It is the rule, istisla, in the general interest. Is that not enough? Paul took a half-step forward. What are you talking about? Stilgar flicked a glance across Paul but kept his attention on Jessica. Unless you've been deep-trained from childhood to live here, you cannot bring destruction onto an entire tribe. It is the law, and we cannot carry useless... Jessica's motion started as a slumping, deceptive feint to the ground. It was the obvious thing for a weak outworlder to do, and the obvious slows an opponent's reactions. It takes an instant to interpret a known thing when that thing is exposed as something unknown. She shifted as she saw his right shoulder drop to bring a weapon within the folds of his robe to bear on her new position. A turn, a slash of her arm, a whirling of mingled robes, and she was against the rocks with the man helpless in front of her. At his mother's first movement, Paul backed two steps. As she attacked, he dove for shadows. A bearded man rose up in his path, half-crouched, lunging forward with a weapon in one hand. Paul took the man beneath the sternum with a straight-hand jab, sidestepped and chopped the base of his neck, relieving him of the weapon as he fell. Then Paul was into the shadows, scrambling upward among the rocks, the weapon tucked into his waist-sash. He had recognized it in spite of its unfamiliar shape, a projectile weapon, and that said many things about this place. Another clue that shields were not used here. They will concentrate on my mother and that Stilgar fellow. She can handle him. I must get to a safe vantage point where I can threaten them and give her time to escape. There came a chorus of sharp spring clicks from the basin. Projectiles whined off the rocks around him. One of them flicked his robe. He squeezed around a corner in the rocks, found himself in a narrow vertical crack, began inching upward, his back against one side, his feet against the other, slowly, 
as silently as he could. The roar of Stilgar's voice echoed up to him. Get back, you worm-headed lice! She'll break my neck if you come near! A voice out of the basin said, The boy got away still. What are we? Of course he got away, you sand-brained! Easy woman! Tell them to stop hunting my son, Jessica said. They've stopped, woman! He got away as you intended him to. Great gods below, why didn't you say you were a weirding woman and a fighter? Tell your men to fall back, Jessica said. Tell them to go out into the basin where I can see them, and you'd better believe that I know how many of them there are. And she thought, this is the delicate moment. But if this man is as sharp-minded as I think him, we have a chance. Paul inched his way upward, found a narrow ledge on which he could rest and look down into the basin. Stilgar's voice came up to him. And if I refuse, how can you... Leave be, woman! We mean no harm to you, now. Great gods, if you can do this to the strongest of us, you're worth ten times your weight of water. Now the test of reason, Jessica thought. She said, You ask after the Lisan al-Gaib. You could be the folk of the legend, he said, but I'll believe that when it's been tested. All I know now is that you came here with that stupid duke who... Aye, woman! I care not if you kill me. He was honorable and brave, but it was stupid to put himself in the way of the Harkonnen fist. Silence. Presently, Jessica said, He had no choice, but we'll not argue it. Now, tell that man of yours behind the bush over there to stop trying to bring his weapon to bear on me, or I'll rid the universe of you and take him next. You there! Stilgar roared. Do as she says! But still... Do as she says, you worm-faced, crawling, sand-brained piece of lizard-turd. Do it, or I'll help her dismember you. Can't you see the worth of this woman? The man at the bush straightened from his partial concealment, lowered his weapon. He has obeyed, Stilgar said. Now, Jessica said, explain clearly to your people what it is you wish of me. I want no young hothead to make a foolish mistake. When we slip into the villages and towns, we must mask our origin, blend with the Pan and Graben folk, Stilgar said. We carry no weapons, for the Chris knife is sacred. But you, woman, you have the weirding ability of battle. We'd only heard of it, and many doubted, but one cannot doubt what he sees with his own eyes. You mastered an armed Fremen. This is a weapon no search could expose. There was a stirring in the basin as Stilgar's words sank home. And if I agree to teach you the weirding way? My countenance for you, as well as your son. How can we be sure of the truth in your promise? Stilgar's voice lost some of its subtle undertone of reasoning, took on an edge of bitterness. Out here, woman, we carry no paper for contracts. We make no evening promises to be broken at dawn. When a man says a thing, that's the contract. As leader of my people, I put them in bond to my word. Teach us this weirding way, and you have sanctuary with us as long as you wish. Your water shall mingle with our water. Can you speak for all, Fremen? Jessica asked. In time, that may be. But only my brother, Liet, speaks for all, Fremen. Here I promise only secrecy. My people will not speak of you to any other Sietch. 
The Harkonnens have returned to Dune in force, and your duke is dead. It is said that you two died in a mother storm. The hunter does not seek dead game. There's a safety in that, Jessica thought. But these people have good communications, and a message could be sent. I presume there was a reward offered for us, she said. Stilgar remained silent, and she could almost see the thoughts turning over in his head, sensing the shifts of his muscles beneath her hands. Presently, he said, I will say it once more. I've given the tribe's word bond. My people know your worth to us now. What could the Harkonnens give us? Our freedom? Ha! No, you are the Tokwa, that which buys us more than all the spice in the Harkonnen coffers. Then I shall teach you my way of battle, Jessica said, and she sensed the unconscious ritual intensity of her own words. Now will you release me? So be it, Jessica said. She released her hold on him, stepped aside in full view of the bank in the basin. This is the test mashed, she thought, but Paul must know about them even if I die for his knowledge. In the waiting silence, Paul inched forward to get a better view of where his mother stood. As he moved, he heard heavy breathing suddenly stilled above him in the vertical crack of the rock and sensed a faint shadow there outlined against the stars. Stilgar's voice came up from the basin. You up there! Stop hunting the boy! He'll come down presently! The voice of a young boy or a girl sounded from the darkness above Paul. But still... He can't be far from- I said leave him be, Cheney, you spawn of a lizard. There came a whispered imprecation from above Paul and a low voice. Call me spawn of a lizard, but the shadow pulled back out of view. Paul returned his attention to the basin, picking out the grey shadowed movement of Stilgar beside his mother. Come in, all of you, Stilgar called. He turned to Jessica. And now I'll ask you how we may be certain you'll fulfill your half of our bargain. You're the ones lived with papers and empty contracts and such as we of the Bene Gesserit don't break our vows any more than you do, Jessica said. There was a protracted silence, then a multiple hissing of voices. A Bene Gesserit witch! Paul brought his captured weapon from his sash, trained it on the dark figure of Stilgar but the man and his companions remained immobile, staring at Jessica. It is the legend, someone said. It was said that the Shadout Mapes gave this report on you, Stilgar said, but a thing so important must be tested. If you are the Bene Gesserit of the legend whose son will lead us to paradise... He shrugged. Jessica sighed, thinking... So, a missionaria protectiva even planted religious safety valves all through this hellhole. Ah well, it'll help, and that's what it was meant to do. She said, The seeress who brought you the legend, she gave it under the binding of Karama and Ijaz, the miracle and the inimitability of the prophecy. This I know. Do you wish a sign? His nostrils flared in the moonlight. We cannot tarry for the rites, he whispered. Jessica recalled a chart Kynes had shown her while arranging emergency escape routes. How long ago, it seemed. There had been a place called Siech Tabor on the chart, and beside it the notation, Stilgar. 
Perhaps when we get to Siech Tabor, she said. The revelation shook him, and Jessica thought, if only he knew the tricks we use. She must have been good, that Bene Gesserit of the Missionaria Protectiva. These Fremen are beautifully prepared to believe in us. Stilgar shifted uneasily. We must go now. She nodded, letting him know that they left with her permission. He looked up at the cliff almost directly at the rock ledge where Paul crouched. You there, lad. You may come down now. He returned his attention to Jessica, spoke with an apologetic tone. Your son made an incredible amount of noise climbing. He has much to learn lest he endanger us all. But he's young. No doubt we have much to teach each other, Jessica said. Meanwhile, you'd best see to your companion out there. My noisy son was a bit rough in disarming him. Stilgar whirled, his hood flapping. Where? Beyond those bushes, she pointed. Stilgar touched two of his men. See to it. He glanced at his companions, identifying them. Jamis is missing. He turned to Jessica. Even your cub knows the weirding way. And you'll notice that my son hasn't stirred from up there as you ordered, Jessica said. The two men Stilgar had sent returned, supporting a third, who stumbled and gasped between them. Stilgar gave them a flicking glance, returned his attention to Jessica. The son will take only your orders, eh? Good. He knows discipline. Paul, you may come down now, Jessica said. Paul stood up, emerging into moonlight above his concealing cleft, slipped the Fremen weapon back into his sash. As he turned, another figure arose from the rocks to face him. In the moonlight and reflection off grey stone, Paul saw a small figure in Fremen robes, a shadowed face peering out at him from the hood, and the muzzle of one of the projectile weapons aimed at him from a fold of robe. I am Cheney, daughter of Liet. The voice was lilting, half filled with laughter. I would not have permitted you to harm my companions, she said. Paul swallowed. The figure in front of him turned into the moon's path and he saw an elfin face, black pits of eyes. The familiarity of that face, the features out of numberless visions in his earliest prescience, shocked Paul to stillness. He remembered the angry bravado with which he had once described this face from a dream, telling the Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Mohayam, I will meet her. And here was the face. But in no meeting he had ever dreamed. You were as noisy as Shaihulud in a rage, she said, and you took the most difficult way up here. Follow me, I'll show you an easier way down. He scrambled out of the cleft, followed the swirling of her robe across a tumbled landscape. She moved like a gazelle, dancing over the rocks. Paul felt hot blood in his face, was thankful for the darkness. That girl! She was like a touch of destiny. He felt caught up on a wave, in tune with a motion that lifted all his spirits. They stood presently amidst the Fremen on the basin floor. Jessica turned a wry smile on Paul, but spoke to Stilgar. This will be a good exchange of teachings. I hope you and your people feel no anger at our violence. 
It seemed necessary. You were about to make a mistake. To save one from a mistake is a gift of paradise, Stilgar said. He touched his lips with his left hand, lifted the weapon from Paul's waist with the other, tossed it to a companion. You will have your own mauler pistol, lad, when you've earned it. Paul started to speak, hesitated, remembering his mother's teaching. Beginnings are such delicate times. My son has what weapons he needs, Jessica said. She stared at Stilgar, forcing him to think of how Paul had acquired the pistol. Stilgar glanced at the man Paul had subdued, Jameis. The man stood at one side, head lowered, breathing heavily. You are a difficult woman, Stilgar said. He held out his left hand to a companion, snapped his fingers. Kushtibakate! More Chakopsa, Jessica thought. The companion pressed two squares of gauze into Stilgar's hand. Stilgar ran them through his fingers, fixed one around Jessica's neck beneath her hood, fitted the other around Paul's neck in the same way. Now you wear the kerchief of the Baka, he said. If we become separated, you will be recognized as belonging to Stilgar's Siege. We will talk of weapons another time. He moved out through his band now, inspecting them, giving Paul's Fremkit pack to one of his men to carry. Baka, Jessica thought, recognizing the religious term, Baka, the weeper. She sensed how the symbolism of the kerchiefs united this band. Why should weeping unite them? she asked herself. Stilgar came to the young girl who had embarrassed Paul, said, Cheney, take the child man under your wing. Keep him out of trouble. Cheney touched Paul's arm. Come along, child man. Paul hid the anger in his voice, said, My name is Paul. It were well you... We'll give you a name, manling, Stilgar said, in the time of the Mina. At the test of Akl. The test of reason, Jessica translated. The sudden need of Paul's ascendancy overrode all other consideration, and she barked, My son's been tested with a gomjabar. In the stillness that followed, she knew she had struck to the heart of them. There's much we don't know of each other, Stilgar said. But we tarry over long. Day sun mustn't find us in the open. He crossed to the man Paul had struck down, said, Jemis, can you travel? A grunt answered him. Surprised me he did. T'was an accident. I can travel. No accident, Stilgar said. I'll hold you responsible with Cheney for the lad's safety, Jemis. These people have my countenance. Jessica stared at the man Jemis. His was the voice that had argued with Stilgar from the rocks. His was the voice with death in it and Stilgar had seen fit to reinforce his order with this Jamis. Stilgar flicked a testing glance across the group, motioned two men out. Lerus and Farouk, you are to hide our tracks. See that we leave no trace. Extra care. We have two with us who've not been trained. He turned, hand upheld, and aimed across the basin. In squad line with flankers. Move out. We must be at Cave of the Ridges before dawn. Jessica fell into step beside Stilgar, counting heads. There were forty Fremen. She and Paul made it forty-two, and she thought, they travel as a military company, even the girl Cheney. Paul took a place in the line behind Cheney. He had put down the black feeling at being caught by the girl. 
In his mind now was the memory called up by his mother's barked reminder, my son's been tested with a gomjabar. He found that his hand tingled with remembered pain. Watch where you go, Cheney hissed. Do not brush against a bush, lest you leave a thread to show our passage. Paul swallowed, nodded. Jessica listened to the sounds of the troop, hearing her own footsteps and Paul's, marveling at the way the Fremen moved. There were forty people crossing the basin with only the sounds natural to the place, ghostly felucas, their robes flitting through the shadows. Their destination was C.H. Tabor, Stilgar's C.H. She turned the word over in her mind, C.H. It was a Chakobsa word, unchanged from the old hunting language out of countless centuries. C.H., a meeting place in time of danger. The profound implications of the word and the language were just beginning to register with her after the tension of their encounter. We move well, Stilgar said. With Shaihulud's favor, we'll reach Cave of the Ridges before dawn. Jessica nodded, conserving her strength, sensing the terrible fatigue she held at bay by force of will. And, she admitted it, by the force of elation. Her mind focused on the value of this troop, seeing what was revealed here about the Fremen culture. All of them, she thought. An entire culture trained to military order. What a priceless thing is here for an outcast duke. The Fremen were supreme in that quality the ancients called Spallensporgen, which is the self-imposed delay between desire for a thing and the act of reaching out to grasp that thing. From the wisdom of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. They approached Cave of the Ridges at dawnbreak, moving through a split in the basin wall so narrow they had to turn sideways to negotiate it. Jessica saw Stilgar detach guards in the thin dawn light, saw them for a moment as they began their scrambling climb up the cliff. Paul turned his head upward as he walked, seeing the tapestry of this planet cut in cross-section with a narrow cleft gaped toward grey-blue sky. Cheney pulled at his rope to hurry him, said, Quickly! It is already light. The men who climbed above us, where are they going? Paul whispered. The first day watch, she said. Hurry now. A guard left outside, Paul thought. Wise. But it would have been wiser still for us to approach this place in separate bands. Less chance of losing the whole troop. He paused in the thought, realizing that this was guerrilla thinking and he remembered his father's fear that the Atreides might become a guerrilla house. Faster, Cheney whispered. Paul sped his steps, heard the swish of robes behind, and he thought of the words of the Sirat from Yui's tiny O.C. Bible. Paradise on my right, hell on my left, and the angel of death behind. He rolled the quotation in his mind. They rounded a corner where the passage widened. Stilgar stood at one side, motioning them into a low hole that opened at right angles. Quickly, he hissed. We're like rabbits in a cage if a patrol catches us here. Paul bent for the opening, followed Cheney into a cave illuminated by thin grey light from somewhere ahead. You can stand up, she said. He straightened, studied the place. 
a deep and wide area with domed ceiling that curved away just out of a man's hand reach. The troops spread out through shadows. Paul saw his mother come up on one side, saw her examine their companions, and he noted how she failed to blend with the Fremen even though her garb was identical. The way she moved, such a sense of power and grace. Find a place to rest and stay out of the way, child man, Cheney said. Here's food. She pressed two leaf-wrapped morsels into his hand. They reeked of spice. Stilgar came up behind Jessica, called an order to a group on the left. Get the door seal in place and see to moisture security. He turned to another Fremen. Lemiel, get glow globes. He took Jessica's arm. I wish to show you something, weirding woman. He led her around a curve of rock toward the light source. Jessica found herself looking out across the wide lip of another opening to the cave, an opening high in a cliff wall looking out across another basin about ten or twelve kilometers wide. The basin was shielded by high rock walls. Sparse clumps of plant growth were scattered around it. As she looked at the dawn-gray basin, the sun lifted over the far escarpment, illuminating a biscuit-colored landscape of rocks and sand and she noted how the sun of Arrakis appeared to leap over the horizon. It's because we want to hold it back, she thought. Night is safer than day. There came over her then a longing for a rainbow in this place that would never see rain. I must suppress such longings, she thought. They're a weakness. I no longer can afford weaknesses. Stilgar gripped her arm, pointed across the basin. There! There you see proper druses. She looked where he pointed, saw movement. People on the basin floor scattering at the daylight into the shadows of the opposite cliff wall. In spite of the distance, their movements were plain in the clear air. She lifted her binoculars from beneath her robe, focused the oil lenses on the distant people. Kerchiefs fluttered like a flight of multicolored butterflies. That is home, Stilgar said. We will be there this night. He stared across the basin, tugging at his mustache. My people stayed out over late working. That means there are no patrols about. I'll signal them later, and they'll prepare for us. Your people show good discipline, Jessica said. She lowered the binoculars, saw that Stilgar was looking at them. They obey the preservation of the tribe, he said. It is the way we choose among us for a leader. The leader is the one who is strongest, the one who brings water and security. He lifted his attention to her face. She returned his stare, noted the whiteless eyes, the stained eye pits, the dust-rimmed beard and moustache, the line of the catch tube curving down from his nostrils into his still suit. Have I compromised your leadership by besting you, Stilgar? she asked. You did not call me out, he said. It's important that the leader keep the respect of his troop, she said. Isn't a one of those sand lice I cannot handle, Stilgar said. When you bested me, you bested us all. Now they hope to learn from you, the weirding way, and some are curious to see if you intend to call me out. She weighed the implications. By besting you in formal battle? He nodded. I'd advise you against this, because they'd not follow you. You're not of the sand. They saw this in our night's passage. Practical people, she said. True enough. He glanced at the basin. We know our needs. 
but not many are thinking deep thoughts now this close to home. We've been out over long arranging to deliver our spice quota to the free traders for the cursed guild. May their faces be forever black. Jessica stopped in the act of turning away from him, looked back up into his face. The guild? What has the guild to do with your spice? It's Liet's command, Stilgar said. We know the reason, but the taste of it sours us. We bribed the guild with a monstrous payment in spice to keep our skies clear of satellites and such, that none may spy what we do to the face of Arrakis. She weighed out her words, remembering that Paul had said this must be the reason Arikeen's skies were clear of satellites. And what is it you do to the face of Arrakis that must not be seen? We change it, slowly but with certainty, to make it fit for human life. Our generation will not see it, nor our children, nor our children's children, nor the grandchildren of their children, but it will come. He stared with veiled eyes out over the basin. Open water, and tall green plants, and people walking freely without stillsuits. So that's the dream of this Liet Kynes, she thought. And she said, Bribes are dangerous. They have a way of growing larger and larger. They grow, he said, but the slow way is the safe way. Jessica turned, looked out over the basin, trying to see it the way Stilgar was seeing it in his imagination. She saw only the greyed, mustard stain of distant rocks and a sudden hazy motion in the sky above the cliffs. Ah, Stilgar said. She thought at first it must be a patrol vehicle, then realized it was a mirage, another landscape hovering over the desert, sand and a distant wavering of greenery, and in the middle distance a long worm traveling the surface with what looked like Fremen robes fluttering on its back. The mirage faded. It would be better to ride, Stilgar said, but we cannot permit a maker into this basin. Thus we must walk again tonight. Maker, their word for worm, she thought. She measured the import of his words, the statement that they could not permit a worm into this basin. She knew what she had seen in the mirage, Fremen riding on the back of a giant worm. It took heavy control not to betray her shock at the implications. We must be getting back to the others, Stilgar said else my people may suspect I dally with you. Some already are jealous that my hands tasted your loveliness when we struggled last night in Tuono Basin. That will be enough of that, Jessica snapped. No offense, Stilgar said, and his voice was mild. Women among us are not taken against their will. And with you, he shrugged, even that convention isn't required. You will keep in mind that I was a duke's lady, she said, but her voice was calmer. As you wish, he said. It's time to seal off this opening to permit relaxation of still-suit discipline. My people need to rest in comfort this day. Their families will give them little rest on the morrow. Silence fell between them. Jessica stared out into the sunlight. She had heard what she had heard in Stilgar's voice, the unspoken offer of more than his countenance. Did he need a wife? She realized she could step into that place with him. 
It would be one way to end conflict over tribal leadership, female properly aligned with male. But what of Paul, then? Who could tell yet what rules of parenthood prevailed here? And what of the unborn daughter she had carried these few weeks? What of a dead duke's daughter? And she permitted herself to face fully the significance of this other child growing within her, to see her own motives in permitting the conception. She knew what it was. She had succumbed to that profound drive shared by all creatures who are faced with death, the drive to seek immortality through progeny. The fertility drive of the species had overpowered them. Jessica glanced at Stilgar, saw that he was studying her, waiting. A daughter born here to a woman wed to such a one as this man. What would be the fate of such a daughter? she asked herself. Would he try to limit the necessities that a Bene Gesserit must follow? Stilgar cleared his throat and revealed then that he understood some of the questions in her mind. What is important for a leader is that which makes him a leader. It is the needs of his people. If you teach me your powers, there may come a day when one of us must challenge the other. I would prefer some alternative. There are several alternatives? she asked. The Sayadina, he said. Our reverend mother is old. Their reverend mother? Before she could probe this, he said, I do not necessarily offer myself as mate. This is nothing personal, for you are beautiful and desirable. But should you become one of my women, that might lead some of my young men to believe that I am too much concerned with pleasures of the flesh and not enough concerned with the tribe's needs. Even now they listen to us and watch us. A man who weighs his decisions, who thinks of consequences, she thought. There are those among my young men who have reached the age of wild spirits, he said. They must be eased through this period. I must leave no great reasons around for them to challenge me, because I would have to maim and kill among them. This is not the proper course for a leader if it can be avoided with honor. A leader, you see, is one of the things that distinguishes a mob from a people. He maintains the level of individuals. Too few individuals and a people reverts to a mob. His words, the depth of their awareness, the fact that he spoke as much to her as to those who secretly listened, forced her to re-evaluate him. He has stature, she thought. Where did he learn such inner balance? The law that demands our form of choosing a leader is a just law, Stilgar said but it does not follow that justice is always the thing a people needs. What we truly need now is time to grow and prosper, to spread our force over more land. What is his ancestry? she wondered. Whence comes such breeding? She said, Stilgar, I underestimated you. Such was my suspicion, he said. Each of us apparently underestimated the other, she said. I should like an end to this, he said. I should like friendship with you, and trust. I should like that respect for each other which grows in the breast without demand for the huddlings of sex. I understand, she said. Do you trust me? I hear your sincerity. Among us, he said, the Syedina, when they are not the formal leaders, hold a special place of honor. They teach, they maintain the strength of God here. He touched his breast. Now I must probe this reverend mother mystery, she thought. 
and she said, You spoke of your reverend mother, and I've heard words of legend and prophecy. It is said that a Bene Gesserit and her offspring hold the key to our future, he said. Do you believe I am that one? She watched his face, thinking, A young reed dies so easily. Beginnings are times of such great peril. We do not know, he said. She nodded, thinking, He's an honorable man. He wants a sign from me, but he'll not tip fate by telling me the sign. Jessica turned her head, stared down into the basin at the golden shadows, the purple shadows, the vibrations of dust mote air across the lip of their cave. Her mind was filled suddenly with feline prudence. She knew the cant of the Missionaria Protectiva, knew how to adapt the techniques of legend and fear and hope to her emergency needs, but she sensed wild changes here, as though someone had been in among these Fremen and capitalized on the Missionaria Protectiva's imprint. Stilgar cleared his throat. She sensed his impatience, knew that the day moved ahead and men waited to seal off this opening. This was a time for boldness on her part. And she realized what she needed, some Dar al-Hikman, some school of translation that would give her adab, she whispered. Her mind felt as though it had rolled over within her. She recognized the sensation with a quickening of pulse. Nothing in all the Bene Gesserit training carried such a signal of recognition. It could be only the adab, the demanding memory that comes upon you of itself. She gave herself up to it, allowing the words to flow from her. Ibn Kertaiba, she said, as far as the spoil where the dust ends. She reached out an arm from her robe, seeing Stilgar's eyes go wide. She heard a rustling of many robes in the background. I see a Fremen with a book of examples, she intoned. He reads to a lot the son whom he defied and subjugated. He reads to the sadhus of the trial, and this is what he reads. Mine enemies are like green blades eaten down that did stand in the path of the tempest. Hast thou not seen what our Lord did? He sent the pestilence among them that did lay schemes against us. They are like birds scattered by the huntsmen. Their schemes are like pellets of poison that every mouth rejects. A trembling passed through her. She dropped her arm. Back to her from the inner cave's shadows came a whispered response of many voices. Their works have been overturned. The fire of God mount over thy heart, she said, and she thought, now it goes in the proper channel. The fire of God set alight, came the response. She nodded. Thine enemies shall fall, she said. Bilal Kaifa, they answered. In the sudden hush, Stilgar bowed to her. Sayanina, he said, if the Shai Hulud grant, then you may yet pass within to become a reverend mother. Pass within, she thought. An odd way of putting it. But the rest of it fitted into the cant well enough. And she felt a cynical bitterness at what she had done. Our missionaria protectiva seldom fails. A place was prepared for us in this wilderness. 
The prayer of the Salat has carved out our hiding place. Now I must play the part of Alia, the friend of God. Sayadina to rogue peoples who've been so heavily imprinted with our Bene Gesserit soothsay, they even call their chief priestesses reverend mothers. Paul stood beside Cheney in the shadows of the inner cave. He could still taste the morsel she had fed him, bird flesh and grain bound with spice honey and encased in a leaf. In tasting it he had realized he never before had eaten such a concentration of spice essence, and there had been a moment of fear. He knew what this essence could do to him, the spice change that pushed his mind into prescient awareness. Bilal Gaifa, Cheney whispered. He looked at her, seeing the awe with which the Fremen appeared to accept his mother's words. Only the man called Jamis seemed to stand aloof from the ceremony, holding himself apart with arms folded across his breast. Dui yakain manje, Cheney whispered. Dui pumain manje. I have two eyes. I have two feet and she stared at Paul with a look of wonder. Paul took a deep breath, trying to still the tempest within him. His mother's words had locked onto the working of the spice essence, and he had felt her voice rise and fall within him like the shadows of an open fire. Through it all he had sensed the edge of cynicism in her. He knew her so well. But nothing could stop this thing that had begun with a morsel of food. Terrible purpose. He sensed it the race consciousness that he could not escape. There was the sharpened clarity, the inflow of data, the cold precision of his awareness. He sank to the floor, sitting with his back against rock, giving himself up to it. Awareness flowed into that timeless stratum where he could view time, sensing the available paths, the winds of the future, the winds of the past. The one-eyed vision of the past, the one-eyed vision of the present, and the one-eyed vision of the future, all combined in a trinocular vision that permitted him to see time become space. There was danger, he felt, of overrunning himself, and he had to hold on to his awareness of the present, sensing the blurred deflection of experience, the flowing moment, the continual solidification of that which is into the perpetual was. In grasping the present, he felt for the first time the massive steadiness of time's movement everywhere complicated by shifting currents, waves, surges and counter-surges like surf against rocky cliffs. It gave him a new understanding of his prescience, and he saw the source of blind time, the source of error in it, with an immediate sensation of fear. The prescience, he realized, was an illumination that incorporated the limits of what it revealed, at once a source of accuracy and meaningful error. A kind of Heisenberg indeterminacy intervened. The expenditure of energy that revealed what he saw changed what he saw. And what he saw was a time nexus within this cave, a boiling of possibilities focused here, wherein the most minute action, the wink of an eye, a careless word, a misplaced grain of sand moved a gigantic lever across the known universe. He saw violence with the outcomes subject to so many variables that his slightest movement created vast shiftings in the pattern. 
The vision made him want to freeze into immobility, but this too was action with its consequences. The countless consequences lines fanned out from this cave, and along most of these consequence lines, he saw his own dead body, with blood flowing from a gaping knife wound. My father, the Padishah Emperor, was 72, yet looked no more than 35 the year he encompassed the death of Duke Leto and gave Arrakis back to the Harkonnens. He seldom appeared in public wearing other than a Sardaukar uniform and a Berseg's black helmet with the Imperial Lion in gold upon its crest. The uniform was an open reminder of where his power lay. He was not always that blatant, though. When he wanted, he could radiate charm and sincerity. But I often wonder in these later days if anything about him was as it seemed. I think now he was a man fighting constantly to escape the bars of an invisible cage. You must remember that he was an emperor, fatherhead of a dynasty that reached back into the dimmest history. But we denied him a legal son. Was this not the most terrible defeat a ruler ever suffered? My mother obeyed her sister superiors, whether Lady Jessica disobeyed. Which of them was the stronger? History already has answered. In my father's house, by the Princess Irulan. Jessica awakened in cave darkness, sensing the stir of Fremen around her, smelling the acrid, still-suit odor. Her inner time sense told her it would soon be night outside, but the cave remained in blackness, shielded from the desert by the plastic hoods that trapped their body moisture within this space. She realized that she had permitted herself the utterly relaxing sleep of great fatigue, and this suggested something of her own unconscious assessment on personal security within Stilgar's troop. She turned in the hammock that had been fashioned of her robe, slipped her feet to the rock floor and into her desert boots. I must remember to fasten the boots slip fashion to help my still suit's pumping action, she thought. There are so many things to remember. She could still taste their morning meal, the morsel of bird flesh and grain bound within a leaf with spice honey, and it came to her that the use of time was turned around here. Night was the day of activity, and day was the time of rest. Night conceals. Night is safest. She unhooked her robe from its hammock pegs in a rock alcove, fumbled with the fabric in the dark until she found the top, slipped into it. How to get a message out to the Bene Gesserit, she wondered. They would have to be told of the two strays in Arakeen's sanctuary. Glow globes came alight farther into the cave. She saw people moving there. Paul among them already dressed and with his hood thrown back to reveal the aquiline Atreides profile. He had acted so strangely before they retired, she thought. Withdrawn. He was like one come back from the dead, not yet fully aware of his return, his eyes half shut and glassy with the inward stare. It made her think of his warning about the spice-impregnated diet. Addictive. Are there side effects? she wondered. He said it had something to do with his prescient faculty, but he has been strangely silent about what he sees. Stilgar came from shadows to her right, crossed to the group beneath the glow globes. She marked how he fingered his beard and the watchful, cat-stalking look of him. 
Abrupt fear shot through Jessica as her senses awakened to the tensions visible in the people gathered around Paul, the stiff movements, the ritual positions. They have my countenance, Stilgar rumbled. Jessica recognized the man Stilgar confronted, Jameis. She saw then the rage in Jameis, the tight set of his shoulders. Jameis, the man Paul bested, she thought. You know the rules, Stilgar, Jameis said. Who knows it better? Stilgar asked. And she heard the tone of placation in his voice, the attempt to smooth something over. I choose the combat, Jameis growled. Jessica sped across the cave, grasped Stilgar's arm. What is this? she asked. It's the Amtal rule, Stilgar said. Jameis is demanding the right to test your part in the legend. She must be championed, Jameis said. If her champion wins, that's the truth in it. But it's said, he glanced across the press of people, that she'd need no champion from the Fremen, which can mean only that she brings her own champion. He's talking of single combat with Paul, Jessica thought. She released Stilgar's arm, took a half-step forward. I'm always my own champion, she said. The meaning's simple enough for... You will not tell us our ways, Jameis snapped. Not without more proof than I've seen. Stilgar could have told you what to say last morning. He could have filled your mind full of the coddle, and you could have bird-talked it to us, hoping to make a false way among us. I can take him, Jessica thought. But that might conflict with the way they interpret the legend. And again she wondered at the way the Missionaria Protectiva's work had been twisted on this planet. Stilgar looked at Jessica, spoke in a low voice, but one designed to carry to the crowd's fringe. Jamis is one to hold a grudge, Sayadina. Your son bested him, and— It was an accident, Jamis roared. There was rich force at Tuorno Basin, and I'll prove it now. And I've bested him myself, Stilgar continued. He seeks by this Tahadi challenge to get back at me as well. There's too much of violence in Jameis for him ever to make a good leader. Too much goffler, the distraction. He gives his mouth to the rules and his heart to the suffer, the turning away. No, he could never make a good leader. I've preserved him this long because he's useful in a fight as such, but when he gets this carving anger on him, he's dangerous to his own society. Stilgar, Jameis rumbled. And Jessica saw what Stilgar was doing, trying to enrage Jameis to take the challenge away from Paul. Stilgar faced Jameis, and again Jessica heard the soothing in the rumbling voice. Jameis, he's but a boy. He's... You named him a man, Jameis said. His mother says he's been through the Gomjabar. He's full-fleshed and with a surfeit of water. The ones who carried their packs say there's liturgons of water in it. Liturgons, and us sipping our catch pockets the instant they show dew sparkle. Stilgar glanced at Jessica. Is this true? Is there water in your pack? Yes. Liturgons of it? Two liturgons. What was intended with this wealth? Wealth? she thought. She shook her head, feeling the coldness in his voice. Where I was born... Water fell from the sky and ran over the land in wide rivers, she said. There were oceans of it so broad you could not see the other shore. I've not been trained to your water discipline. I've never before had to think of it this way. A sighing gasp arose from the people around them. 
water fell from the sky. It ran over the land. Did you know there are those among us who've lost from their catch pockets by accident and will be in sore trouble before we reach Tabor this night? How could I know? Jessica shook her head. If they're in need, give them water from our pack. Is that what you intended with this wealth? I intended it to save life, she said. Then we accept your blessing, Sayadina. You'll not buy us off with water, Jamis growled, nor will you anger me against yourself, Stilgar. I see you trying to make me call you out before I've proved my words. Stilgar faced Jamis. Are you determined to press this fight against a child, Jamis? His voice was low, venomous. She must be championed, even though she has my countenance. I invoke the Umtal rule, Jamis said. It's my right. Stilgar nodded. Then, if the boy does not carve you down, you'll answer to my knife afterward. And this time I'll not hold back the blade as I've done before. You cannot do this thing, Jessica said. Paul's just— You must not interfere, Sayadina, Stilgar said. Oh, I know you can take me, and therefore can take anyone among us, but you cannot best us all united. This must be. It is the Omtal rule. Jessica fell silent staring at him in the green light of the glow-globes, seeing the demoniacal stiffness that had taken over his expression. She shifted her attention to Jamis, saw the brooding look to his brows, and thought, I should have seen that before. He broods. He's the silent kind, one who works himself up inside. I should have been prepared. If you harm my son, she said, you'll have me to meet. I call you out now. I'll carve you into a joint of... Mother, Paul stepped forward, touched her sleeve. Perhaps if I explain to Jamis how... Explain? Jamis sneered. Paul fell silent, staring at the man. He felt no fear of him. Jamis appeared clumsy in his movements, and he had fallen so easily in their night encounter on the sand. But Paul still felt the nexus boiling of this cave, still remembered the prescient visions of himself, dead under a knife. There had been so few avenues of escape for him in that vision. Stilgar said, Sayadina, you must step back now, where— Stop calling her Sayadina, Jamis said. That's yet to be proved. So she knows the prayer. What's that? Every child among us knows it. He has talked enough, Jessica thought. I've the key to him. I could immobilize him with a word. She hesitated. But I cannot stop them all. You will answer to me, then, Jessica said, and she pitched her voice in a twisting tone with a little whine in it and a catch at the end. Jamis stared at her, fright visible on his face. I'll teach you the agony, she said in the same tone. Remember that as you fight. You'll have agony such as will make the Gomjabar a happy memory by comparison. You will writhe with your entire— She tries a spell on me, Jamis gasped. He put his clenched right fist beside his ear. I invoke the silence on her. So be it then, Stilgar said. He cast a warning glance at Jessica. If you speak again, Sayadina, we'll know it's your witchcraft and you'll be forfeit. He nodded for her to step back. Jessica felt hands pulling her, helping her back, and she sensed they were not unkindly. She saw Paul being separated from the throng, the elfin-faced Cheney whispering in his ear as she nodded toward Jamis. 
a ring formed within the troop. More glow globes were brought, and all of them tuned to the yellow band. Jameis stepped into the ring, slipped out of his robe, and tossed it to someone in the crowd. He stood there in a cloudy, grey slickness of still suit that was patched and marked by tucks and gathers. For a moment he bent with his mouth to his shoulder, drinking from a catch-pocket tube. Presently he straightened, peeled off, and detached the suit, handed it carefully into the crowd. He stood waiting, clad in loincloth and some tight fabric over his feet, a crisp knife in his right hand. Jessica saw the girl-child Cheney helping Paul, saw her press a crisp knife handle into his palm, saw him heft it, testing the weight and balance. And it came to Jessica that Paul had been trained in prana and bindu, the nerve and the fibre, that he had been taught fighting in a deadly school, his teachers, men like Duncan Idaho and Gurney Halleck, men who were legends in their own lifetimes. The boy knew the devious ways of the Bene Gesserit, and he looked supple and confident. But he's only fifteen, she thought, and he has no shield. I must stop this. Somehow there must be a way to— She looked up, saw Stilgar watching her. You cannot stop it, he said. You must not speak. She put a hand over her mouth, thinking, I've planted fear in Jameis's mind. It'll slow him some, perhaps. If I could only pray, truly pray. Paul stood alone now just into the ring, clad in the fighting trunks he'd worn under his still suit. He held a Chris knife in his right hand, his feet were bare against the sand-gritted rock. Idaho had warned him time and again, When in doubt of your surface, bare feet are best. And there were Cheney's words of instruction, still in the front of his consciousness. Jameis turns to the right with his knife after a parry. It's a habit in him we've all seen, and he'll aim for the eyes to catch a blink in which to slash you. And he can fight either hand, look out for a knife shift. But strongest in Paul, so that he felt it with his entire body, was training and the instinctual reaction mechanism that had been hammered into him day after day, hour after hour on the practice floor. Gurney Halleck's words were there to remember. The good knife fighter thinks on point and blade and shearing guard simultaneously. The point can also cut. The blade can also stab. The shearing guard can also trap your opponent's blade. Paul glanced at the Chris knife. There was no shearing guard, only the slim, round ring of the handle with its raised lips to protect the hand. And even so, he realized that he did not know the breaking tension of this blade, did not even know if it could be broken. Jameis began sidling to the right along the edge of the ring opposite Paul. Paul crouched, realizing then that he had no shield, but was trained to fighting with its subtle field around him trained to react on defence with utmost speed, while his attack would be timed to the controlled slowness necessary for penetrating the enemy's shield. In spite of constant warning from his trainers not to depend on the shield's mindless blunting of attack speed, he knew that shield awareness was part of him. Jameis called out in ritual challenge. May thy knife chip and shatter! This knife will break then, Paul thought. He cautioned himself that Jameis also was without shield, but the man wasn't trained to its use, had no shield-fighter inhibitions. Paul stared across the ring at Jameis. The man's body looked like knotted whipcord on a dried skeleton. His Chris knife shone milky yellow in the light of the glow globes. Fear coursed through Paul.
he felt suddenly alone and naked, standing in dull yellow light within this ring of people. Prescience had fed his knowledge with countless experiences, hinted at the strongest currents of the future and the strings of decision that guided them, but this was the real now. This was death hanging on an infinite number of minuscule mischances. Anything could tip the future here, he realized. Someone coughing in the troop of watchers, a distraction, a variation in a glow globe's brilliance, a deceptive shadow. I'm afraid, Paul told himself. And he circled warily opposite Jamis, repeating silently to himself the Bene Gesserit litany against fear. Fear is the mind killer. It was a cool bath washing over him. He felt muscles untie themselves, become poised and ready. I'll sheath my knife in your blood, Jameis snarled, and in the middle of the last word he pounced. Jessica saw the motion, stifled an outcry. Where the man struck there was only empty air, and Paul stood now behind Jameis with a clear shot at the exposed back. Now, Paul, now, Jessica screamed it in her mind. Paul's motion was slowly timed, beautifully fluid, but so slow it gave Jameis the margin to twist away, backing and turning to the right. Paul withdrew, crouching low. First, you must find my blood, he said. Jessica recognized the shield fighter timing in her son, and it came over her what a two-edged thing that was. The boy's reactions were those of youth, and trained to a peak these people had never seen. But the attack was trained too, and conditioned by the necessities of penetrating a shield barrier. A shield would repel too fast a blow, admit only the slowly deceptive counter. It needed control and trickery to get through a shield. Does Paul see it? she asked herself. He must. Again, Jameis attacked, ink-dark eyes glaring, his body a yellow blur under the glow globes, and again Paul slipped away to return too slowly on the attack. And again. And again. Each time Paul's counterblow came an instant late, and Jessica saw a thing she hoped Jameis did not see. Paul's defensive reactions were blindingly fast, but they moved each time at the precisely correct angle they would take if a shield were helping deflect part of Jameis's blow. Is your son playing with that poor fool? Stilgar asked. He waved her to silence before she could respond. Sorry, you must remain silent. Now the two figures on the rock floor circled each other, Jameis with knife hand held far forward and tipped up slightly. Paul crouched with knife held low. Again Jameis pounced, and this time he twisted to the right, where Paul had been dodging. Instead of faking back and out, Paul met the man's knife hand on the point of his own blade. Then the boy was gone, twisting away to the left and thankful for Cheney's warning. Jameis backed into the centre of the circle, rubbing his knife hand, blood dripping from the injury for a moment, stopped. His eyes were wide and staring, two blue-black holes, studying Paul with a new wariness in the dull light of the glow-globes. Ah, that one hurt, Stilgar murmured. Paul crouched at the ready, and, as he had been trained to do after first blood, called out, Do you yield? Ha! Jameis cried. An angry murmur arose from the troop. Hold! Stilgar called out. The lad doesn't know our rule. Then, to Paul, There can be no yielding in the Tahadi challenge. 
Death is the test of it. Jessica saw Paul swallow hard, and she thought, He's never killed a man like this, in the hot blood of a knife fight. Can he do it? Paul circled slowly right, forced by Jameis's movement. The prescient knowledge of the time-boiling variables in this cave came back to plague him now. His new understanding told him there were too many swiftly compressed decisions in this fight for any clear channel ahead to show itself. Variable piled on variable. That was why this cave lay as a blurred nexus in his path. It was like a gigantic rock in the flood, creating maelstroms in the current around it. Have an end to it, lad, Stilgar muttered. Don't play with him. Paul crept farther into the ring, relying on his own edge in speed. Jameis backed now that the realization swept over him, that this was no soft off-worlder in the Tahadi ring, easy prey for a Fremen Chris-knife. Jessica saw the shadow of desperation in the man's face. Now is when he's most dangerous, she thought. Now he's desperate and can do anything. He sees that this is not like a child of his own people, but a fighting machine born and trained to it from infancy. Now the fear I planted in him has come to bloom. And she found in herself a sense of pity for Jameis, an emotion tempered by awareness of the immediate peril to her son. Jameis could do anything, any unpredictable thing, she told herself. She wondered then if Paul had glimpsed this future, if he were reliving this experience. But she saw the way her son moved, the beads of perspiration on his face and shoulders, the careful wariness visible in the flow of muscles. And for the first time she sensed, without understanding it, the uncertainty factor in Paul's gift. Paul pressed the fight now, circling but not attacking. He had seen the fear in his opponent. Memory of Duncan Idaho's voice flowed through Paul's awareness. When your opponent fears you, then's the moment when you give the fear its own reign. Give it the time to work on him. Let it become terror. The terrified man fights himself. Eventually he attacks in desperation. That is the most dangerous moment. But the terrified man can be trusted usually to make a fatal mistake. You are being trained here to detect these mistakes and use them. The crowd in the cavern began to mutter. They think Paul's toying with Jameis, Jessica thought. They think Paul's being needlessly cruel. But she sensed also the undercurrent of crowd excitement, their enjoyment of the spectacle, and she could see the pressure building up in Jameis. The moment when it became too much for him to contain was as apparent to her as it was to Jameis, or to Paul. Jameis leaped high, fainting and striking down with his right hand, but the hand was empty. The Chris knife had been shifted to his left hand. Jessica gasped. But Paul had been warned by Cheney, Jameis fights with either hand, and the depth of his training had taken in that trick en passant. Keep the mind on the knife and not on the hand that holds it, Gurney Halleck had told him time and again. The knife is more dangerous than the hand, and the knife can be in either hand. And Paul had seen Jameis's mistake, bad footwork so that it took the man a heartbeat longer to recover from his leap, which had been intended to confuse Paul and hide the knife shift. Except for the low yellow light of the glow globes and the inky eyes of the staring troop, it was similar to a session on the practice floor. Shields didn't count where the body's own movement could be used against it. Paul shifted his own knife in a blurred motion, slipped sideways and thrust upward where Jameis's chest was descending, then away to watch the man crumble. 
Jamis fell like a limp rag, face down, gasped once and turned his face toward Paul, then lay still on the rock floor. His dead eyes stared out like beads of dark glass. Killing with a point lacks artistry, Idaho had once told Paul, but don't let that hold your hand when the opening presents itself. The troop rushed forward, filling the ring, pushing Paul aside. They hid Jamis in a frenzy of huddling activity. Presently a group of them hurried back into the depths of the cavern, carrying a burden wrapped in a robe. And there was no body on the rock floor. Jessica pressed through toward her son. She felt that she swam in a sea of robed and stinking backs, a throng strangely silent. Now is the terrible moment, she thought. He has killed a man in clear superiority of mind and muscle. He must not grow to enjoy such a victory. She forced herself through the last of the troop and into a small open space, where two bearded Fremen were helping Paul into his stillsuit. Jessica stared at her son. Paul's eyes were bright. He breathed heavily, permitting the ministrations to his body rather than helping them. Him against Jamus, and not a mark on him, one of the men muttered. Cheney stood at one side, her eyes focused on Paul. Jessica saw the girl's excitement, the admiration in the elfin face. It must be done now, and swiftly, Jessica thought. She compressed ultimate scorn into her voice and manner, said, Well, now, how does it feel to be a killer? Paul stiffened as though he had been struck. He met his mother's cold glare, and his face darkened with a rush of blood. Involuntarily he glanced toward the place on the cavern floor where Jamis had lain. Stilgar pressed through to Jessica's side, returning from the cave depths where the body of Jamis had been taken. He spoke to Paul in a bitter, controlled tone. When the time comes for you to call me out and try for my murder, do not think you will play with me the way you played with Jamis. Jessica sensed the way her own words and Stilgar's sank into Paul, doing their harsh work on the boy. The mistake these people made, it served a purpose now. She searched the faces around them as Paul was doing, seeing what he saw. Admiration, yes, and fear, and in some, loathing. She looked at Stilgar, saw his fatalism, knew how the fight had seemed to him. Paul looked at his mother. You know what it was, he said. She heard the return to sanity, the remorse in his voice. Jessica swept her glance across the troop, said, Paul has never before killed a man with a naked blade. Stilgar faced her, disbelief in his face. I wasn't playing with him, Paul said. He pressed in front of his mother, straightening his robe, glanced at the dark place of Jamis's blood on the cavern floor. I did not want to kill him. Jessica saw belief come slowly to Stilgar, saw the relief in him as he tugged at his beard with a deeply veined hand. She heard muttering awareness spread through the troop. That's why you asked him to yield, Stilgar said. I see. Our ways are different, but you'll see the sense in them. I thought we'd admitted a scorpion into our midst. He hesitated then. And I shall not call you lad the more. A voice from the troop called out, Needs a naming still. Stilgar nodded, tugging at his beard. I see strength in you, 
like the strength beneath a pillar. Again he paused, then, You shall be known among us as Usul, the base of the pillar. This is your secret name, your troop name. We of C.H. Tabur may use it, but none other may so presume. Usul. Murmuring went through the troop. Good choice, that. Strong. Bring us luck. And Jessica sensed the acceptance, knowing she was included in it with her champion. She was indeed Sayadina. Now. What name of manhood do you choose for us to call you openly? Stilgar asked. Paul glanced at his mother, back to Stilgar. Bits and pieces of this moment registered on his prescient memory, but he felt the differences as though they were physical, a pressure forcing him through the narrow door of the present. How do you call among you the little mouse? The mouse that jumps? Paul asked remembering the pop-hop of motion at Tuono Basin. He illustrated with one hand. A chuckle sounded through the troop. We call that one Wadib, Stilgar said. Jessica gasped. It was the name Paul had told her, saying that the Fremen would accept them and call him thus. She felt a sudden fear of her son and for him. Paul swallowed. He felt that he played a part already played over countless times in his mind, yet there were differences. He could see himself perched on a dizzying summit, having experienced much and possessed of a profound store of knowledge, but all around him was abyss. And again he remembered the vision of fanatic legions following the green and black banner of the Atreides, pillaging and burning across the universe in the name of their prophet, Muad'Dib. That must not happen. He told himself. Is that the name you wish, Muad'Dib? Stilgar asked. I am an Atreides, Paul whispered, and then louder. It's not right that I give up entirely the name my father gave me. Could I be known among you as Paul Muad'Dib? You are Paul Muad'Dib, Stilgar said, and Paul thought that was in no vision of mine. I did a different thing but he felt that the abyss remained all around him. Again, a murmuring response went through the troop as man turned to man. Wisdom with strength couldn't ask more. It's the legend for sure. Lisan al-Gaib, Lisan al-Gaib. I will tell you a thing about your new name, Stilgar said. The choice pleases us. Wadib is wise in the ways of the desert. Wadib creates his own water. Wadib hides from the sun and travels in the cool night. Wadib is fruitful and multiplies over the land. Wadib we call instructor of boys. That is a powerful base on which to build your life, Paul Wadib, who is Usul among us. We welcome you. Stilgar touched Paul's forehead with one palm, withdrew his hand, embraced Paul and murmured, Usul. As Stilgar released him, another member of the troop embraced Paul, repeating his new troop name. And Paul was passed from embrace to embrace through the troop, hearing the voices, the shadings of tone, Usul, Usul, Usul. Already he could place some of them by name. And there was Cheney, who pressed her cheek against his as she held him, and said his name. Presently Paul stood again before Stilgar, who said, 
Now you are of the Ichwan Bedwine, our brother. His face hardened and he spoke with command in his voice. And now, Paul Muad'Dib, tighten up that still suit. He glanced at Cheney. Cheney, Paul Muad'Dib's nose plugs are as poor a fit I've ever seen. I thought I ordered you to see after him. I hadn't the makings still, she said. There's Jameis's, of course, but... Enough of that. Then I'll share one of mine, she said. I can make do with one until... You will not, Stilgar said. I know there are spares among us. Where are the spares? Are we a troop together or a band of savages? Hands reached out from the troop, offering hard, fibrous objects. Stilgar selected for, handed them to Cheney. Fit these to Usul and the Sardina. A voice lifted from the back of the troop. What of the water still? What are the Leterjons in their pack? I know your need, Farouk, Stilgar said. He glanced at Jessica. She nodded. Broach one for those that need it, Stilgar said. Watermaster, where is a watermaster? Ah, Shimum, care for the measuring of what is needed, the necessity, and no more. This water is the dour property of the Sayadina, and will be repaid in the Sietch at field rates less pack fees. What is the repayment at field rates? Jessica asked. Ten for one, Stilgar said. But it's a wise rule, as you'll come to see, Stilgar said. A rustling of robes marked movement at the back of the troop as men turned to get the water. Stilgar held up a hand and there was silence. As to Jamis, he said, I order the full ceremony. Jamis was our companion and brother of the each one Bedouin. There shall be no turning away without the respect due one who proved our fortune by his Tahadi challenge. I invoke the right at sunset when the dark shall cover him. Paul, hearing these words, realized that he had plunged once more into the abyss, blind time. There was no past occupying the future in his mind, except, except, he could still sense the green and black Atreides banner waving somewhere ahead, still see the jihad's bloody swords and fanatic legions. It will not be, he told himself. I cannot let it be. God created Arrakis to train the faithful. From the Wisdom of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. In the stillness of the cavern, Jessica heard the scrape of sand on rock as people moved, the distant bird calls that Stilgar had said were the signals of his watchmen. The great plastic hood seals had been removed from the cave's opening, she could see the march of evening shadows across the lip of rock in front of her and the open basin beyond. She sensed the daylight leaving them, sensed it in the dry heat as well as the shadows. She knew her trained awareness soon would give her what these Fremen obviously had, the ability to sense even the slightest change in the air's moisture. How they had scurried to tighten their still suits when the cave was opened. Deep within the cave, someone began chanting. Ima trava okolo, ikorenja okolo. Jessica translated silently. These are ashes, and these are roots. The funeral ceremony for Jamus was beginning. She looked out at the Arakeen sunset, at the banked decks of colour in the sky. Night was beginning to utter its shadows along the distant rocks and the dunes. Yet the heat persisted. 
Heat forced her thoughts onto water, and the observed fact that this whole people could be trained to be thirsty only at given times. Thirst. She could remember moonlit waves on Caladan throwing white robes over rocks, and the wind heavy with dampness. Now the breeze that fingered her robes seared the patches of exposed skin at cheeks and forehead. The new nose-plugs irritated her, and she found herself overly conscious of the tube that trailed down across her face into the suit, recovering her breath's moisture. The suit itself was a sweat-box. "'Your suit will be more comfortable when you've adjusted to a lower water content in your body,' Stilgar had said. She knew he was right.' But the knowledge made this moment no more comfortable. The unconscious preoccupation with water here weighed on her mind. No, she corrected herself. It was preoccupation with moisture, and that was a more subtle and profound matter. She heard approaching footsteps, turned to see Paul come out of the cave's depths, trailed by the elfin-faced Cheney. There's another thing, Jessica thought. Paul must be cautioned about their women. One of these desert women would not do as wife to a duke. As concubine, yes, but not as wife. Then she wondered at herself, thinking, Have I been infected with his schemes? And she saw how well she had been conditioned. I can think of the marital needs of royalty without once weighing my own concubinage. Yet, I was more than concubine. Mother, Paul stopped in front of her. Cheney stood at his elbow. Mother, do you know what they're doing back there? Jessica looked at the dark patch of his eyes staring out from the hood. I think so. Cheney showed me, because I'm supposed to see it and give my permission for the weighing of the water. Jessica looked at Cheney. They're recovering Jameis's water, Cheney said, and her thin voice came out nasal past the nose plugs. It's the rule. Their flesh belongs to the person, but his water belongs to the tribe, except in the combat. They say the water's mine, Paul said. Jessica wondered why this should make her suddenly alert and cautious. Combat water belongs to the winner, Cheney said. It's because you have to fight in the open without still suits. The winner has to get his water back that he loses while fighting. I don't want his water, Paul muttered. He felt that he was a part of many images moving simultaneously in a fragmenting way that was disconcerting to the inner eye. He could not be certain what he would do, but of one thing he was positive. He did not want the water distilled out of Jameis's flesh. It's water, Cheney said. Jessica marveled at the way she said it. Water. So much meaning in a simple sound. A Bene Gesserit axiom came to Jessica's mind. Survival is the ability to swim in strange water. And Jessica thought, Paul and I, we must find the currents and patterns in these strange waters, if we're to survive. You will accept the water, Jessica said. She recognized the tone in her voice. She had used that same tone once with Leto, telling her lost duke that he would accept a large sum offered for his support in a questionable venture, because money maintained power for the Atreides. On Arrakis, water was money. She saw that clearly. Paul remained silent, knowing then that he would do as she ordered, not because she ordered it, but because her tone of voice had forced him to re-evaluate. 
To refuse the water would be to break with accepted Fremen practice. Presently, Paul recalled the words of 467 Kalima in Yui's O.C. Bible. He said, From water does all life begin. Jessica stared at him. Where did he learn that quotation? She asked herself. He hasn't studied the mysteries. Thus it is spoken, Cheney said. Judisha Mantin, it is written in the Shonoma that water was the first of all things created. For no reason she could explain, and this bothered her more than the sensation, Jessica suddenly shuddered. She turned away to hide her confusion and was just in time to see the sunset. A violent calamity of colour spilled over the sky as the sun dipped beneath the horizon. It is time! The voice was Stilgar's ringing in the cavern. James's weapon has been killed. James has been called by him, by Shai Hulud, who has ordained the phases for the moons that daily wane and, in the end, appear as bent and withered twigs. Stilgar's voice lowered. Thus it is with James. Silence fell like a blanket on the cavern. Jessica saw the grey shadow movement of Stilgar like a ghost figure within the dark inner reaches. She glanced back at the basin, sensing the coolness. The friends of Jamis will approach, Stilgar said. Men moved behind Jessica, dropping a curtain across the opening. A single glow globe was lighted overhead far back in the cave. Its yellow globe picked out an inflowing of human figures. Jessica heard the rustling of the robes. Cheney took a step away as though pulled by the light. Jessica bent close to Paul's ear, speaking in the family code. Follow their lead. Do as they do. It will be a simple ceremony to placate the shade of Jamis. It will be more than that, Paul thought. And he felt a wrenching sensation within his awareness, as though he were trying to grasp something in motion and render it motionless. Cheney glided back to Jessica's side, took her hand. Come, Sidina, we must sit apart. Paul watched them move off into the shadows, leaving him alone. He felt abandoned. The men who had fixed the curtain came up beside him. Come, Usul. He allowed himself to be guided forward, to be pushed into a circle of people being formed around Stilgar, who stood beneath the glow globe and beside a bundled, curving, and angular shape gathered beneath a robe on the rock floor. The troop crouched down at a gesture from Stilgar, their robes hissing with the movement. Paul settled with them, watching Stilgar, noting the way the overhead globe made pits of his eyes and brightened the touch of green fabric at his neck. Paul shifted his attention to the robe-covered mound at Stilgar's feet, recognized the handle of a baliset protruding from the fabric. The spirit leaves the body's water when the first moon rises, Stilgar intoned. Thus it is spoken. When we see the first moon rise this night, whom will it summon? Jamis, the troop responded. Stilgar turned full circle on one heel, passing his gaze across the ring of faces. I was a friend of Jamis, he said. When the hawk plane stooped upon us at Hole in the Rock, it was Jamis pulled me to safety. He bent over the pile beside him, lifted away the robe. I take this robe as a friend of Jamis's. Leader's right, he draped the robe over a shoulder, straightening. 
Now, Paul saw the contents of the mound exposed, the pale, glistening grey of a still suit, a battered leterjohn, a kerchief with a small book in its centre, the bladeless handle of a crisp knife, an empty sheath, a folded pack, a paracompass, a distrans, a thumper, a pile of fist-sized metallic hooks, an assortment of what looked like small rocks within a fold of cloth, a clump of bundled feathers, and the baliset exposed beside the folded pack. So Jamis played the baliset, Paul thought. The instrument reminded him of Gurney Halleck and all that was lost. Paul knew with his memory of the future in the past that some chance lines could produce a meeting with Halleck, but the reunions were few and shadowed. They puzzled him. The uncertainty factor touched him with wonder. Does it mean that something I will do, that I may do, could destroy Gurney? Or bring him back to life? Or... Paul swallowed, shook his head. Again, Stilgar bent over the mound. For James's woman and for the guards, he said. The small rocks and the book were taken into the folds of his robe. Leader's right, the troop intoned. The marker for James's coffee service, Stilgar said, and he lifted a flat disc of green metal. That it shall be given to Usul in suitable ceremony when we return to the Siege. Leader's right, the troop intoned. Lastly, he took the Chris knife handle and stood with it. For the funeral plane, he said. For the funeral plane, the troop responded. At her place in the circle across from Paul, Jessica nodded, recognizing the ancient source of the rite, and she thought, the meeting between ignorance and knowledge, between brutality and culture, it begins in the dignity with which we treat our dead. She looked across at Paul, wondering, will he see it? Will he know what to do? We are friends of Jamis, Stilgar said. We are not wailing for our dead like a pack of Garvarg. A grey-bearded man to Paul's left stood up. I was a friend of Jamis, he said. He crossed to the mound, lifted the distrans. When our water went below Minim at the siege of two brids, Jamis shared. The man returned to his place in the circle. Am I supposed to say I was a friend of Jamis? Paul wondered. Do they expect me to take something from that pile? He saw faces turn toward him, turn away. They do expect it. Another man across from Paul arose, went to the pack and removed the paracompass. I was a friend of Jamis, he said. When the patrol caught us at bite of the cliff and I was wounded, Jamis drew them off so the wounded could be saved. He returned to his place in the circle. Again the faces turned toward Paul, and he saw the expectancy in them, lowered his eyes. An elbow nudged him, and a voice hissed, Would you bring the destruction on us? How can I say I was his friend? Paul wondered. Another figure arose from the circle opposite Paul, and as the hooded face came into the light, he recognized his mother. She removed a kerchief from the mount. I was a friend of Jamus, she said, when the spirit of spirits within him saw the needs of truth, that spirit withdrew and spared my son. She returned to her place, and Paul recalled the scorn in his mother's voice as she had confronted him after the fight. How does it feel to be a killer? Again he saw the faces turned toward him, felt the anger and fear in the troop. A passage his mother had once film-booked for him on The Cult of the Dead flickered through Paul's mind. 
He knew what he had to do. Slowly, Paul got to his feet. A sigh passed around the circle. Paul felt the diminishment of his self as he advanced into the centre of the circle. It was as though he lost a fragment of himself and sought it here. He bent over the mound of belongings, lifted out the baliset. A string twanged softly as it struck against something in the pile. I was a friend of Jamis, Paul whispered. He felt tears burning his eyes, forced more volume into his voice. Jamis taught me that when you kill, you pay for it. I wish I'd known Jamis better. Blindly, he groped his way back to his place in the circle, sank to the rock floor. A voice hissed. He sheds tears. It was taken up around the ring. Usul gives moisture to the dead. He felt fingers touch his damp cheek, heard the awed whispers. Jessica, hearing the voices, felt the depth of the experience, realized what terrible inhibitions there must be against shedding tears. She focused on the words, He gives moisture to the dead. It was a gift to the shadow world. Tears. They would be sacred beyond a doubt. Nothing on this planet had so forcefully hammered into her the ultimate value of water. Not the water cellars, not the dried skins of the natives, not still suits or the rules of water discipline. Here there was a substance more precious than all others. It was life itself, and entwined all around with symbolism and ritual. Water. I touched his cheek, someone whispered. I felt the gift. At first, the fingers touching his face frightened Paul. He clutched the cold handle of the baliset, feeling the strings bite his palm. Then he saw the faces beyond the groping hands, the eyes wide and wondering. Presently, the hands withdrew. The funeral ceremony resumed. But now there was a subtle space around Paul, a drawing back as the troop honored him by a respectful isolation. The ceremony ended with a low chant. Full moon calls thee, Shai Hulud shalt thou see, Red the night, dusky sky, Bloody death didst thou die. We pray to a moon, she is round, Luck with us will then abound, What we seek for shall be found In the land of solid ground. A bulging sack remained at Stilgar's feet, he crouched, placed his palms against it. Someone came up beside him, crouched at his elbow, and Paul recognized Cheney's face in the hood shadow. Jamis carried thirty-three liters and seven and three thirty-seconds drams of the tribe's water, Cheney said. I bless it now in the presence of a Saedina. Ekeri Akairi, this is the water. Philicine Folasi of Paul Mwad Dib. Kivi Akavi. Never the more, Nagalas, Nakelas, to be measured and counted. Ukairan by the heart beats Jean, Jean, Jean of our friend, Jemis. In an abrupt and profound silence, Cheney turned, stared at Paul. Presently she said, Where I am flame, be thou the coals. Where I am dew, be thou the water. 
Bilal Kaifa, intoned the troop. To Mpol Muad'Dib goes this portion, Cheney said. May he guard it for the tribe, preserving it against careless loss. May he be generous with it in time of need. May he pass it on in his time for the good of the tribe. Bilal Kaifa, intoned the troop. I must accept that water, Paul thought. Slowly he arose, made his way to Cheney's side. Silgar stepped back to make room for him, took the baliset gently from his hand. Kneel, Cheney said. Paul knelt. She guided his hands to the water bag, held them against the resilient surface. With this water the tribe entrusts thee, she said. Jamis is gone from it. Take it in peace. She stood, pulling Paul up with her. Stilgar returned the baliset, extended a small pile of metal rings in one palm. Paul looked at them, seeing the different sizes, the way the light of the glow-globe reflected off them. Cheney took the largest ring, held it on a finger. Thirty litres, she said. One by one she took the others, showing each to Paul, counting them. Two litres, one litre, seven water-counters of one drachm each. One water counter of three thirty-seconds drachms. In all, thirty-three litres and seven and three thirty-seconds drachms. She held them up on her finger for Paul to see. Do you accept them? Stilgar asked. Paul swallowed, nodded. Yes. Later, Cheney said, I will show you how to tie them in a kerchief so they won't rattle and give you away when you need silence. She extended her hand. Will you hold them for me? Paul asked. Cheney turned a startled glance on Stilgar. He smiled, said, Paul Muad'Dib, who is Usul, does not yet know our ways, Cheney. Hold his water counters without commitment until it's time to show him the manner of carrying them. She nodded, whipped a ribbon of cloth from beneath her robe, linked the rings onto it with an intricate over-and-under weaving, hesitated, then stuffed them into the sash beneath her robe. I missed something there, Paul thought. He sensed the feeling of humour around him, something bantering in it, and his mind linked up a prescient memory. What counters offered to a woman, courtship ritual. Watermasters, Stilgar said. The troop arose in a hissing of robes. Two men stepped out, lifted the water bag. Stilgar took down the glow globe, led the way with it into the depths of the cave. Paul was pressed in behind Cheney, noted the buttery glow of light over rock walls, the way the shadows danced, and he felt the troop's lift of spirits contained in a hush air of expectancy. Jessica pulled into the end of the troop by eager hands, hemmed around by jostling bodies, suppressed a moment of panic. She had recognized fragments of the ritual, identified the shards of Chakobsa and Botani Jib in the words, and she knew the wild violence that could explode out of these seemingly simple moments. Jean, 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 she thought. Go, go, go. It was like a child's game that had lost all inhibition in adult hands. Stilgar stopped at a yellow rock wall. He pressed an outcropping and the wall swung silently away from him, opening along an irregular crack. He led the way through past a dark honeycomb lattice that directed a cool wash of air across Paul when he passed it. Paul turned a questioning stare on Cheney, tugged her arm. 
That air felt damp, he said. Shh, she whispered. But a man behind them said, Plenty of moisture in the trap tonight. James's way of telling us he's satisfied. Jessica passed through the secret door, heard it close behind. She saw how the Fremen slowed while passing the honeycomb lattice, felt the dampness of the air as she came opposite it. Wind trap, she thought. They've a concealed wind trap somewhere on the surface to funnel air down here into cooler regions and precipitate the moisture from it. They passed through another rock door with latticework above it, and the door closed behind them. The draught of air at their backs carried a sensation of moisture clearly perceptible to both Jessica and Paul. At the head of the troop, the glow globe in Stilgar's hands dropped below the level of the heads in front of Paul. Presently he felt steps beneath his feet, curving down to the left. A light reflected back up across hooded heads and a winding movement of people spiralling down the steps. Jessica sensed mounting tension in the people around her, a pressure of silence that rasped her nerves with its urgency. The steps ended and the troop passed through another low door. The light of the glow globe was swallowed in a great open space with a high, curved ceiling. Paul felt Cheney's hand on his arm, heard a faint dripping sound in the chill air, felt an utter stillness come over the Fremen in the cathedral presence of water. I have seen this place in a dream, he thought. The thought was both reassuring and frustrating. Somewhere ahead of him on this path, the fanatic hordes cut their gory path across the universe in his name. The green and black Atreides banner would become a symbol of terror. Wild legions would charge into battle, screaming their war cry, Wadib! It must not be, he thought. I cannot let it happen. But he could feel the demanding race consciousness within him, his own terrible purpose, and he knew that no small thing could deflect the juggernaut. It was gathering weight and momentum. If he died this instant, the thing would go on through his mother and his unborn sister. Nothing less than the deaths of all the troop gathered here, and now, himself and his mother included, could stop the thing. Paul stared around him, saw the troop spread out in a line. They pressed him forward against a low barrier carved from native rock. Beyond the barrier, in the glow of Stilgar's globe, Paul saw an unruffled dark surface of water. It stretched away into shadows, deep and black, the far wall only faintly visible, perhaps a hundred metres away. Jessica felt the dry pulling of skin on her cheeks and forehead, relaxing in the presence of moisture. The water pool was deep. She could sense its deepness and resisted a desire to dip her hands into it. A splashing sounded on her left. She looked down the shadowy line of Fremen, saw Stilgar with Paul standing beside him and the watermasters emptying their load into the pool through a flow meter. The meter was a round grey eye above the pool's rim. She saw its glowing pointer move as the water flowed through it, saw the pointer stop at thirty-three litres, seven and three thirty-seconds drachms. Superb accuracy in water measurement, Jessica thought and she noted that the walls of the meter trough held no trace of moisture after the water's passage. The water flowed off those walls without binding tension. She saw a profound clue to Fremen technology in the simple fact. They were perfectionists. Jessica worked her way down the barrier to Stilgar's side. Way was made for her with casual courtesy. 
She noted the withdrawn look in Paul's eyes, but the mystery of this great pool of water dominated her thoughts. Stilgar looked at her. There were those among us in need of water, he said, yet they would come here and not touch this water. Do you know that? I believe it, she said. He looked at the pool. We have more than thirty-eight million decaliters here, he said, walled off from the little makers, hidden and preserved. A treasure trove, she said. Stilgar lifted the globe to look into her eyes. It is greater than treasure. We have thousands of such caches. Only a few of us know them all. He cocked his head to one side. The globe cast a yellow shadowed glow across face and beard. Hear that? They listened. The dripping of water precipitated from the wind trap filled the room with its presence. Jessica saw that the entire troop was caught up in a rapture of listening. Only Paul seemed to stand remote from it. To Paul, the sound was like moments ticking away. He could feel time flowing through him, the instance never to be recaptured. He sensed a need for decision, but felt powerless to move. It has been calculated with precision, Stilgar whispered. We know, to within a million decaliters, how much we need. When we have it, we shall change the face of Arrakis. A hushed whisper of response lifted from the troop. Bilal Kaifa! We will trap the dunes beneath grass plantings, Stilgar said, his voice growing stronger. We will tie the water into the soil with trees and undergrowth. Bilal Kaifa, intoned the troop. Each year the polar ice retreats, Stilgar said. Bilal Kaifa, they chanted. We shall make a homeworld of Arrakis, with melting lenses at the poles, with lakes in the temperate zones, and only the deep desert for the maker and his spice. Bilal Kaifa! And no man ever again shall want for water. It shall be his for dipping from well or pond or lake or canal. It shall run down through the canats to feed our plants. It shall be there for any man to take. It shall be his for holding out his hand. Bilal Kaifa! Jessica felt the religious ritual in the words, noted her own instinctively awed response. They're in league with the future, she thought. They have their mountain to climb. This is the scientist's dream, and these simple people, these peasants, are filled with it. Her thoughts turned to Liet Kynes, the emperor's planetary ecologist, the man who had gone native, and she wondered at him. This was a dream to capture men's souls, and she could sense the hand of the ecologist in it. This was a dream for which men would die willingly, it was another of the essential ingredients that she felt her son needed, people with a goal. Such people would be easy to imbue with fervor and fanaticism. They could be wielded like a sword to win back Paul's place for him. We leave now, Stilgar said, and wait for the first moon's rising. When Jameis is safely on his way, we will go home. Whispering their reluctance, the troop fell in behind him, turned back along the water barrier, and up the stairs. And Paul, walking behind Cheney, felt that a vital moment had passed him, that he had missed an essential decision and was now caught up in his own myth. 
He knew he had seen this place before, experienced it in a fragment of prescient dream on faraway Caladan, but details of the place were being filled in now that he had not seen. He felt a new sense of wonder at the limits of his gift. It was as though he rode within the wave of time, sometimes in its trough, sometimes on a crest, and all around him the other waves lifted and fell, revealing and then hiding what they bore on their surface. Through it all, the wild jihad still loomed ahead of him, the violence and the slaughter. It was like a promontory above the surf. The troop filed through the last door into the main cavern. The door was sealed. Lights were extinguished, hoods removed from the cavern openings, revealing the night and the stars that had come over the desert. Jessica moved to the dry lip of the cavern's edge, looked up at the stars. They were sharp and near. She felt the stirring of the troop around her, heard the sound of a baliset being tuned somewhere behind her, and Paul's voice humming the pitch. There was a melancholy in his tone that she did not like. Cheney's voice intruded from the deep cave darkness. Tell me about the waters of your birth world, Paul Mardib. And Paul, another time, Cheney. I promise. Such sadness. It's a good baliset, Cheney said. Very good, Paul said. Do you think Jamis will mind my using it? He speaks of the dead in the present tense, Jessica thought. The implications disturbed her. A man's voice intruded. He liked music betimes, Jamis did. Then sing me one of your songs, Cheney pleaded. Such feminine allure in that girl-child's voice, Jessica thought. I must caution Paul about their women. And soon... This was a song of a friend of mine, Paul said. I expect he's dead now, Gurney is. He called it his even song. The troop grew still, listened as Paul's voice lifted in a sweet boy tenor with the baliset tinkling and strumming beneath it. This clear time of seeing embers, a gold-bright sun's lost in first dusk, what frenzied senses, desperate musk, are consort of remembering. Jessica felt the verbal music in her breast, pagan and charged with sounds that made her suddenly and intensely aware of herself, feeling her own body and its needs. She listened with a tense stillness. Night's pearl-censored requiem, tis for us. What joys run, then, bright in your eyes? What flower-spangled amores pull at our hearts? What flower-spangled amores fill our desires? and Jessica heard the after-stillness that hummed in the air with the last note. Why does my son sing a love song to that girl child? she asked herself. She felt an abrupt fear. She could sense life flowing around her, and she had no grasp on its reins. Why did he choose that song? she wondered. The instincts are true sometimes. Why did he do this? Paul sat silently in the darkness, a single stark thought dominating his awareness. My mother is my enemy. She does not know it, but she is. She is bringing the jihad. She bore me. She trained me. She is my enemy. The concept of progress acts as a protective mechanism to shield us from the terrors of the future. From Collected Sayings of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan.
On his 17th birthday, Fade Rautha Harkonnen killed his 100th slave gladiator in the family games. Visiting observers from the imperial court, a count and Lady Fenring were on the Harkonnen homeworld of Gedi Prime for the event, invited to sit that afternoon with the immediate family in the golden box above the triangular arena. In honor of the Narbaran's nativity, and to remind all Harkonnens and subjects that Fade Rautha was heir-designate, it was holiday on Gedi Prime. The old baron had decreed a meridian-to-meridian -meridian rest from labors, and effort had been spent in the family city of Harko to create the illusion of gaiety. Banners flew from buildings, new paint had been splashed on the walls along Court Way. But off the main way, Count Fenring and his lady noted the rubbish heaps, the scabrous brown walls reflected in the dark puddles of the streets, and the furtive scurrying of the people. In the baron's blue-walled keep there was fearful perfection, but the count and his lady saw the price being paid, guards everywhere, and weapons with that special sheen that told a trained eye they were in regular use. There were checkpoints for routine passage from area to area even within the keep. The servants revealed their military training in the way they walked, in the set of their shoulders, in the way their eyes watched and watched and watched. The pressure's on, the Count hummed to his lady in their secret language. The Baron is just beginning to see the price he really paid to rid himself of the Duke Leto. Sometimes I must recount for you the legend of the Phoenix, she said. They were in the reception hall of the keep, waiting to go to the family games. It was not a large hall, perhaps forty metres long and half that in width, but false pillars along the sides had been shaped with an abrupt taper, and the ceiling had a subtle arch, all giving the illusion of much greater space. Ah, here comes the Baron, the Count said. The Baron moved down the length of the hall with that peculiar, waddling glide imparted by the necessities of guiding suspenser-hung weight. His jowls bobbed up and down, the suspensers jiggled and shifted beneath his orange robe. Rings glittered on his hands, and opifiers shone where they had been woven into the robe. At the Baron's elbow walked Fade Rautha. His dark hair was dressed in close ringlets that seemed incongruously gay above sullen eyes. He wore a tight-fitting black tunic and snug trousers with a suggestion of bell at the bottom. Soft-soled slippers covered his small feet. Lady Fenring, noting the young man's poise and the sure flow of muscles beneath the tunic, thought, Here's one who won't let himself go to fat. The Baron stopped in front of them, took Fade Rautha's arm in a possessive grip, said, My nephew, the Narbaron Fade Rautha Harkonnen. And turning his baby fat face toward Fade Rautha, he said, The Count and Lady Fenring of whom I've spoken. Fade Rautha dipped his head with the required courtesy. He stared at the Lady Fenring. She was golden-haired and willowy, her perfection of figure clothed in a flowing gown of écru, simple fitness of form without ornament. Grey-green eyes stared back at him. She had that Bene Gesserit, serene repose about her that the young man found subtly disturbing. <coughs> said the Count. He studied Fade Rautha. The um, um, precise young man, uh, my... Hmm, dear, the Count glanced at the Baron. 
My dear Baron, you say you've spoken of us to this precise young man. What did you say? I told my nephew of the great esteem our emperor holds for you, Count Fenring, the Baron said, and he thought, mark him well, Fade, a killer with the manners of a rabbit, this is the most dangerous kind. Of course, said the Count, and he smiled at his lady. Fade Rother found the man's actions and words almost insulting. They stopped just short of something overt that would require notice. The young man focused his attention on the Count, a small man, weak-looking. The face was weaselish with overlarge dark eyes that was grey at the temples, and his movements. He moved a hand or turned his head one way, then he spoke another way. It was difficult to follow. Um, 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 ah, um, 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 you come upon such um, um, preciseness so rarely, the Count said, addressing the Baron's shoulder. I uh, congratulate you on the um, 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 perfection of your uh, air, in the light of the um, um, elder, one might say. You are too kind, the Baron said. He bowed, but Fade Rother noted that his uncle's eyes did not agree with the courtesy. When you're um, um, ironic, that uh, suggests you're um, um, thinking deep thoughts, the Count said. There he goes again, Fade Rother thought. It sounds like he's being insulting, but there's nothing you can call out for satisfaction. Listening to the man gave Fade Rother the feeling his head was being pushed through mush. Um, 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 um. Fade Rother turned his attention back to the Lady Fenring. We're uh, taking up too much of this young man's time, she said. I understand he is to appear in the arena today. By the Huris of the Imperial Harim, she's a lovely one, Fayed Rather thought. He said, I shall make a kill for you this day, my lady. I shall make the dedication in the arena with your permission. She returned his stare serenely, but her voice carried whiplash as she said, You do not have my permission. Fade, the baron said, and he thought, that imp, does he want this deadly count to call him out? But the count only smiled and said, hum, 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 hum. You really must be getting ready for the arena, Fade, the baron said. You must be rested, not take any foolish risks. Fade Rather bowed, his face dark with resentment. I'm sure everything will be as you wish, uncle, he nodded to Count Fenring. Sir, to the lady, my lady, and he turned, strode out of the hall, barely glancing at the knot of families minor near the double doors. He's so young, the baron sighed. Um, um, um ah, indeed, hm, the count said. And the lady Fenring thought, can that be the young man the reverend mother meant? Is that a bloodline we must preserve? We've more than an hour before going to the arena the baron said. Perhaps we could have our little talk now, Count Fenring. He tipped his gross head to the right. There's a considerable amount of progress to be discussed. And the baron thought, let us see now how the emperor's errand boy gets across whatever message he carries, without ever being so crass as to speak it right out. The count spoke to his lady. Um, 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 uh, um, you um, um, will uh, excuse us, my dear. Each day, sometime each hour, brings change, she said. Mm-hmm. 
and she smiled sweetly at the Baron before turning away. Her long skirts swished, and she walked with a straight-backed, regal stride toward the double doors at the end of the hall. The Baron noted how all conversation among the houses minor there stopped at her approach, how the eyes followed her. Bene Gesserit, the Baron thought. The universe would be better rid of them all. There's a cone of silence between two of the pillars over here on our left, the Baron said. We can talk there without fear of being overheard. He led the way with his waddling gait into the sound-deadening field, feeling the noises of the keep become dull and distant. The Count moved up beside the Baron, and they turned, facing the wall so their lips could not be read. Mm, we're not satisfied with the way you ordered the Sardaukar off Arrakis. Straight talk, the Baron thought. The Sardaukar could not stay longer without risking that others would find out how the Emperor helped me. Mm, but your nephew, Raban, does not appear to be uh, pressing strongly enough toward a solution of the Fremen problem. What does the Emperor wish? There cannot be more than a handful of Fremen left on Arrakis. The southern desert is uninhabitable. The northern desert is swept regularly by our patrols. Ah, uh, who says the southern desert is mm, uninhabitable? Your own planetologist said it, my dear Count. But Dr. Kynes is dead. Ah, yes. Unfortunate, that. We've word from an overflight across the southern reaches. Uh, there's evidence of plant life. Has the guild then agreed to a watch from space? Hmm, you know better than that, Baron. The Emperor cannot legally post a watch on Arrakis. And I cannot afford it. Who made this overflight? A, uh, smuggler. Someone has lied to you, Count. Smugglers cannot navigate the southern reaches any better than can Raban's men. Storm, sand static, and all that, you know. Navigation markers are knocked out faster than they can be installed. Hmm, we'll discuss various types of static, uh, another time. Ah, the Baron thought. Have you found some mistake in my accounting, then? When you imagine mistakes, there can be no self-defense. He's deliberately trying to arouse my anger, the Baron thought. He took two deep breaths to calm himself. He could smell his own sweat, and the harness of the suspensers beneath his robe felt suddenly itchy and galling. The Emperor cannot be unhappy about the death of the concubine and the boy. They fled into the desert. There was a storm. Yes. There were so many convenient accidents. I do not like your tone, Count. Mm, anger is one thing, violence another. Let me caution you. Should an unfortunate accident uh, occur to me here, the great houses all would learn what you did on Arrakis. They've long suspected how you do business. The only recent business I can recall was the transportation of several legions of Sardaukar to Arrakis. You think you could hold that over the Emperor's head? I wouldn't think of it. Sardaukar commanders could be found who'd confess they acted without orders because they uh, wanted a battle with your Fremen scum. 
Many might doubt such a confession. The threat staggered the Baron. Are Sardaukar truly that disciplined? he wondered. The Emperor does wish to audit your books. Any time. You, uh, have no objections? None. My Chom Company directorship will bear the closest scrutiny. And he thought, let him bring a false accusation against me and have it exposed. I shall stand there, Promethean, saying, behold me, I am wronged. Then let him bring any other accusation against me, even a true one. The great houses will not believe a second attack from an accuser once proved wrong. No doubt your books will bear the closest scrutiny. Why is the Emperor so interested in exterminating the Fremen? You wish the subject to be changed, eh? It is the Sardaukar who wish it, not the Emperor. They uh, needed practice in killing, and they hate to see a task left undone. Does he think to frighten me by reminding me that he is supported by bloodthirsty killers? The Baron wondered. A certain amount of killing has always been an arm of business. But a line has to be drawn somewhere. Someone must be left to work the spice. Ha! You think you can harness the Fremen? There never were enough of them for that. But the killing has made the rest of my population uneasy. It's reaching the point where I'm considering another solution to the Arakeen problem, my dear Fenring. And I must confess the Emperor deserves credit for the inspiration. Ah? You see, Count, I have the Emperor's prison planet, Seleucus Secundus, to inspire me. The Count stared at him with glittering intensity. What possible connection is there between uh, Arrakis and Seleucus Secundus? The Baron felt the alertness in Fenring's eyes. No connection yet. Yet? You must admit, it'd be a way to develop a substantial workforce on Arrakis, use the place as a prison planet. Mm, you anticipate an increase in prisoners? There has been unrest. I've had to squeeze rather severely, Fenring. After all, you know the price I paid that damnable guild to transport our mutual force to Arrakis? That money has to come from somewhere. I suggest you not use Arrakis as a prison planet without the Emperor's permission, Baron. Of course not. Another matter. We learned that Duke Leto's Mentat, Thufir Hawat, is not dead, but in your employ. I could not bring myself to waste him. You lied to our Sardaukar commander when you said Hawat was dead. Only a white lie, my dear Count. I hadn't the stomach for a long argument with the man. Mm, was Hawat the real traitor? Oh, goodness, no. It was the false doctor. The Baron wiped at perspiration on his neck. You must understand, Fenring. I was without a Mentat. You know that. I've never been without a Mentat. It was most unsettling. How could you get Hawat to shift allegiance? His duke was dead. The Baron forced a smile. There is nothing to fear from Howard, my dear Count. The Mentat's flesh has been impregnated with a latent poison. We administer an antidote in his meals. Without the antidote, the poison is triggered. He'd die in a few days. Hmm, withdraw the antidote. But he's useful. 
And he knows too many things no living man should know. You said the Emperor doesn't fear exposure. Don't play games with me, Baron. When I see such an order above the Imperial Seal, I'll obey it. But I'll not submit to your whim. Mm, you think it whim? What else can it be? The Emperor has obligations to me too, Fenring. I rid him of the troublesome Duke. With the help of a few Sardaukar. Where else would the Emperor have found a house to provide the disguising uniforms to hide his hand in this matter? He has asked himself the same question, Baron, but with a slightly different emphasis. The Baron studied Fenring, noting the stiffness of jaw muscles, the careful control. Ah, now, I hope the Emperor doesn't believe he can move against me in total secrecy. He hopes it won't, uh, become necessary. The Emperor cannot believe I threaten him. The Baron permitted anger and grief to edge his voice, thinking, Let him wrong me in that. I could place myself on the throne while still beating my breast over how I'd been wronged. The Emperor believes what his senses tell him. Dare the Emperor charge me with treason before a full Landsrod Council? And the Baron held his breath with the hope of it. The Emperor need dare nothing. The Baron whirled away in his suspensers to hide his expression. It could happen in my lifetime, he thought. Emperor, let him wrong me. Then, the bribes and coercion, the rallying of the great houses, they flock to my banner like peasants running for shelter. The thing they'd fear above all else is the Emperor's Sardaka loosed upon them one house at a time. It's the Emperor's sincere hope, uh, he'll never have to charge you with treason. The Baron found it difficult to keep irony out of his voice and permit only the expression of hurt. But he managed. I've been a most loyal subject. These words hurt me beyond my capacity to express. Uh-huh. It's time to go to the arena. Indeed. They moved out of the cone of silence and, side by side, walked toward the clumps of houses minor at the end of the hall. A bell began a slow tolling somewhere in the keep, twenty-minute warning for the arena gathering. The houses minor wait for you to lead them, the Count said, nodding toward the people they approached. Double meaning, double meaning, the Baron thought. He looked up at the new talismans flanking the exit to his hall, the mounted bull's head, and the oil painting of the old Duke Atreides, the late Duke Leto's father. They filled the Baron with an odd sense of foreboding and he wondered what thoughts these talismans had inspired in the Duke Leto as they hung in the halls of Caladan and then on Arrakis, the Bravura father and the head of the bull that had killed him. Mankind has uh, only one mm, science, the Count said as they picked up their parade of followers and emerged from the hall into the waiting room, a narrow space with high windows and floor of patterned white and purple tile. And what science is that? the Baron asked. It's the, um, uh, science of, uh, discontent, the Count said. 
The houses minor behind them, sheep-faced and responsive, laughed with just the right tone of appreciation, but the sound carried a note of discord as it collided with the sudden blast of motors that came to them when pages threw open the outer doors, revealing the line of ground cars, their guidon pennants whipping in a breeze. The baron raised his voice to surmount the sudden noise, said, I hope we'll not be discontented with the performance of my nephew today, Count Fenring. I, uh, am filled, um, mm, only with a, mm, mm, sense of anticipation, yes, the Count said. Always in the, ha uh, ha process verbal, one, um, uh, must consider the, uh, office of origin. The Baron did his sudden stiffening of surprise by stumbling on the first step down from the exit. Process verbal. That was a report of a crime against the Imperium. But the Count chuckled to make it seem a joke, and patted the Baron's arm. All the way to the arena, though, the Baron sat back among the armoured cushions of his car, casting covert glances at the Count beside him, wondering why the Emperor's errand-boy had thought it necessary to make that particular kind of joke in front of the house's minor. It was obvious that Fenring seldom did anything he felt to be unnecessary, or used two words where one would do or held himself to a single meaning in a single phrase. They were seated in the golden box above the triangular arena, horns blaring, the tears above and around them jammed with a hubbub of people and waving pennants, when the answer came to the Baron. "'My dear Baron,' the Count said, leaning close to his ear, "'you know, don't you, that the Emperor has not given official sanction to your choice of heir?' The Baron felt himself to be within a sudden personal cone of silence, produced by his own shock. He stared at Fenring, barely seeing the Count's lady come through the guards beyond to join the party in the golden box. "'That's really why I'm here today,' the Count said. "'The Emperor wishes me to report on whether you've chosen a worthy successor. There's nothing like the arena to expose the true person from beneath the mask, eh?' The Emperor promised me free choice of heir, the Baron grated. We shall see, Fenring said, and turned away to greet his lady. She sat down, smiling at the Baron, then giving her attention to the sand floor beneath them, where Fade Rother was emerging in gilles and tights, the black glove and the long knife in his right hand, the white glove and the short knife in his left hand. White for poison, black for purity, the Lady Fenring said. A curious custom, isn't it, my love? Um, 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 the Count said. The greeting cheer lifted from the family galleries, and Fade Rother paused to accept it, looking up and scanning the faces, seeing his cousine and cousins, the demi-brothers, the concubines, and outfrain relations. They were so many pink trumpet mouths yammering amidst a flutter of colourful clothing and banners. It came to Fade Rother then that the packed ranks of faces would look just as avidly at his blood as at that of the slave gladiator. There was not a doubt of the outcome in this fight, of course. Here was only the form of danger without its substance. Fade Rother held up his knives to the sun, saluted the three corners of the arena in the ancient manner. The short knife in white-gloved hand, white, the sign of poison, went first into its sheath. 
Then the long blade in the black-gloved hand, the pure blade that now was unpure, his secret weapon to turn this day into a purely personal victory, poison on the black blade. The adjustment of his body shield took only a moment, and he paused to sense the skin tightening at his forehead, assuring him he was properly guarded. This moment carried its own suspense, and Fade Rother dragged it out with a sure hand of a showman, nodding to his handlers and distractors, checking their equipment with a measuring stare, gyves in place with their prickles sharp and glistening, the barbs and hooks weaving with their blue streamers. Fade Rother signalled the musicians. The slow march began, sonorous with its ancient pomp, and Fade Rother led his troop across the arena for obeisance at the foot of his uncle's box. He caught the ceremonial key as it was thrown. The music stopped. Into the abrupt silence, he stepped back two paces, raised the key, and shouted, I dedicate this truth to... And he paused, knowing his uncle would think, The young fool's going to dedicate to Lady Fenring after all and cause a ruckus. To my uncle and patron... The Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, Fade Rother shouted. He was delighted to see his uncle sigh. The music resumed at the quick march, and Fade Rother led his men scampering back across the arena to the prudence door that admitted only those wearing the proper identification band. Fade Rother prided himself that he never used the prude door and seldom needed distractors, but it was good to know they were available this day. Special plans sometimes involved special dangers. Again, silence settled over the arena. Fade Rather turned, faced the big red door across from him through which the gladiator would emerge. The special gladiator. The plan Thufir Hawat had devised was admirably simple and direct, Fade Rather thought. The slave would not be drugged. That was the danger. Instead, a key word had been drummed into the man's unconscious to immobilize his muscles at a critical instant. Fade Rother rolled the vital word in his mind, mouthing it without sound. Scum. To the audience it would appear that an undrugged slave had been slipped into the arena to kill the Nar Baron, and all the carefully arranged evidence would point to the slave master. A low humming arose from the Red Door's servo motors as they were armed for opening. Fade Rother focused all his awareness on the door. This first moment was the critical one. The appearance of the gladiator as he emerged told the trained eye much it needed to know. All gladiators were supposed to be hyped on Elaka drug to come out kill-ready in fighting stance, but you had to watch how they hefted the knife, which way they turned in defense, whether they were actually aware of the audience in the stands. The way a slave cocked his head could give the most vital clue to counter and feint. The red door slammed open. Out charged a tall, muscular man with shaved head and darkly pitted eyes. His skin was carrot-coloured, as it should be from the Alaka drug, but Fade Rother knew the colour was paint. The slave wore green leotards and the red belt of a semi-shield, the belt's arrow pointing left, to indicate the slave's left side was shielded. He held his knife sword-fashion, cocked slightly outward in the stance of a trained fighter. Slowly he advanced into the arena, turning his shielded side toward Fade Rather and the group at the Prudor. I like not the look of this one, said one of Fade Rather's barbmen. Are you sure he's drugged, my lord? He has the colour, Fade Rather said, 
yet he stands like a fighter, said another helper. Phaedrather advanced two steps onto the sand, studied this slave. What has he done to his arm? asked one of the distractors. Phaedrather's attention went to a bloody scratch on the man's left forearm, followed the arm down to the hand as it pointed to a design drawn in blood on the left hip of the green leotards, a wet shape there, the formalized outline of a hawk. Hawk! Phaedrather looked up into the darkly pitted eyes, saw them glaring at him with uncommon alertness. It's one of Duke Leto's fighting men we took on Arrakis, Phaedratha thought. No simple gladiator this. A chill ran through him, and he wondered if Howard had another plan for this arena, a feint within a feint within a feint, and only the slave master prepared to take the blame. Phaedratha's chief handler spoke at his ear. I like not the look on that one, my lord. Let me set a barb or two in his knife arm to try him. I'll set my own barbs, Phaedratha said. He took a pair of the long, hooked shafts from the handler, hefted them, testing the balance. These barbs, too, were supposed to be drugged, but not this time, and the chief handler might die because of that. But it was all part of the plan. You'll come out of this a hero, Howard had said. Killed your gladiator man to man and in spite of treachery. The slave master will be executed, and your man will step into his spot. Phaedratha advanced another five paces into the arena, playing out the moment, studying the slave. Already, he knew, the experts in the stands above him were aware that something was wrong. The gladiator had the correct skin color for a drugged man, but he stood his ground and did not tremble. The aficionados would be whispering among themselves now, see how he stands. He should be agitated, attacking or retreating. See how he conserves his strength, how he waits. He should not wait. Phaedratha felt his own excitement kindle. Let there be treachery in Howard's mind, he thought. I can handle this slave, and it's my long knife that carries the poison this time, not the short one. Even Howard doesn't know that. Hi, Harkonnen, the slave called. Are you prepared to die? Deathly stillness gripped the arena. Slaves did not issue the challenge. Now Phaedratha had a clear view of the gladiator's eyes, saw the cold ferocity of despair in them. He marked the way the man stood, loose and ready, muscles prepared for victory. The slave grapevine had carried Howard's message to this one. You'll get a true chance to kill the Narbaran. That much of the scheme was as they'd planned it then. A tight smile crossed Phaedratha's mouth. He lifted the barbs, seeing success for his plans in the way the gladiator stood. Hi! Hi! the slave challenged, and crept forward two steps. No one in the galleries can mistake it now, Phaedratha thought. This slave should have been partly crippled by drug-induced terror. Every movement should have betrayed his inner knowledge that there was no hope for him. He could not win. He should have been filled with the stories of the poisons the Narbaran chose for the blade in his white-gloved hand. The Narbaran never gave quick death. He delighted in demonstrating rare poisons, could stand in the arena pointing out interesting side effects on a writhing victim. There was fear in the slave, yes, but not terror. Phaedratha lifted the barbs high, nodded in an almost greeting. 
The gladiator pounced. His feint and defensive counter were as good as any Fader Arthur had ever seen. A timed side blow missed by the barest fraction from severing the tendons of the Nar Baron's left leg. Fade Rather danced away, leaving a barbed shaft in the slave's right forearm, the hooks completely buried in flesh where the man could not withdraw them without ripping tendons. A concerted gasp lifted from the galleries. The sound filled Fade Rather with elation. He knew now what his uncle was experiencing, sitting up there with the Fenrings, the observers from the Imperial Court beside him. There could be no interference with this fight. The forms must be observed in front of witnesses, and the Baron would interpret the events in the arena only one way. Threat to himself. The slave backed, holding knife in teeth, and lashing the barbed shaft to his arm with a pennant. I do not feel your needle, he shouted. Again he crept forward, knife ready, left side presented, his body bent backward to give it the greatest surface of protection from the half-shield. That action, too, didn't escape the galleries. Sharp cries came from the family boxes. Fadrouth's handlers were calling out to ask if he needed them. He waved them back to the prudor. I'll give them a show such as they've never had before, Fadrouth thought. No tame killing where they can sit back and admire the style. This'll be something to take them by the guts and twist them. When I'm barren, they'll remember this day, and won't be a one of them can escape fear of me because of this day. Fadrother gave ground slowly before the gladiator's crab-like advance. Arena sand grated underfoot. He heard the slaves panting, smelled his own sweat and a faint odor of blood on the air. Steadily, the Narbaran moved backward, turning to the right, his second barb ready. The slave danced sideways. Fadrother appeared to stumble, heard the screams from the galleries. Again, the slave pounced. Gods, what a fighting man, Fadrather thought, as he leaped aside. Only youth's quickness saved him, but he left the second barb buried in the deltoid muscle of the slave's right arm. Shrill cheers rained from the galleries. They cheer me now, Fadrather thought. He heard the wildness in the voices just as Howard had said he would. They'd never cheered a family fighter that way before, and he thought with an edge of grimness on a thing Howard had told him. It's easier to be terrified by an enemy you admire. Swiftly, Fade Rather retreated to the center of the arena where all could see clearly. He drew his long blade, crouched, and waited for the advancing slave. The man took only the time to lash the second barb tight to his arm, then sped in pursuit. Let the family see me do this thing, Fade Rather thought. I am their enemy. Let them think of me as they see me now. He drew his short blade. I do not fear you, Harkonnen swine, the gladiator said. Your tortures cannot hurt a dead man. I can be dead on my own blade before a handler lays finger to my flesh, and I'll have you dead beside me. Fade Rather grinned, offering now the long blade, the one with the poison. Try this on, he said, and fainted with the short blade in his other hand. The slave shifted knife hands, turned inside both parry and feint to grapple the Narbaran's short blade, the one in the white-gloved hand that tradition said should carry the poison. You will die, Harkonnen, the gladiator gasped. They struggled sideways across the sand. Where Phaedrather's shield met the slave's half-shield, a blue glow marked the contact, the air around them filled with ozone from the field. 
die on your own poison, the slave grated. He began forcing the white-gloved hand inward, turning the blade he thought carried the poison. Let them see this, Phaedratha thought. He brought down the long blade, felt it clang uselessly against the barbed shaft lashed to the slave's arm. Phaedratha felt a moment of desperation. He had not thought the barbed shafts would be an advantage for the slave, but they gave the man another shield. And the strength of this gladiator, the short blade was being forced inward inexorably, and Phaedratha focused on the fact that a man could also die on an unpoisoned blade. Scum! Phaedratha gasped. At the key word, the gladiator's muscles obeyed with a momentary slackness. It was enough for Phaedratha. He opened a space between them sufficient for the long blade. Its poisoned tip flicked out, drew a red line down the slave's chest. There was instant agony in the poison. The man disengaged himself, staggered backward. Now let my dear family watch, Phaedratha thought. Let them think on this slave who tried to turn the knife he thought poisoned and use it against me. Let them wonder how a gladiator could come into this arena ready for such an attempt, and let them always be aware they cannot know for sure which of my hands carries the poison. Fade Rather stood in silence, watching the slow motions of the slave. The man moved within a hesitation awareness. There was an orthographic thing on his face now for every watcher to recognize. The death was written there. The slave knew it had been done to him, and he knew how it had been done. The wrong blade had carried the poison. You, the man moaned. Fade Rother drew back to give death its space. The paralyzing drug in the poison had yet to take full effect, but the man's slowness told of its advance. The slave staggered forward as though drawn by a string, one dragging step at a time. Each step was the only step in his universe. He still clutched his knife, but its point wavered. One day, one of us will get you, he gasped. A sad little mue contorted his mouth. He sat, sagged then stiffened and rolled away from Phaedratha, face down. Phaedratha advanced in the silent arena, put a toe under the gladiator and rolled him onto his back to give the galleries a clear view of the face when the poison began its twisting, wrenching work on the muscles. But the gladiator came over with his own knife protruding from his breast. In spite of frustration, there was for Phaedratha a measure of admiration for the effort this slave had managed in overcoming the paralysis to do this thing to himself. With the admiration came the realization that here was truly a thing to fear. That which makes a man superhuman is terrifying. As he focused on this thought, Phaedratha became conscious of the eruption of noise from the stands and galleries around him, they were cheering with utter abandon. Phaedratha turned, looking up at them. All were cheering except the baron, who sat with hand to chin in deep contemplation, and the count and his lady, both of whom were staring down at him, their faces masked by smiles. Count Fenring turned to his lady, said, uh, um, 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 resourceful, um, 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 young man, um, 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 uh, my dear. His uh, synaptic responses are very swift, she said. 
The Baron looked at her, at the Count, returned his attention to the arena, thinking, if someone could get that close to one of mine, rage began to replace his fear. I'll have the slave master dead over a slow fire this night, and if this Count and his lady had a hand in it, the conversation in the Baron's box was remote movement to Fade Rather. The voices drowned in the foot-stamping chant that came now from all around. Head! 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 The Baron scowled, seeing the way Fade Rather turned to him. Languidly controlling his rage with difficulty, the Baron waved his hand toward the young man standing in the arena beside the sprawled body of the slave. Give the boy a head! He earned it by exposing the slave master. Fade Rather saw the signal of agreement, thought, They think they honor me. Let them see what I think. He saw his handlers approaching with a saw knife to do the honors, waved them back, repeated the gesture as they hesitated. They think they honor me with just a head, he thought. He bent and crossed the gladiator's hands around the protruding knife handle, then removed the knife and placed it in the limp hands. It was done in an instant, and he straightened, beckoned his handlers. Bury this slave intact with his knife in his hands, he said. The man earned it. In the golden box, Count Fenring leaned close to the baron, said, A grand gesture, that. True bravura. Your nephew has style as well as courage. He insults the crowd by refusing the head, the baron muttered. Not at all, Lady Fenring said. She turned, looking up at the tears around them. And the baron noted the line of her neck, a truly lovely flowing of muscles, like a young boy's. They like what your nephew did, she said. As the import of Fade Rother's gesture penetrated to the most distant seats, as the people saw the handlers carrying off the dead gladiator intact, the Baron watched them and realized she had interpreted the reaction correctly. The people were going wild, beating on each other, screaming and stamping. The Baron spoke wearily. I shall have to order a fate. You cannot send people home like this, their energies unspent. They must see that I share their elation. He gave a hand signal to his guard, and a servant above them dipped the Harkonnen orange pennant over the box once, twice, Three times. Signal for a fate. Fade Rother crossed the arena to stand beneath the golden box, his weapons sheathed, arms hanging at his sides. Above the undiminished frenzy of the crowd, he called, A fate, uncle? The noise began to subside as people saw the conversation and waited. In your honor, Fade, the baron called down. And again he caused the pennant to be dipped in signal. Across the arena, the Prue barriers had been dropped, and young men were leaping down into the arena, racing toward Fade Rother. You ordered the Prue shields dropped, Baron? the Count asked. No one will harm the lad, the Baron said. He's a hero. The first of the charging mass reached Fade Rother, lifted him on their shoulders, began parading around the arena. He could walk unarmed and unshielded through the poorest quarters of Harco tonight, the Baron said. They give him the last of their food and drink just for his company. The baron pushed himself from his chair, settled his weight into his suspensers. You will forgive me, please. There are matters that require my immediate attention. The guard will see you to the keep. The count arose, bowed. Certainly, baron. We're looking forward to the fate. 
I've uh, um, never seen a Harkonnen fate. Yes, the Baron said, the fate. He turned, was enveloped by guards as he stepped into the private exit from the box. A guard captain bowed to Count Fenring. Your orders, my lord? We will uh, wait for the worst crush to um, pass, the Count said. Yes, my lord. The man bowed himself back three paces. Count Fenring faced his lady, spoke again in their personal humming code tongue. Mm, you saw it, of course. In the same humming tongue, she answered. Ah, the uh, lad knew the gladiator wouldn't be uh, drugged. There was a moment of fear, yes, but no surprise. Mm, it was planned, the entire performance. Without a doubt. It stinks of Hawat. Indeed. I demanded earlier that the Baron eliminate Hawat. That was an error, my dear. I see that now. The Harkonnens may have a new Baron ere long. If that's Hawat's plan. That will bear examination, true. The young one will be more amenable to control. For us. After tonight. You don't anticipate difficulty seducing him, my little broodmother? No, my love. You saw how he looked at me. Yes, and I can see now why we must have that bloodline. Indeed, and it's obvious we must have a hold on him. I'll plant deep in his deepest self the necessary prana bindu phrases to bend him. We'll leave as soon as possible, as soon as you're sure. Oh, by all means. I should not want to bear a child in this terrible place. The things we do in the name of humanity. Yours is the easy part. There are some ancient prejudices I overcome. They're quite primordial, you know. Oh, my poor dear. You know this is the only way to be sure of saving that bloodline. I quite understand what we do. We won't fail. Guilt starts as a feeling of failure. There'll be no guilt. Hypno-ligation of that Fade Rauther's psyche and his child in my womb. Then we go. That uncle. Have you ever seen such distortion? He's pretty fierce. But the nephew could well grow to be worse. Thanks to that uncle. You know, when you think what this lad could have been with some other upbringing. With the Atreides Code to guide him, for example. It's sad. Would that we could have saved both the Atreides youth and this one. From what I heard of that young Paul, a most admirable lad, good union of breeding and training. But we shouldn't waste sorrow over the aristocracy of misfortune. There's a Benny Gesserit saying. You have sayings for everything. Oh, you'll like this one. It goes, do not count a human dead until you've seen his body. And even then, you can make a mistake. Muad'Dib tells us in a time of reflection that his first collisions with Erekin necessities were the true beginnings of his education. He learned then how to pull the sand for its weather, learned the language of the wind's needles stinging his skin, learned how the nose can buzz with sand itch, and how to gather his body's precious moisture around him to guard it and preserve it. 
As his eyes assumed the blue of the Ibad, he learned the Chakopsa way. Stilgar's preface to Muad'Dib the Man by the Princess Irulan. Stilgar's troop, returning to the Siech with its two strays from the desert, climbed out of the basin in the waning light of the first moon. The robed figures hurried with the smell of home in their nostrils. Dawn's grey line behind them was brightest at the notch in their horizon calendar that marked the middle of autumn, the month of Caprock. Wind-raked dead leaves strewed the cliff base where the Siech children had been gathering them, but the sounds of the troop's passage, except for occasional blunderings by Paul and his mother, could not be distinguished from the natural sounds of the night. Paul wiped sweat-caked dust from his forehead, felt a tug at his arm, heard Chaney's voice hissing, Do as I told you. Bring the fold of your hood down over your forehead. Leave only the eyes exposed. You waste moisture. A whispered command behind them demanded silence. The desert hears you. A bird chirruped from the rocks high above them. The troop stopped and Paul sensed abrupt tension. There came a faint thumping from the rocks, a sound no louder than mice jumping in the sand. Again the bird chirruped. A stir passed through the troop's ranks, and again the mouse thumping pecked its way across the sand. Once more the bird chirruped. The troop resumed its climb up into a crack in the rocks, but there was a stillness of breath about the Fremen now that filled Paul with caution, and he noted covert glances toward Cheney, the way she seemed to withdraw, pulling in upon herself. There was rock underfoot now, a faint grey swishing of robes around them, and Paul sensed the relaxing of discipline, but still that quiet of the person about Cheney and the others. He followed a shadow shape, up steps, a turn, more steps, into a tunnel, past two moisture-sealed doors and into a globe-lighted narrow passage with yellow rock walls and ceiling. All around him, Paul saw the Fremen throwing back their hoods, removing nose-plugs, breathing deeply. Someone sighed. Paul looked for Cheney, found that she had left his side. He was hemmed in by a press of robed bodies. Someone jostled him, said, Excuse me, Usul, what a crush! It's always this way. On his left, the narrow bearded face of the one called Farouk turned toward Paul. The stained eye pits and blue darkness of eyes appeared even darker under the yellow globes. Throw off your hood, Usul, Farouk said. You're home. And he helped Paul, releasing the hood catch, elbowing a space around them. Paul slipped out his nose plugs, swung the mouth baffle aside. The odor of the place assailed him, unwashed bodies, distillate esters of reclaimed wastes, everywhere the sour effluvia of humanity, with, over it all, a turbulence of spice and spice-like harmonics. Why are we waiting, Farouk? Paul asked. For the Reverend Mother, I think. You heard the message. Poor Cheney. Poor Cheney? Paul asked himself. He looked around, wondering where she was, where his mother had got to in all this crush. Farouk took a deep breath. This smells of home, he said. Paul saw that the man was enjoying the stink of this air, that there was no irony in his tone. He heard his mother cough then, and her voice came back to him through the press of the troop. 
How rich the odors of your siege, Stilgar. I see you do much working with the spice. You make paper, plastics, and isn't that chemical explosives? You know this from what you smell? It was another man's voice, and Paul realized she was speaking for his benefit, that she wanted him to make a quick acceptance of this assault on his nostrils. There came a buzz of activity at the head of the troop, and a prolonged indrawn breath that seemed to pass through the Fremen, and Paul heard hushed voices back down the line. It's true then. Liet is dead. Liet, Paul thought. Then Cheney, daughter of Liet. The pieces fell together in his mind. Liet was the Fremen name of the planetologist. Paul looked at Farouk, asked, is it the Liet known as Kynes? There is only one Liet, Farouk said. Paul turned, stared at the robed back of a Fremen in front of him. Then Liet Kynes is dead, he thought. It was Harkonnen treachery, someone hissed. They made it seem an accident, lost in the desert, a thopter crash. Paul felt a burst of anger. The man who had befriended them, helped save them from the Harkonnen hunters. The man who had sent his Fremen cohorts searching for two strays in the desert. Another victim of the Harkonnens. Does Usul hunger yet for revenge? Farouk asked. Before Paul could answer, there came a low call, and the troop swept forward into a wider chamber, carrying Paul with them. He found himself in an open space confronted by Stilgar and a strange woman wearing a flowing wrap-around garment of brilliant orange and green. Her arms were bare to the shoulders, and he could see she wore no still suit. Her skin was a pale olive. Dark hair swept back from her high forehead, throwing emphasis on sharp cheekbones and aquiline nose between the dense darkness of her eyes. She turned toward him, and Paul saw golden rings threaded with water tallies dangling from her ears. This bested my James, she demanded. Be silent, Hera, Stilgar said. It was James's doing. He invoked the Tahadi al-Burhan. He's not but a boy, she said. She gave her head a sharp shake from side to side, setting the water tallies to jingling. My children made fatherless by another child? Surely, t'was an accident. Usul, how many years have you? Stilgar asked. Fifteen standard, Paul said. Stilgar swept his eyes over the troop. Is there one among you cares to challenge me? Silence. Stilgar looked at the woman. Until I've learned his weirding ways, I'd not challenge him. She returned his stare. But you saw the stranger woman who went with Cheney to the Reverend Mother? Stilgar asked. She's an outfrain Sayadina, mother to this lad. The mother and son are masters of the weirding ways of battle. Liza Nalgaib, the woman whispered. Her eyes held awe as she turned them back toward Paul. The legend again, Paul thought. Perhaps, Stilgar said. It hasn't been tested, though. He returned his attention to Paul. Usul, 
It's our way that you've now the responsibility for Jameis's woman here and for his two sons. His yali, his quarters are yours, his coffee service is yours, and this, his woman. Paul studied the woman, wondering, why isn't she mourning her man? Why does she show no hate for me? Abruptly, he saw that the Fremen were staring at him, waiting. Someone whispered, There's work to do. Say how you accept her. Stilgar said, Do you accept Hera as woman or servant? Hera lifted her arms, turning slowly on one heel. I am still young, Usul. It said I still look as young as when I was with Jeff, before Jameis bested him. Jameis killed another to win her, Paul thought. Paul said, If I accept her as servant, may I yet change my mind at a later time? You'd have a year to change your decision, Stilgar said. After that, she's a free woman to choose as she wishes, or you could free her to choose for herself at any time. But she's your responsibility, no matter what, for one year, and you'll always share some responsibility for the sons of Jamis. I accept her as servant, Paul said. Hera stamped a foot, shook her shoulders with anger. But I'm young! Stilgar looked at Paul, said, Caution's a worthy trait in a man who'd lead. But I'm young, Hera repeated. Be silent, Stilgar commanded. If a thing has merit, it'll be. Show Usul to his quarters and see he has fresh clothing and a place to rest. Oh, she said. Paul had registered enough of her to have a first approximation. He felt the impatience of the troop, knew many things were being delayed here. He wondered if he dared ask the whereabouts of his mother and Cheney, saw from Stilgar's nervous stance that it would be a mistake. He faced Hera, pitched his voice with tone and tremolo to accent her fear and awe, said, Show me my quarters, Hera. We will discuss your youth another time. She backed away two steps cast a frightened glance at Stilgar. He has the weirding voice, she husked. Stilgar, Paul said, Cheney's father put heavy obligation on me. If there's anything, it'll be decided in council, Stilgar said. You can speak then. He nodded in dismissal, turned away with the rest of the troop following him. Paul took Hera's arm, noting how cool her flesh seemed, feeling her tremble. I'll not harm you, Hera, he said. Show me our quarters. And he smoothed his voice with relaxance. You'll not cast me out when the year's gone, she said. I know for true I'm not as young as once I was. As long as I live, you'll have a place with me, he said. He released her arm. Come now, where are our quarters? She turned, led the way down the passage, turned right into a wide cross tunnel lighted by evenly spaced yellow overhead globes. The stone floor was smooth, swept clean of sand. Paul moved up beside her, studied the aquiline profile as they walked. You do not hate me, Hera? Why should I hate you? She nodded to a cluster of children who stared at them from the raised ledge of a side passage. Paul glimpsed adult shapes behind the children partly hidden by filmy hangings. I bested Jameis. Stilgar said the ceremony was held. And you're a friend of Jameis. She glanced sidelong at him. Stilgar said you gave moisture to the dead. Is that truth? Yes. It's more than I'll do. K 
can do. Don't you mourn him? In the time of mourning, I'll mourn him. They passed an arched opening. Paul looked through it at men and women working with stand-mounted machinery in a large, bright chamber. There seemed an extra tempo of urgency to them. What are they doing in there? Paul asked. She glanced back as they passed beyond the arch, said, They hurry to finish the quota in the plastics shop before we flee. We need many dew collectors for the planting. Flee? Until the butchers stop hunting us, or are driven from our land. Paul caught himself in a stumble, sensing an arrested instant of time, remembering a fragment, a visual projection of prescience, but it was displaced like a montage in motion. The bits of his prescient memory were not quite as he remembered them. The Sadhuka hunt us, he said. They'll not find much excepting an empty siege or two, she said, and they'll find their share of death in the sand. They'll find this place? he asked. Likely. Yet we take the time to. He motioned with his head toward the arch now far behind them. Make dew collectors. The planting goes on. What are dew collectors? he asked. The glance she turned on him was full of surprise. Don't they teach you anything in the... wherever it is you come from? Not about dew collectors. Hi, she said, and there was a whole conversation in the one word. Well, what are they? Each bush, each weed you see out there in the erg, she said. How do you suppose it lives when we leave it? Each is planted most tenderly in its own little pit. The pits are filled with smooth ovals of chromoplastic. Light turns them white. You can see them glistening in the dawn if you look down from a high place. White reflects. But when Old Father Sun departs, the chromoplastic reverts to transparency in the dark. It cools with extreme rapidity. The surface condenses moisture out of the air. That moisture trickles down to keep our plants alive. Dew collectors, he muttered, enchanted by the simple beauty of such a scheme. I'll mourn James in the proper time for it, she said, as though her mind had not left his other question. He was a good man, James, but quick to anger. A good provider, James, and a wonder with the children. He made no separation between Jeff's boy, my firstborn, and his own true son. They were equal in his eyes. She turned a questing stare on Paul. Would it be that way with you, Usu? We don't have that problem. But if... Hera! She recoiled at the harsh edge in his voice. They passed another brightly lighted room visible through an arch on their left. What's made there? he asked. They repair the weaving machinery, she said, but it must be dismantled by tonight. She gestured at a tunnel branching to their left. Through there and beyond, that's food processing and still suit maintenance. She looked at Paul. Your suit looks new, but if it needs work, I'm good with suits. I work in the factory in season. They began coming on knots of people now and thicker clusterings of openings in the tunnel's sides. A file of men and women passed them, carrying packs that gurgled heavily, the smell of spice strong about them. They'll not get our water, Hera said, or our spice. You can be sure of that. Paul glanced at the openings in the tunnel walls, seeing the heavy carpets on the raised ledge, 
Glimpses of rooms with bright fabrics on the walls, piled cushions. People in the openings fell silent at their approach, followed Paul with untamed stares. The people find it strange you bested, Jameis, Hera said. Likely you'll have some proving to do when we're settled in a new siege. I don't like killing, he said. Thus Stilgar tells it, she said, but her voice betrayed her disbelief. A shrill chanting grew louder ahead of them. They came to another side opening, wider than any of the others Paul had seen. He slowed his pace, staring in at a room crowded with children sitting cross-legged on a maroon-carpeted floor. At a chalkboard against the far wall stood a woman in a yellow wraparound, a projecto stylus in one hand. The board was filled with designs, circles, wedges and curves, snake tracks and squares, flowing arcs split by parallel lines. The woman pointed to the designs one after the other as fast as she could move the stylus, and the children chanted in rhythm with her moving hand. Paul listened, hearing the voices grow dimmer behind as he moved deeper into the siege with Hera. Tree, the children chanted. Tree, grass, dune, wind, mountain, hill, fire, lightning, rock, rocks, dust, sand, heat, shelter, heat, full, winter, cold, empty, erosion, summer, cavern, day, tension, moon, night, caprock, sand-tide, slope, planting, binder. You conduct classes at a time like this? Paul asked. Her face went somber and grief edged her voice. What Liet taught us, we cannot pause an instant in that. Liet, who is dead, must not be forgotten. It's the Jacobsa way. She crossed the tunnel to the left, stepped up onto a ledge, parted gauzy orange hangings and stood aside. Your yali is ready for you, Usul. Paul hesitated before joining her on the ledge. He felt a sudden reluctance to be alone with this woman. It came to him that he was surrounded by a way of life that could only be understood by postulating an ecology of ideas and values. He felt that this Fremen world was fishing for him, trying to snare him in its ways. And he knew what lay in that snare. The wild jihad, the religious war he felt he should avoid at any cost. This is your Yali, Hera said. Why do you hesitate? Paul nodded, joined her on the ledge. He lifted the hangings across from her, feeling metal fibers in the fabric, followed her into a short entranceway and then into a larger room, square, about six meters to a side, thick blue carpets on the floor, blue and green fabrics hiding the rock walls, glow globes tuned to yellow overhead, bobbing against draped yellow ceiling fabrics. The effect was that of an ancient tent. Hera stood in front of him, left hand on hip, her eyes studying his face. The children are with a friend, she said. They will present themselves later. Paul masked his unease beneath a quick scanning of the room. Thin hangings to the right, he saw, partly concealed a larger room with cushions piled around the walls. He felt a soft breeze from an air duct, saw the outlet cunningly hidden in a pattern of hangings directly ahead of him. Do you wish me to help you remove your still suit? Hera asked. No, thank you. Shall I bring food? Yes. There is a reclamation chamber off the other room, she gestured, 
for your comfort and convenience when you're out of your still suit. You said we have to leave this siege, Paul said. Shouldn't we be packing or something? It will be done in its time, she said. The butchers have yet to penetrate to our region. Still she hesitated, staring at him. What is it? he demanded. You've not the eyes of the Ibad, she said. It's strange, but not entirely unattractive. Get the food, he said. I'm hungry. She smiled at him, a knowing woman's smile that he found disquieting. I am your servant, she said, and whirled away in one lithe motion, ducking behind a heavy wall hanging that revealed another passage before falling back into place. Feeling angry with himself, Paul brushed through the thin hanging on the right and into the larger room. He stood there a moment, caught by uncertainty, and he wondered where Cheney was. Cheney, who had just lost her father. We're alike in that, he thought. A wailing cry sounded from the outer corridors, its volume muffled by the intervening hangings. It was repeated a bit more distant. And again. Paul realized someone was calling the time. He focused on the fact that he had seen no clocks. The faint smell of burning creosote bush came to his nostrils, riding on the omnipresent stink of the siege. Paul saw that he had already suppressed the odorous assault on his senses. And he wondered again about his mother, how the moving montage of the future would incorporate her and the daughter she bore. Mutable time awareness danced around him, he shook his head sharply, focusing his attention on the evidences that spoke of profound depth and breadth in this Fremen culture that had swallowed him, with its subtle oddities. He had seen a thing about the caverns and this room, a thing that suggested far greater differences than anything he had yet encountered. There was no sign of a poison snooper here, no indication of their use anywhere in the cave warren. Yet he could smell poisons in the siege stench. Strong ones. Common ones. He heard a rustle of hangings, thought it was Hera returning with food and turned to watch her. Instead, from beneath a displaced pattern of hangings, he saw two young boys, perhaps aged nine and ten, staring out at him with greedy eyes. Each wore a small kinjal type of Chris knife, rested a hand on the hilt and Paul recalled the stories of the Fremen, that their children fought as ferociously as the adults. The hands move, the lips move, ideas gush from his words, and his eyes devour. He is an island of selfdom. Description from a manual of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. Phosphor tubes in the faraway upper reaches of the cavern cast a dim light onto the thronged interior, hinting at the great size of this rock-enclosed space. Larger, Jessica saw, than even the gathering hall of her Bene Gesserit school. She estimated there were more than five thousand people gathered out there beneath the ledge where she stood with Stilgar. And more were coming. The air was murmurous with people. Your son has been summoned from his rest, Sayadina. Stilgar said. Do you wish him to share in your decision? Could he change my decision? Certainly. The air with which you speak comes from your own lungs, but... The decision stands, she said. 
but she felt misgivings, wondering if she should use Paul as an excuse for backing out of a dangerous course. There was an unborn daughter to think of as well. What endangered the flesh of the mother endangered the flesh of the daughter. Men came with rolled carpets, grunting under the weight of them, stirring up dust as the loads were dropped onto the ledge. Stilgar took her arm, led her back into the acoustical horn that formed the rear limits of the ledge. He indicated a rock bench within the horn. The Reverend Mother will sit here, but you may rest yourself until she comes. I prefer to stand, Jessica said. She watched the men unroll the carpets covering the ledge, looked out at the crowd. There were at least ten thousand people on the rock floor now, and still they came. Out on the desert, she knew, it already was red nightfall, but here in the cavern hall was perpetual twilight, a grey vastness thronged with people come to see her risk her life. A way was opened through the crowd to her right, and she saw Paul approaching, flanked by two small boys. There was a swaggering air of self-importance about the children. They kept hands on knives, scowled at the wall of people on either side. The sons of Jamis, who are now the sons of Usul, Stilgar said. They take their escort duties seriously. He ventured a smile at Jessica. Jessica recognized the effort to lighten her mood and was grateful for it, but could not take her mind from the danger that confronted her. I have no choice but to do this, she thought. We must move swiftly if we're to secure our place among these Fremen. Paul climbed up to the ledge, leaving the children below. He stopped in front of his mother, glanced at Stilgar, back to Jessica. What is happening? I thought I was being summoned to council. Stilgar raised a hand for silence, gestured to his left where another way had been opened in the throng. Cheney came down the lane, opened there, her elfin face set in lines of grief. She had removed her still suit and wore a graceful blue wraparound that exposed her thin arms. Near the shoulder on her left arm, a green kerchief had been tied. Green for mourning, Paul thought. It was one of the customs the two sons of Jamis had explained to him by indirection, telling him they wore no green because they accepted him as guardian father. Are you the Lizan al-Gaib? they had asked and Paul had sensed the jihad in their words, shrugging off the question with one of his own, learning then that Kelef, the elder of the two, was ten, and the natural son of Jeff. Orlop, the younger, was eight, the natural son of Jamis. It had been a strange day with these two standing guard over him, because he asked it, keeping away the curious, allowing him the time to nurse his thoughts and prescient memories, to plan a way to prevent the jihad. Now, standing beside his mother on the cavern ledge and looking out at the throng, he wondered if any plan could prevent the wild outpouring of fanatic legions. Cheney, near the ledge, was followed at a distance by four women carrying another woman in a litter. Jessica ignored Cheney's approach, focusing all her attention on the woman in the litter, a crone, a wrinkled and shriveled ancient thing in a black gown with hood thrown back to reveal the tight knot of grey hair, and the stringy neck. The litter carriers deposited their burden gently on the ledge from below, and Cheney helped the old woman to her feet. So this is their reverend mother, Jessica thought. 
The old woman leaned heavily on Cheney as she hobbled toward Jessica, looking like a collection of sticks draped in the black robe. She stopped in front of Jessica, peered upward for a long moment before speaking in a husky whisper. Sol, you're the one, the old head nodded once precariously on the thin neck. The shadow the mapes was right to pity you. Jessica spoke quickly, scornfully. I need no one's pity. That remains to be seen, husked the old woman. She turned with surprising quickness and faced the throng. Tell them, Stilgar. Must I? he asked. We are the people of Misr, the old woman rasped. Since our Sunni ancestors fled from Nilotek al we have known flight and death. The young go on that our people shall not die. Stilgar took a deep breath, stepped forward two paces. Jessica felt the hush come over the crowded cavern, some twenty thousand people now standing silently, almost without movement. It made her feel suddenly small and filled with caution. Tonight we must leave this siege that has sheltered us for so long and go south into the desert, Stilgar said. His voice boomed out across the uplifted faces, reverberating with the force given it by the acoustical horn behind the ledge. Still the throng remained silent. The Reverend Mother tells me she cannot survive another Hajra, Stilgar said. We have lived before without a Reverend Mother, but it is not good for people to seek a new home in such straits. Now the throng stirred, rippling with whispers and currents of disquiet. That this may not come to pass, Stilgar said. Our new Sayadina Jessica of the Weirding has consented to enter the right at this time. She will attempt to pass within, that we not lose the strength of our reverend mother. Jessica of the Weirding, Jessica thought. She saw Paul staring at her, his eyes filled with questions, but his mouth held silent by all the strangeness around them. If I die in the attempt... What will become of him? Jessica asked herself. Again she felt the misgivings fill her mind. Cheney led the old reverend mother to a rock bench deep in the acoustical horn, returned to stand beside Stilgar. That we may not lose all if Jessica of the Weirding should fail, Stilgar said. Cheney, daughter of Liet, will be consecrated in the Sayadina at this time. He stepped one pace to the side. From deep in the acoustical horn, the old woman's voice came out to them, an amplified whisper, harsh and penetrating. Cheney has returned from her hajra. Cheney has seen the waters. A susurrant response arose from the crowd. She has seen the waters. I consecrate the daughter of Liet in the Sayadina husked the old woman. She is accepted, the crowd responded. Paul barely heard the ceremony, his attention still centered on what had been said of his mother. If she should fail, 
He turned and looked back at the one they called Reverend Mother, studying the dried crone features, the fathomless blue fixation of her eyes. She looked as though a breeze would blow her away, yet there was that about her which suggested she might stand untouched in the path of a Coriolis storm. She carried the same aura of power that he remembered from the Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Mohayim, who had tested him with agony in the way of the Gom Jabbar. I, the Reverend Mother Ramalo, whose voice speaks as a multitude, say this to you, the old woman said. It is fitting that Cheney enter this Sayadina. It is fitting, the crowd responded. The old woman nodded, whispered, I give her the silver skies, the golden desert and its shining rocks, the green fields that will be. I give these to Sayadina Cheney, and lest she forget that she's servant of us all, to her for the menial tasks in this ceremony of the seed. Let it be as Shaihulud will have it. She lifted a brown stick arm, dropped it. Jessica, feeling the ceremony close around her with a current that swept her beyond all turning back, glanced once at Paul's question-filled face, then prepared herself for the ordeal. Let the water masters come forward, Cheney said, with only the slightest quaver of uncertainty in her girl-child voice. Now Jessica felt herself at the focus of danger knowing its presence in the watchfulness of the throng, in the silence. A band of men made its way through a serpentine path opened in the crowd, moving up from the back in pairs. Each pair carried a small skin sack, perhaps twice the size of a human head. The sacks sloshed heavily. The two leaders deposited their load at Cheney's feet on the ledge and stepped back. Jessica looked at the sack, then at the men, they had their hoods thrown back, exposing long hair tied in a roll at the base of the neck. The black pits of their eyes stared back at her without wavering. A furry redolence of cinnamon arose from the sack, wafted across Jessica. The spice? she wondered. Is there water? Cheney asked. The watermaster on the left, a man with a purple scar line across the bridge of his nose, nodded once. There is water, Sayadina, he said, but we cannot drink of it. Is there seed? Cheney asked. There is seed, the man said. Cheney knelt and put her hands to the sloshing sack. Blessed is the water and its seed. There was familiarity to the right, and Jessica looked back at the Reverend Mother Ramalo. The old woman's eyes were closed, and she sat hunched over as though asleep. Sayadina, Jessica! Cheney said. Jessica turned to see the girl staring up at her. Have you tasted the blessed water? Cheney asked. Before Jessica could answer, Cheney said, It is not possible that you have tasted the blessed water. You are outworlder and unprivileged. A sigh passed through the crowd, a susurration of robes that made the nape hairs creep on Jessica's neck. The crop was large, and the maker has been destroyed. Cheney said. She began unfastening a coiled spout fixed to the top of the sloshing bag. Now Jessica felt the sense of danger boiling around her. She glanced at Paul, saw that he was caught up in the mystery of the ritual and had eyes only for Cheney.
Has he seen this moment in time? Jessica wondered. She rested a hand on her abdomen, thinking of the unborn daughter there, asking herself, do I have the right to risk us both? Cheney lifted the spout toward Jessica, said, Here is the water of life, the water that is greater than water can, the water that frees the soul. If you be a reverend mother, it opens the universe to you. Let Shai Hulud judge now. Jessica felt herself torn between duty to her unborn child and duty to Paul. For Paul, she knew, she should take that spout and drink of the sack's contents, but as she bent to the proffered spout, her senses told her its peril. The stuff in the sack had a bitter smell, subtly akin to many poisons that she knew, but unlike them, too. You must drink it now, Cheney said. There's no turning back, Jessica reminded herself. But nothing in all her Bene Gesserit training came into her mind to help her through this instant. What is it? Jessica asked herself. A liquor? A drug? She bent over the spout, smelling the esters of cinnamon, remembering then the drunkenness of Duncan Idaho. Spice liquor? She asked herself. She took the siphon tube in her mouth, pulled up only the most minuscule sip. It tasted of the spice, a faint bite acrid on the tongue. Cheney pressed down on the skin bag. A great gulp of the stuff surged into Jessica's mouth, and before she could help herself, she swallowed it, fighting to retain her calmness and dignity. To accept a little death is worse than death itself, Cheney said. She stared at Jessica, waiting. And Jessica stared back, still holding the spout in her mouth. She tasted the sack's contents in her nostrils, in the roof of her mouth, in her cheeks, in her eyes, a biting sweetness now. Cool. Again, Cheney sent the liquid gushing into Jessica's mouth. Delicate. Jessica studied Cheney's face, elfin features, seeing the traces of Liet kinds there as yet unfixed by time. This is a drug they feed me, Jessica told herself but it was unlike any other drug of her experience, and Bene Gesserit training included the taste of many drugs. Janie's features were so clear, as though outlined in light. A drug. Whirling silence settled around Jessica. Every fiber of her body accepted the fact that something profound had happened to it. She felt that she was a conscious moat, smaller than any subatomic particle, yet capable of motion and of sensing her surroundings. Like an abrupt revelation, the curtains whipped away, she realized she had become aware of a psychokinesthetic extension of herself. She was the moat, yet not the moat. The cavern remained around her, the people. She sensed them, Paul, Cheney, Stilgar, the Reverend Mother Amalo. Reverend Mother? At the school there had been rumors that some did not survive the Reverend Mother ordeal, that the drug took them. Jessica focused her attention on the Reverend Mother Amalo, aware now that all this was happening in a frozen instant of time, suspended time for her alone. Why is time suspended? She asked herself. 
She stared at the frozen expressions around her, seeing a dust moat above Cheney's head, stopped there, waiting. The answer to this instant came like an explosion in her consciousness. Her personal time was suspended to save her life. She focused on the psychokinesthetic extension of herself, looking within, and was confronted immediately with a cellular core, a pit of blackness from which she recoiled. That is the place where we cannot look, she thought. There is the place the Reverend Mothers are so reluctant to mention. The place where only Kwisatz Haderach may look. This realization returned a small measure of confidence, and again, she ventured to focus on the psychokinesthetic extension, becoming a moat self that searched within her for danger. She found it within the drug she had swallowed. The stuff was dancing particles within her, its motions so rapid that even frozen time could not stop them. Dancing particles. She began recognizing familiar structures, atomic linkages, a carbon atom here, helical wavering, a glucose molecule. An entire chain of molecules confronted her and she recognized a protein, a methyl protein configuration. Ah! It was a soundless mental sigh within her as she saw the nature of the poison. With her psychokinesthetic probing, she moved into it, shifted an oxygen moat, allowed another carbon moat to link, reattached a linkage of oxygen, hydrogen. The change spread faster and faster as the catalyzed reaction opened its surface of contact. The suspension of time relaxed its hold upon her and she sensed motion. The tube spout from the sack was touched to her mouth gently, collecting a drop of moisture. Chain is taking the catalyst from my body to change the poison in that sack, Jessica thought. Why? Someone eased her to a sitting position. She saw the old Reverend Mother Amalo being brought to sit beside her on the carpeted ledge. A dry hand touched her neck. And there was another psychokinesthetic moat within her awareness. Jessica tried to reject it, but the moat swept closer, closer. They touched. It was like an ultimate simpatico, being two people at once. Not telepathy, but mutual awareness with the old Reverend Mother. But Jessica saw that the Reverend Mother didn't think of herself as old. An image unfolded before the mutual mind's eye, a young girl with a dancing spirit and tender humor. Within the mutual awareness, the young girl spoke. Yes, that is how I am. Jessica could only accept the words, not respond to them. You'll have it all soon, Jessica. This is hallucination. Jessica told herself. You know better than that. Swiftly now, do not fight me. There isn't much time. We... You should have told us you were pregnant. Jessica found the voice that talked within the mutual awareness. Why? This changes both of you. Holy Mother, what have we done? Jessica sensed a forced shift in the mutual awareness, saw another moat presence with the inward eye. The other moat darted wildly here, there, circling. It radiated pure terror. You'll have to be strong. Be thankful it's a daughter you carry. This would have killed a male fetus. Now, 
Carefully, gently. Touch your daughter presence. Be your daughter presence. Absorb the fear. Soothe. Use your courage and your strength. Gently now. Gently. The other whirling moat swept near, and Jessica compelled herself to touch it. Terror threatened to overwhelm her. She fought it the only way she knew. I shall not fear. Fear is the mind killer. The litany brought a semblance of calm. The other moat lay quiescent against her. Words won't work, Jessica told herself. She reduced herself to basic emotional reactions, radiated love, comfort, a warm snuggling of protection. The terror receded. Again, the presence of the old Reverend Mother asserted itself, but now there was a tripling of mutual awareness, two active and one that lay quietly absorbing. Time compels me. I have much to give you, and I do not know if your daughter can accept all this while remaining sane. But it must be. The needs of the tribe are paramount. What? Remain silent and accept. Experiences began to unroll before Jessica. It was like a lecture strip in a subliminal training projector at the Bene Gesserit school, but faster. Blindingly faster. Yet distinct. She knew each experience as it happened. There was a lover, virile, bearded, with the Fremen eyes, and Jessica saw his strength and tenderness, all of him in one blink moment, through the Reverend Mother's memory. There was no time now to think of what this might be doing to the daughter fetus, only time to accept and record. The experiences poured in on Jessica, birth, life, death, important matters and unimportant, an outpouring of single view time. Why should a fall of sand from a cliff top stick in the memory? She asked herself. Too late, Jessica saw what was happening. The old woman was dying, and in dying, pouring her experiences into Jessica's awareness as water is poured into a cup. The other moat faded back into pre-birth awareness as Jessica watched it. And, dying in conception, the old Reverend Mother left her life in Jessica's memory with one last sighing blur of words. I've been a long time waiting for you. Here is my life. There it was, encapsulated, all of it, even the moment of death. I am now a Reverend Mother, Jessica realized. And she knew with a generalized awareness that she had become, in truth, precisely what was meant by a Bene Gesserit reverend mother. The poison drug had transformed her. This wasn't exactly how they did it at the Bene Gesserit school, she knew. No one had ever introduced her to the mysteries of it, but she knew. The end result was the same. Jessica sensed the daughter moat still touching her inner awareness, probed it without response. A terrible sense of loneliness crept through Jessica in the realization of what had happened to her. She saw her own life as a pattern that had slowed, and all life around her speeded up so that the dancing interplay became clearer. The sensation of moat awareness faded slightly, its intensity easing as her body relaxed from the threat of the poison, but still she felt that other moat touching it with a sense of guilt at what she had allowed to happen to it. I did it, my poor, unformed, dear little daughter. I brought you into this universe and exposed your awareness to all its varieties without any defenses. 
a tiny outflowing of love comfort, like a reflection of what she had poured into it came from the other moat. Before Jessica could respond, she felt the adab presence of demanding memory. There was something that needed doing. She groped for it, realizing she was being impeded by a muzziness of the changed drug permeating her senses. I could change that, she thought. I could take away the drug action and make it harmless. But she sensed this would be an error. I'm within a right of joining. Then she knew what she had to do. Jessica opened her eyes, gestured to the water sack now being held above her by Cheney. It has been blessed. Mingle the waters. Let the change come to all, that the people may partake and share in the blessing. Let the catalyst do its work, she thought. Let the people drink of it and have their awareness of each other heightened for a while. The drug is safe now, now that a reverend mother has changed it. Still, the demanding memory worked on her, thrusting. There was another thing she had to do, she realized, but the drug made it difficult to focus. Ah, the old Reverend Mother. I have met the Reverend Mother, Romalo. She is gone, but she remains. Let her memory be honored in the right. Now, where did I get those words? Jessica wondered. And she realized they came from another memory, the life that had been given to her and now was part of herself. Something about that gift felt incomplete, though. Let them have their orgy. They've little enough pleasure out of living. Yes, and you and I need this little time to become acquainted before I recede and pour out through your memories. Already, I feel myself being tied to bits of you. Ah... You've a mind filled with interesting things. So many things I'd never imagined. And the memory mind encapsulated within her opened itself to Jessica, permitting a view down a wide corridor to other reverend mothers until there seemed no end to them. Jessica recoiled, fearing she would become lost in an ocean of oneness. Still, the corridor remained revealing to Jessica that the Fremen culture was far older than she had suspected. There had been Fremen on Poritrin, she saw, a people grown soft with an easy planet, fair game for Imperial raiders to harvest and plant human colonies on Belletegus and Salusa Secundus. Oh, the wailing Jessica sensed in that parting. Far down the corridor, an image voice screamed, They denied us the Hajj! Jessica saw the slave cribs on Belategus down that inner corridor, saw the weeding out and the selecting that spread men to Rossack and Harmanthep. Scenes of brutal ferocity opened to her like the petals of a terrible flower, and she saw the thread of the past carried by Sayadina after Sayadina, first by word of mouth hidden in the sand shanties, then refined through their own reverend mothers with the discovery of the poison drug on Rossack, and now developed to subtle strength on Arrakis, in the discovery of the water of life. Far down the inner corridor, another voice screamed, Never to forgive! Never to forget! But Jessica's attention was focused on the revelation of the water of life, seeing its source, the liquid exhalation of a dying sandworm, a maker. And as she saw the killing of it in her new memory, she suppressed a gasp. The creature was drowned. 
Mother, are you all right? Paul's voice intruded on her and Jessica struggled out of the inner awareness to stare up at him, conscious of duty to him but resenting his presence. I'm like a person whose hands were kept numb, without sensation from the first moment of awareness, until one day the ability to feel is forced into them. The thought hung in her mind, an enclosing awareness, and I say, look, I have no hands. But the people all around me say, what are hands? Are you all right? Yes. Is this all right for me to drink? He gestured to the sack in Chena's hands. They want me to drink it. She heard the hidden meaning in his words, realized he had detected the poison in the original unchanged substance that he was concerned for her. It occurred to Jessica then to wonder about the limits of Paul's prescience. His question revealed much to her. You may drink it. It has been changed. And she looked beyond him to see Stilgar staring down at her, the dark, dark eyes studying. Now we know you cannot be false. She sensed hidden meaning here, too, but the muzziness of the drug was overpowering her senses. How warm it was and soothing. How beneficent these Fremen to bring her into the fold of such companionship. Paul saw the drug take hold of his mother. He searched his memory, the fixed past, the flux lines of the possible futures. It was like scanning through arrested instants of time, disconcerting to the lens of the inner eye. The fragments were difficult to understand when snatched out of the flux. This drug, he could assemble knowledge about it, understand what it was doing to his mother, but the knowledge lacked a natural rhythm, lacked a system of mutual reflection. He realized suddenly that it was one thing to see the past occupying the present, but the true test of prescience was to see the past in the future. Things persisted in not being what they seemed. Drink it. Cheney waved the horn spout of a water sack under his nose. Paul straightened, staring at Cheney. He felt carnival excitement in the air. He knew what would happen if he drank this spice drug with its quintessence of the substance that brought the change onto him. He would return to the vision of pure time, of time become space. It would perch him on the dizzying summit and defy him to understand. From behind Cheney, Stilgar spoke. Drink it, lad. You delay the right. Paul listened to the crowd then, hearing the wildness in their voices. Lisan al-Gaib, they said. Mwadib. He looked down at his mother. She appeared peacefully asleep in a sitting position, her breathing even and deep. A phrase out of the future that was his lonely past came into his mind. She sleeps in the waters of life. Cheney tugged at his sleeve. Paul took the horn spout into his mouth, heard the people shout. He felt the liquid gush into his throat as Cheney pressed the sack, sensed giddiness in the fumes. Cheney removed the spout, handed the sack into hands that reached for it from the floor of the cavern. His eyes focused on her arm, the green band of mourning there. As she straightened, Cheney saw the direction of his gaze. I can mourn him even in the happiness of the waters. This was something he gave us. She put her hand into his, pulling him along the ledge. We are alike in a thing, Usul. We have each lost a father to the Harkonnens. 
Paul followed her. He felt that his head had been separated from his body and restored with odd connections. His legs were remote and rubbery. They entered a narrow side passage, its walls dimly lighted by spaced-out glow-globes. Paul felt the drug beginning to have its unique effect on him, opening time like a flower. He found need to steady himself against Cheney as they turned through another shadowed tunnel. The mixture of whipcord and softness he felt beneath her robe stirred his blood. The sensation mingled with the work of the drug, folding future and past into the present, leaving him the thinnest margin of trinocular focus. I know you, Cheney. We've sat upon a ledge above the sand while I soothed your fears. We've caressed in the dark of the CH. We've... Paul found himself losing focus, tried to shake his head, stumbled. Cheney steadied him, led him through thick hangings into the yellow warmth of a private apartment, low tables, cushions, a sleeping pad beneath an orange spread. Paul grew aware that they had stopped, that Cheney stood facing him, and that her eyes betrayed a look of quiet terror. You must tell me. You are Sihaya, the desert spring. When the tribe shares the water, we're together, all of us. We share. I can sense the others with me, but I'm afraid to share with you. Why? He tried to focus on her, but past and future were merging into the present, blurring her image. He saw her in countless ways and positions and settings. There's something frightening in you. When I took you away from the others, I did it because I could feel what the others wanted. You press on people. You make us see things. What do you see? Paul had forced himself to speak distinctly. She looked down at her hands. I see a child in my arms. It's our child, yours and mine. Cheney put a hand to her mouth. How can I know every feature of you? They've a little of the talent, his mind told him but they suppress it because it terrifies. In a moment of clarity, he saw how Cheney was trembling. What is it you want to say? Usul. You cannot back into the future. A profound compassion for her swept through him. He pulled her against him, stroked her head. Cheney. Cheney, don't fear. Usul, help me. As she spoke, he felt the drug complete its work within him, ripping away the curtains to let him see the distant grey turmoil of his future. You're so quiet. He held himself poised in the awareness, seeing time stretch out in its weird dimension, delicately balanced yet whirling, narrow yet spread like a net, gathering countless worlds and forces, a tight wire that he must walk, yet a teeter-totter on which he balanced. On one side he could see the Imperium, a Harkonnen called Fade Rautha who flashed toward him like a deadly blade, the Sadoka raging off their planet to spread pogrom on Arrakis, the Guild conniving and plotting, the Bene Gesserit with their scheme of selective breeding, they lay massed like a thunderhead on his horizon, held back by no more than the Fremen and their Muad'Dib, the sleeping giant Fremen, poised for their wild crusade across the universe. 
Paul felt himself at the center, at the pivot where the whole structure turned, walking a thin wire of peace with a measure of happiness, Cheney at his side. He could see it stretching ahead of him, a time of relative quiet in a hidden siege, a moment of peace between periods of violence. There's no other place for peace. Usul, you're crying. Usul, my strength. Do you give moisture to the dead? To whose dead? To ones not yet dead. Then let them have their time of life. He sensed through the drug fog how right she was. Pulled her against him with savage pressure. See higher. She put a palm against his cheek. I'm no longer afraid, Usul. Look at me. I see what you see when you hold me thus. What do you see? I see us giving love to each other in a time of quiet between storms. It's what we were meant to do. The drug had him again, and he thought, so many times you've given me comfort and forgetfulness. He felt anew the hyper-illumination with its high-relief imagery of time, sensed his future becoming memories, the tender indignities of physical love, the sharing and communion of selves, the softness and the violence. You're the strong one, Cheney. Stay with me. Always. And she kissed his cheek. Book Three The Prophet No woman, no man, no child ever was deeply intimate with my father. The closest anyone ever came to casual camaraderie with the Padishah Emperor was the relationship offered by Count Hasmir Fenring, a companion from childhood. The measure of Count Fenring's friendship may be seen first in a positive thing. He allayed the Landsrod's suspicions after the Arrakis affair. It cost more than a billion salaries in spice bribes, so my mother said, and there were other gifts as well, slave women, royal honors, and tokens of rank. The second major evidence of the Count's friendship was negative. He refused to kill a man even though it was within his capabilities, and my father commanded it. I will relate this presently. Count Fenring, a profile by the Princess Irulan. The Baron Vladimir Harkonnen raged down the corridor from his private apartments, flitting through patches of late afternoon sunlight that poured down from high windows. He bobbed and twisted in his suspensers with violent movements. Past the private kitchen he stormed, past the library, past the small reception room and into the servants' antechamber where the evening relaxation already had set in. The guard captain, Iokin Nefud, squatted on a divan across the chamber, the stupor of Semuta dullness in his flat face, the eerie wailing of Semuta music around him. His own court sat near to do his bidding. Nefud! the baron roared. Men scrambled. Nefud stood, his face composed by the narcotic but with an overlay of paleness that told of his fear. The Semuta music had stopped. My Lord Baron, Nefud said. Only the drug kept the trembling out of his voice. The Baron scanned the faces around him, seeing the looks of frantic quiet in them. He returned his attention to Nefud and spoke in a silken tone. How long 
have you been my guard, Captain Nefoud? Nefoud swallowed. Since Arrakis, my lord. Almost two years. And have you always anticipated dangers to my person? Such has been my only desire, my lord. Then where is Fade Rotha? the baron roared. Nefoud recoiled. My lord? You do not consider Fade Rotha a danger to my person? Again the voice was silken. Nefoud wet his lips with his tongue. Some of the Samuta dullness left his eyes. Fade Rotha's in the slave quarters, my lord. With the women again, eh? The baron trembled with the effort of suppressing anger. Sire, it could be his silence! The baron advanced another step into the antechamber, noting how the men moved back, clearing a subtle space around Nefoud, dissociating themselves from the object of wrath. Did I not command you to know precisely where the Narbaron was at all times? The baron asked. He moved a step closer. Did I not say to you that you were to know precisely what the Narbaron was saying at all times? And to whom? Another step. Did I not say to you that you were to tell me whenever he went into the quarters of the slave women? Nefud swallowed. Perspiration stood out on his forehead. The baron held his voice flat, almost devoid of emphasis. Did I not say these things to you? Nefud nodded. And did I not say to you that you were to check all slave boys sent to me, and that you were to do this yourself, personally? Again, Nefud nodded. Did you, perchance, not see the blemish on the thigh of the one sent me this evening? The Baron asked. Is it possible, you... Uncle! The Baron whirled, stared at Fadrather standing in the doorway. The presence of his nephew here, now, the look of hurry that the young man could not quite conceal, all revealed much. Fade Rather had his own spy system focused on the Baron. There is a body in my chambers that I wish removed, the Baron said, and he kept his hand at the projectile weapon beneath his robes, thankful that his shield was the best. Fade Rather glanced at two guardsmen against the right wall, nodded. The two detached themselves, scurried out the door and down the hall toward the Baron's apartments. Those two, eh? the Baron thought. Ah, this young monster has much to learn yet about conspiracy. I presume you left matters peaceful in the slave quarters, Fade, the Baron said. I've been playing Cheops with a slave master, Fade Rather said, and he thought, what has gone wrong? The boy we sent to my uncle has obviously been killed, but he was perfect for the job. Even Howard couldn't have made a better choice. The boy was perfect. Playing pyramid chess, the Baron said. How nice. Did you win? I, uh, yes, uncle. And Fade Rather strove to contain his disquiet. The Baron snapped his fingers. Nefud, you wish to be restored to my good graces? Sire, what have I done? Nefud quavered. That's unimportant now, the Baron said. Fade has beaten the slave master at Cheops. Did you hear that? Yes, sire. I wish you to take three men and go to the slave master, the baron said. Garot, the slave master. 
Bring his body to me when you've finished, that I may see it was done properly. We cannot have such inept chess players in our employ. Fade Rother went pale, took a step forward. But, Uncle, I... Later, Fade, the Baron said and waved a hand. Later. The two guards who had gone to the Baron's quarters for the slave boy's body staggered past the antechamber door with their load sagging between them, arms trailing. The Baron watched until they were out of sight. Nafud stepped up beside the Baron. You wish me to kill the slave master now, my lord? Now, the Baron said. And when you've finished, add those two who just passed to your list. I don't like the way they carried that body. One should do such things neatly. I'll wish to see their carcasses, too. Nafud said, My lord, is it anything that I've... Do as your master has ordered, Fadrather said. And he thought, All I can hope for now is to save my own skin. Good, the baron thought. He yet knows how to cut his losses. And the baron smiled inwardly at himself, thinking... The lad knows, too, what will please me and be most apt to stay my wrath from falling on him. He knows I must preserve him. Who else do I have who could take the reins I must leave some day? I have no other as capable. But he must learn, and I must preserve myself while he's learning. Nefud signaled men to assist him, led them out the door. Would you accompany me to my chambers, Fade? the baron asked. I am yours to command, Fade Rother said. He bowed, thinking, I'm caught. After you, the baron said, and he gestured to the door. Fade Rother indicated his fear by only the barest hesitation. Have I failed utterly? He asked himself. Will he slip a poisoned blade into my back, slowly, through the shield? Does he have an alternative successor? Let him experience this moment of terror, the Baron thought, as he walked along behind his nephew. He will succeed me, but at a time of my choosing, I'll not have him throwing away what I've built. Fadrather tried not to walk too swiftly. He felt the skin crawling on his back, as though his body itself wondered when the blow could come. His muscles alternately tensed and relaxed. Have you heard the latest word from Arrakis? the Baron asked. No, uncle. Fade Rather forced himself not to look back. He turned down the hall out of the servant's wing. They've a new prophet or religious leader of some kind among the Fremen, the Baron said. They call him Muad'Dib. Very funny, really. It means the mouse. I've told Raban to let them have their religion. It'll keep them occupied. That's very interesting, uncle. Fadrather said. He turned into the private corridor to his uncle's quarters, wondering, why does he talk about religion? Is it some subtle hint to me? Yes, isn't it? The Baron said. They came into the Baron's apartments through the reception salon to the bedchamber. Subtle signs of a struggle greeted them here, a suspenser lamp displaced, a bed cushion on the floor, a soother reel spilled open across a bedstand. It was a clever plan. The Baron kept his body shield tuned to maximum. 
stopped, facing his nephew. But not clever enough. Tell me, Fade, why didn't you strike me down yourself? You've had opportunity enough. Fade Rather found a suspenser chair, accomplished a mental shrug as he sat down in it without being asked. I must be bold now, he thought. You taught me that my own hands must remain clean. Ah, yes. When you face the Emperor, you must be able to say truthfully that you did not do the deed. The witch at the Emperor's elbow will hear your words and know their truth or falsehood. <laughs> yes, I warned you about that. Why haven't you ever bought a Bene Gesserit, Uncle? With a truthsayer at your side... You know my tastes. Fade Rather studied his uncle. Still, one would be valuable for... I trust them not, and stop trying to change the subject. As you wish, Uncle. I remember a time in the arena several years ago. It seemed there that day a slave had been set to kill you. Is that truly how it was? It's been so long ago, Uncle. After all, I... No evasions, please. Fade Rother looked at his uncle, thinking, He knows, else he wouldn't ask. It was a sham, Uncle. I arranged it to discredit your slave master. Very clever. Brave, too. That slave gladiator almost took you, didn't he? Yes. If you had finesse and subtlety to match such courage, you'd be truly formidable. The Baron shook his head from side to side. As he had done many times since that terrible day on Arrakis, he found himself regretting the loss of Piter the Mentat. There'd been a man of delicate, devilish subtlety. It hadn't saved him, though. Again, the Baron shook his head. Fate was sometimes inscrutable. Vaidratha glanced around the bedchamber, studying the signs of the struggle, wondering how his uncle had overcome the slave they'd prepared so carefully. How did I best him? Ah, now, Fade. Let me keep some weapons to preserve me in my old age. It's better we use this time to strike a bargain. Fade Rather stared at him. A bargain? He means to keep me as his heir for certain, then. Else why bargain? One bargains with equals, or near equals. What bargain, Uncle? And Fade Rather felt proud that his voice remained calm and reasonable, betraying none of the elation that filled him. The Baron, too, noted the control. He nodded. You're good material, Fade. I don't waste good material. You persist, however, in refusing to learn my true value to you. You are obstinate. You do not see why I should be preserved as someone of the utmost value to you. This... He gestured at the evidence of the struggle in the bedchamber. This was foolishness. I do not reward foolishness. Get to the point, you old fool, Fate Rother thought. You think of me as an old fool. I must dissuade you of that. You speak of a bargain. Ah, the impatience of youth. Well, this is the substance of it, then. You will cease these foolish attempts on my life, and I, when you are ready for it, will step aside in your favor. I will retire to an advisory position, leaving you in the seat of power. Retire, uncle? You still think me the fool, and this but confirms it, eh? You think I'm begging you. Step cautiously, Fade. This old fool saw through the shielded needle you planted in that slave boy's thigh. Right where I'd put my hand on it, eh? The smallest pressure and... Snick! A poison needle in the old fool's palm. Ah, fade. 
The Baron shook his head, thinking, it would have worked too if Howard hadn't warned me. Well, let the lad believe I saw the plot on my own. In a way, I did. I was the one who saved Howard from the wreckage of Arrakis, and this lad needs greater respect for my prowess. Fade Rautha remained silent, struggling with himself. Is he being truthful? Does he really mean to retire? Why not? I'm sure to succeed him one day if I move carefully. He can't live forever. Perhaps it was foolish to try hurrying the process. You speak of a bargain. What pledge do we give to bind it? How can we trust each other, eh? Well, Fade, as for you, I'm setting Thufir Hawat to watch over you. I trust Hawat's mentat capabilities in this. Do you understand me? And as for me, you'll have to take me on faith. But I can't live forever, can I, Fade? And perhaps you should begin to suspect now that there are things I know which you should know. I give you my pledge. And what do you give me? I let you go on living. Again, Fade Rautha studied his uncle. He sets Howard over me. What would he say if I told him Howard planned the trick with the gladiator that cost him his slave master? He'd likely say I was lying in the attempt to discredit Howard. No, the good Thufir is a mentat and has anticipated this moment. Well, what do you say? What can I say? I accept, of course. And Fade Rautha thought, Howard, he plays both ends against the middle. Is that it? Has he moved to my uncle's camp because I didn't counsel with him over the slave boy attempt? You haven't said anything about my setting Howard to watch you. Fade Rautha betrayed anger by a flaring of nostrils. The name of Howard had been a danger signal in the Harkonnen family for so many years, and now it had a new meaning. Still dangerous. Howard's a dangerous toy. Toy? Don't be stupid. I know what I have in Howard and how to control it. Howard has deep emotions, Fade. The man without emotions is the one to fear, but deep emotions, huh? Now those can be bent to your needs. Uncle, I don't understand you. Yes, that's plain enough. Only a flicker of eyelids betrayed the passage of resentment through Fade Rautha. And you do not understand Howard? Nor do you, Fade Rautha thought. Who does Howard blame for his present circumstances? Me? Certainly. But he was an Atreides tool and bested me for years until the Imperium took a hand. That's how he sees it. His hate for me is a casual thing now. He believes he can best me any time. Believing this, he is bested. For I direct his attention where I want it. Against the Imperium. Tensions of a new understanding drew tight lines across Phaedrautha's forehead, thinned his mouth. Against the Emperor? Let my dear nephew try the taste of that, the Baron thought. Let him say to himself, the Emperor Fade Rautha Harkonnen. Let him ask himself how much that's worth. Surely it must be worth the life of one old uncle who could make that dream come to pass. Slowly, Fade Rautha wet his lips with his tongue. Could it be true what the old fool was saying? There was more here than there seemed to be. And what has Howard to do with this? He thinks he uses us to wreak his revenge upon the Emperor. And when that's accomplished? He does not think beyond his revenge. Howard's a man who must serve others, and doesn't even know this about himself. I've learned much from Howard. 
Vaidratha felt the truth of the words as he spoke them. But the more I learn, the more I feel we should dispose of him, and soon. You don't like the idea of his watching you? How it watches everybody. And he may put you on a throne. Hawat is subtle, he is dangerous, devious. But I'll not yet withhold the antidote from him. A sword is dangerous too, Fade. We have the scabbard for this one, though. The poison's in him. When we withdraw the antidote, death will sheathe him. In a way, it's like the arena. Faints within faints within faints. You watch to see which way the gladiator leans, which way he looks, how he holds his knife. He nodded to himself, seeing that these words pleased his uncle, but thinking, yes, like the arena, and the cutting edge is the mind. Now you see you need me. I'm yet of use, Fade. A sword to be wielded until he's too blunt for use, Fade Rother thought. Yes, uncle. And now we will go down to the slave quarters, we two. And I will watch while you, with your own hands, kill all the women in the pleasure wing. Uncle! There will be other women, Fade. But I have said that you do not make a mistake casually with me. Fade Rother's face darkened. Uncle, you... You will accept your punishment and learn something from it. Vaidratha met the gloating stare in his uncle's eyes. And I must remember this night, he thought. And remembering it, I must remember other nights. You will not refuse. What could you do if I refused, old man? Vaidratha asked himself. But he knew there might be some other punishment. Perhaps a more subtle one. A more brutal lever to bend him. I know you, Fade. You will not refuse. All right, Fade Rother thought. I need you now. I see that. The bargain's made. But I'll not always need you. And someday. Deep in the human unconscious is a pervasive need for a logical universe that makes sense. But the real universe is always one step beyond logic. From Sayings of the Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. I've sat across from many rulers of great houses, but never seen a more gross and dangerous pig than this one, Thufir Howard told himself. You may speak plainly with me, Howard, the Baron rumbled. He leaned back in his suspenser chair, the eyes in their folds of fat boring into Howard. The old Mentat looked down at the table between him and the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, noting the opulence of its grain. Even this was a factor to consider in assessing the Baron, as were the red walls of this private conference room, and the faint, sweet herb scent that hung on the air, masking a deeper musk. "'You didn't have me send that warning to Raban as an idle whim,' the Baron said. Howard's leathery old face remained impassive, betraying none of the loathing he felt. "'I suspect many things, my lord,' he said. "'Yes. Well, I wish to know how Arrakis figures in your suspicions about Seleucer Secundus. It is not enough that you say to me the Emperor is in a ferment about some association between Arrakis and his mysterious prison planet. Now, I rushed the warning out to Raban only because a courier had to leave on that highliner.' You said there could be no delay. Well and good. 
but now I will have an explanation. He babbles too much, Howard thought. He's not like Leto, who could tell me a thing with the lift of an eyebrow or the wave of a hand, nor like the old duke, who could express an entire sentence in the way he accented a single word. This is a clod. Destroying him will be a service to mankind. You will not leave here until I've had a full and complete explanation, the baron said. You speak too casually of Seleucus Secundus, Howard said. It's a penal colony, the baron said. The worst riffraff in the galaxy are sent to Seleucus Secundus. What else do we need to know? That conditions on the prison planet are more oppressive than anywhere else, Howard said. You hear that the mortality rate among new prisoners is higher than sixty percent. You hear that the Emperor practices every form of oppression there. You hear all this and do not ask questions. The Emperor doesn't permit the great houses to inspect his prison, the Baron growled. But he hasn't seen into my dungeons either. And curiosity about Seleucus Secundus is, uh, Howard put a bony finger to his lips, discouraged. So he's not proud of some of the things he must do there. Howard allowed the faintest of smiles to touch his dark lips. His eyes glinted in the glow-tube light as he stared at the Baron. And you've never wondered where the Emperor gets his sardauka? The Baron pursed his fat lips. This gave his features the look of a pouting baby, and his voice carried a tone of petulance as he said, Why, he recruits? That is to say, there are the levies, and he enlists from... Fah! Howard snapped. The stories you hear about the exploits of the sardauka, they're not rumours, are they? Those are first-hand accounts from the limited number of survivors who fought against the Sardaka, eh? The Sardaka are excellent fighting men, no doubt of it, the Baron said. But I think my own legions, a pack of holiday excursionists by comparison, Howard snarled. You think I don't know why the Emperor turned against House Atreides? This is not a realm open to your speculation, the Baron warned. Is it possible that even he doesn't know what motivated the Emperor in this? Howard asked himself. Any area is open to my speculation if it does what you've hired me to do, Howard said. I am a mentat. You do not withhold information or computation lines from a mentat. For a long minute, the Baron stared at him. Then, say what you must say, mentat. The Padishah Emperor turned against House Atreides because the Duke's war masters, Gurney Haddock and Duncan Idaho, had trained a fighting force, a small fighting force, to within a hair as good as the Sardauka. Some of them were even better, and the Duke was in a position to enlarge his force, to make it every bit as strong as the Emperor's. The Baron weighed this disclosure, then, What has Arrakis to do with this? It provides a pool of recruits already conditioned to the bitterest survival training. The Baron shook his head. You cannot mean the Fremen. I mean the Fremen. Ha! Then why warn Raban? There cannot be more than a handful of Fremen left after the Sardaka pogrom and Raban's oppression. Howat continued to stare at him silently. Not more than a handful, the Baron repeated. Raban killed six thousand of them last year alone. Still, Howard stared at him. And the year before it was nine thousand, the Baron said. And before they left, 
The Sardica must have accounted for at least twenty thousand. What are Aban's troop losses for the past two years? Howard asked. The Baron rubbed his jowls. Well, he has been recruiting rather heavily, to be sure. His agents make rather extravagant promises, and shall we say thirty thousand in round numbers? Howard asked. That would seem a little high, the Baron said. Quite the contrary, Howard said. I can read between the lines of Raban's reports as well as you can, and you certainly must have understood my reports from our agents. Arrakis is a fierce planet, the Baron said. Storm losses can— We both know the figure for storm accretion, Howard said. What if he has lost thirty thousand, the Baron demanded, and blood darkened his face. By your own count, Howard said, he killed fifteen thousand over two years, while losing twice that number. You say the Sardica accounted for another twenty thousand, possibly a few more, and I've seen the transportation manifests for their return from Arrakis. If they killed twenty thousand, they lost almost five for one. Why won't you face these figures, Baron, and understand what they mean? The Baron spoke in a coldly measured cadence. This is your job, Mentat. What do they mean? I gave you Duncan Idaho's headcount on the Sietch he visited, Howard said. It all fits. If they had just two hundred and fifty such Sietch communities, their population would be about five million. My best estimate is that they had at least twice that many communities. You scatter your population on such a planet. Ten million? The Baron's jowls quivered with amazement. At least! The Baron pursed his fat lips. The beady eyes stared without wavering at Howard. Is this true Mentat computation? he wondered. How could this be and no one suspect? We haven't even cut heavily into their birth-rate growth figure, Howard said. We've just weeded out some of their less successful specimens, leaving the strong to grow stronger, just like on Seleucus Secundus. Seleucus Secundus, the Baron barked. What has this to do with the Emperor's prison planet? The man who survives Seleucus Secundus starts out being tougher than most others, Howard said. When you add the very best of military training... Nonsense! By your argument, I could recruit from among the Fremen after the way they've been oppressed by my nephew. Howard spoke in a mild voice. Don't you oppress any of your troops? Well, I... but... Oppression is a relative thing, Howard said. Your fighting men are much better off than those around them, hey? They see unpleasant alternative to being soldiers of the Baron, hey? The Baron fell silent, eyes unfocused. The possibilities... Had Raban unwittingly given House Harkonnen its ultimate weapon? Presently, he said, How could you be sure of the loyalty of such recruits? I would take them in small groups, not larger than platoon strength, Howard said. I'd remove them from their oppressive situation and isolate them with a training cadre of people who understood their background. Preferably people who had preceded them from the same oppressive situation. Then I'd fill them with the mystique that their planet had really been a secret training ground to produce just such superior beings as themselves. And all the while I'd show them what such superior beings could earn. Rich living, beautiful women, fine mansions, whatever they desired. The Baron began to nod. The way the Sardica live at home. 
The recruits come to believe in time that such a place as Seleucus Secundus is justified because it produced them, the elite. The communist Sardauka trooper lives a life in many respects, as exalted as that of any member of a great house. Such an idea, the baron whispered. You begin to share my suspicions, Howard said. Where did such a thing start? the baron asked. Ah, yes. Where did House Corino originate? Were there people on Seleucus Secundus before the emperor sent his first contingents of prisoners there? Even the Duke Leto, a cousin on the distaff side, never knew for sure. Such questions are not encouraged. The baron's eyes glazed with thought. Yes, a very carefully kept secret. They'd used every device of... Besides, what's there to conceal? Howard asked. That the Padishah Emperor has a prison planet? Everyone knows this. That he has... Count Fenring, the baron blurted. Howard broke off, studied the baron with a puzzled frown. What of Count Fenring? At my nephew's birthday, several years ago, the baron said. This imperial popinjay, Count Fenring, came as official observer and to... Ah, conclude a business arrangement between the emperor and myself. So? I... Uh, during one of our conversations, I believe I said something about making a prison planet of Arrakis. Fenring... What did you say exactly? Howard asked. Exactly. That was quite a while ago, and... My lord baron, if you wish to make the best use of my services, you must give me adequate information. Wasn't this conversation recorded? The baron's face darkened with anger. You're as bad as Piter. I don't like these. Piter is no longer with you, my lord, Howard said. As to that, whatever did happen to Piter? He became too familiar. Too demanding of me, the baron said. You assure me you don't waste a useful man, Howard said. Will you waste me by threats and quibbling? We were discussing what you said to Count Fenring. Slowly the baron composed his features. When the time comes, he thought, I'll remember his manner with me. Yes, I will remember. One moment, the baron said, and he thought back to the meeting in his great hall. It helped to visualize the cone of silence in which they had stood. I said something like this, the baron said. The emperor knows a certain amount of killing has always been an arm of business. I was referring to our workforce losses. Then I said something about considering another solution to the Arakeen problem, and I said the emperor's prison planet inspired me to emulate him. Which blood? Howard snapped. What did Fenring say? That's when he began questioning me about you. Howard sat back, closed his eyes in thought. So that's why they started looking into Arrakis, he said. Well, the thing's done, he opened his eyes. They must have spies all over Arrakis by now. Two years. But certainly my innocent suggestion that nothing is innocent in an emperor's eyes. What were your instructions to Raban? Merely that he should teach Arrakis to fear us. Howard shook his head. You now have two alternatives, Baron. You can kill off the natives, wipe them out entirely, or waste an entire workforce. Would you prefer to have the Emperor and those great houses he can still swing behind him come in here and perform a curettement? Scrape out Gede Prime like a hollow gourd? The Baron studied his mentat, then... He wouldn't dare. Wouldn't he? The Baron's lips quivered. 
What is your alternative? Abandon your dear nephew, Raban. Aban? The baron broke off, stared at Howard. Send him no more troops, no aid of any kind. Don't answer his messages other than to say you've heard of the terrible way he's handled things on Arrakis, and you intend to take corrective measures as soon as you're able. I'll arrange to have some of your messages intercepted by imperial spies. But what are the spice, the revenues, the... Demand your baronial profits, but be careful how you make your demands. Require fixed sums of Raban. We can... The baron turned his hands palm up. But how can I be certain that my weasel nephew isn't... We still have our spies on Arrakis. Tell Raban he either meets the spice quotas you set him or he'll be replaced. I know my nephew, the baron said. This would only make him oppress the population even more. Of course he will, Howard snapped. You don't want that stopped now. You merely want your own hands clean. Let Raban make your Seleucus Secundus for you. There's no need even to send him any prisoners. He has all the population required. If Raban is driving his people to meet your spice quotas, then the Emperor need suspect no other motive. That's reason enough for putting the planet on the rack. And you, Baron, will not show by word or action that there's any other reason for this. The Baron could not keep the sly tone of admiration out of his voice. Ah, Howard, you are a devious one. Now, how do we move into Arrakis and make use of what Raban prepares? That's the simplest thing of all, Baron. If you set each year's quota a bit higher than the one before, matters will soon reach ahead there. Production will drop off. You can remove Raban and take over yourself to correct the mess. It fits, the Baron said. But I can feel myself tiring of all this. I'm preparing another to take over Arrakis for me. Howat studied the fat, round face across from him. Slowly the old soldier spy began to nod his head. Fade Rauther, he said. So that's the reason for the oppression now. You're very devious yourself, Baron. Perhaps we can incorporate these two schemes. Yes. Your Fade Rauther can go to Arrakis as their saviour. He can win the populace, yes. The Baron smiled. And behind his smile he asked himself, Now, how does this fit in with Howard's personal scheming? And Howard, seeing that he was dismissed, arose and left the red-walled room. As he walked, he could not put down the disturbing unknowns that cropped into every computation about Arrakis. This new religious leader that Gurney Halleck hinted at from his hiding place among the smugglers, this Muad'Dib. Perhaps I should not have told the Baron to let this religion flourish where it will, even among the folk of Pan and Graben, he told himself. But it's well known that repression makes a religion flourish. And he thought about Halleck's reports on Fremen battle tactics. The tactics smacked of Halleck himself, and Idaho, and even of Howard. Did Idaho survive? he asked himself. But this was a futile question. He did not yet ask himself if it was possible that Paul had survived. He knew the Baron was convinced that all Atreides were dead. The Bene Gesserit witch had been his weapon the Baron admitted, and that could only mean an end to all, even to the woman's own son. What a poisonous hate she must have had for the Atreides, he thought. Something like the hate I hold for this Baron. Will my blow be as final and complete as hers?
There is in all things a pattern that is part of our universe. It has symmetry, elegance, and grace. Those qualities you find always in that which the true artist captures. You can find it in the turning of the seasons, in the way sand trails along a ridge, in the branch clusters of the creosote bush or the pattern of its leaves. We try to copy these patterns in our lives and our society, seeking the rhythms, the dances, the forms that comfort. Yet it is possible to see peril in the finding of ultimate perfection. It is clear that the ultimate pattern contains its own fixity. In such perfection, all things move toward death. From the collected sayings of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. Paul Muad'Dib remembered that there had been a meal, heavy with spice essence. He clung to this memory because it was an anchor point, and he could tell himself from this vantage that his immediate experience must be a dream. I am a theatre of processes, he told himself. I am a prey to the imperfect vision, to the race consciousness and its terrible purpose. Yet he could not escape the fear that he had somehow overrun himself, lost his position in time, so that past and future and present mingled without distinction. It was a kind of visual fatigue, and it came, he knew, from the constant necessity of holding the prescient future as a kind of memory that was in itself a thing intrinsically of the past. Cheney prepared the meal for me, he told himself. Yet Cheney was deep in the south, in the cold country where the sun was hot, secreted in one of the new Siech strongholds, safe with their son, Leto II. Or was that a thing yet to happen? No, he reassured himself, for Aaliyah the Strange One, his sister, had gone there with his mother and with Cheney, a twenty-thumper trip into the south, riding a reverend mother's palanquin fixed to the back of a wild maker. He shied away from the thought of riding the giant worms, asking himself, What is Aliyah yet to be born? I was on a razia, Paul recalled. I went raiding to recover the water of our dead in Arakin, and I found the remains of my father in the funeral pyre. I enshrined the skull of my father in a Fremen rock mound overlooking Harg Pass. Or was that a thing yet to be? My wounds are real, Paul told himself. My scars are real. The shrine of my father's skull is real. Still in the dreamlike state, Paul remembered that Hera, James's wife, had intruded on him once to say there'd been a fight in the Siech corridor. That had been the interim Siech before the women and children had been sent into the deep south. Hera had stood there in the entrance to the inner chamber, the black wings of her hair tied back by water rings on a chain. She had held aside the chamber's hangings and told him that Cheney had just killed someone. This happened, Paul told himself. This was real, not born out of its time and subject to change. Paul remembered he had rushed out to find Cheney standing beneath the yellow globes of the corridor, clad in a brilliant blue wraparound robe with hood thrown back, a flush of exertion on her elfin features. She had been sheathing her criss knife. A huddled group had been hurrying away down the corridor with a burden. And Paul remembered telling himself, you always know when they're carrying a body. Cheney's water rings, worn openly in Siech on a cord around her neck, tinkled as she turned toward him. Cheney, what is this? 
he asked. I dispatched one who came to challenge you in single combat, Usul. You killed him? Yes, but perhaps I should have left him for Hera. And Paul recalled how the faces of the people around them had showed appreciation for these words. Even Hera had laughed. But he came to challenge me. You trained me yourself in the weirding way, Usul. Certainly, but you shouldn't. I was born in the desert, Usul. I know how to use a Chris knife. He suppressed his anger, tried to talk reasonably. This may all be true, Cheney, but I am no longer a child hunting scorpions in the Siege by the light of a hand globe, Usul. I do not play games. Paul glared at her, caught by the odd ferocity beneath her casual attitude. He was not worthy, Usul, Cheney said. I'd not disturb your meditations with the likes of him. She moved closer, looking at him out of the corners of her eyes, dropping her voice so that only he might hear. And, beloved, when it's learned that a challenger may face me and be brought to shameful death by Muad'Dib's woman, there'll be fewer challengers. Yes, Paul told himself, that has certainly happened. It was true past, and the number of challengers testing the new blade of Muad'Dib did drop dramatically. Somewhere, in a world not of the dream, there was a hint of motion, the cry of a night bird. I dream, Paul reassured himself. It's the spice meal. Still, there was about him a feeling of abandonment. He wondered if it might be possible that his rue spirit had slipped over somehow into the world where the Fremen believed he had his true existence, into the Alam al-Mithal, the world of similitudes, that metaphysical realm where all physical limitations were removed. And he knew fear at the thought of such a place, because removal of all limitations meant removal of all points of reference. In the landscape of a myth he could not orient himself and say, I am I, because I am here. His mother had once said, The people are divided, some of them, in how they think of you. I must be waking from the dream, Paul told himself. For this had happened. These words from his mother, the Lady Jessica, who was now a reverend mother of the Fremen, these words had passed through reality. Jessica was fearful of the religious relationship between himself and the Fremen, Paul knew. She didn't like the fact that people of both Siech and Graben referred to Muad'Dib as him, and she went questioning among the tribes, sending out her Sayadina spies, collecting their answers and brooding on them. She had quoted a Bene Gesserit proverb to him. When religion and politics travel in the same cart, the riders believe nothing can stand in their way. Their movement becomes headlong, faster and faster and faster. They put aside all thought of obstacles and forget that a precipice does not show itself to a man in a blind rush until it's too late. Paul recalled that he had sat there in his mother's quarters in the inner chamber, shrouded by dark hangings with their surfaces covered by woven patterns out of Fremen mythology. He had sat there, hearing her out, noting the way she was always observing, even when her eyes were lowered. Her oval face had new lines in it at the corners of the mouth, but the hair was still like polished bronze. The wide-set green eyes, though, hid beneath their overcasting of spice-imbued blue. The Fremen have a simple, practical religion, he said. 
Nothing about religion is simple, she warned. But Paul, seeing the clouded future that still hung over them, found himself swayed by anger. He could only say, Religion unifies our forces. It's our mystique. You deliberately cultivate this air, this bravura, she charged. You never cease indoctrinating. Thus you yourself taught me, he said. But she had been full of contentions and arguments that day. It had been the day of the circumcision ceremony for little Leto. Paul had understood some of the reasons for her upset. She had never accepted his liaison, the marriage of youth with Cheney. But Cheney had produced an Atreides son, and Jessica had found herself unable to reject the child with the mother. Jessica had stirred finally under his stare, said, You think me an unnatural mother? Of course not. I see the way you watch me when I'm with your sister. You don't understand about your sister. I know why Aaliyah is different, he said. She was unborn, part of you, when you changed the water of life. She... You know nothing of it. And Paul, suddenly unable to express the knowledge gained out of its time, said only, I don't think you unnatural. She saw his distress, said, There is a thing, son. Yes? I do love your Cheney. I accept her. This was real, Paul told himself. This wasn't the imperfect vision, to be changed by the twistings out of time's own birth. The reassurance gave him a new hold on his world. Bits of solid reality began to dip through the dream state into his awareness. He knew suddenly that he was in a hereg, a desert camp. Cheney had planted their still tent on flower sand for its softness. That could only mean Cheney was nearby. Cheney, his soul. Cheney, his sihaya, sweet as the desert spring. Cheney, up from the palmaries of the deep south. Now he remembered her singing a sand shanty to him in the time for sleep. Oh, my soul, have no taste for paradise this night, and I swear by Shai Hulud you will go there, obedient to my love. And she had sung the walking song lovers shared on the sand, its rhythm like the drag of the dunes against the feet. Tell me of thine eyes, and I will tell thee of my heart. Tell me of thy feet and I will tell thee of thy hands. Tell me of thy sleeping, and I will tell thee of thy waking. Tell me of thy desires, and I will tell thee of thy need. He had heard someone strumming a baliset in another tent, and he thought then of Gurney Halleck. Reminded by the familiar instrument, he had thought of Gurney, whose face he had seen in a smuggler band, but who had not seen him, could not see him, or know of him, lest that inadvertently lead the Harkonnens to the son of the duke they had killed. But the style of the player in the night, the distinctiveness of the fingers on the Balisette's strings, brought the real musician back to Paul's memory. It had been Chat the leper, captain of the Vedaikin, leader of the death commanders who guarded Muad'Dib. We are in the desert, Paul remembered. We are in the central erg beyond the Harkonnen patrols. I am here to walk the sand, to lure a maker and mount him by my own cunning that I may be a Fremen entire. He felt now the Mauler pistol at his belt, the Chris knife. He felt the silence surrounding him. 
It was that special pre-morning silence when the night birds had gone and the day creatures had not yet signalled their alertness to their enemy, the sun. You must ride the sand in the light of day that Shai Hulud shall see and know you have no fear, Stilgar had said. Thus we turn our time around and set ourselves to sleep this night. Quietly, Paul sat up, feeling the looseness of a slacked stillsuit around his body, the shadowed still tent beyond. So softly he moved. Yet Cheney heard him. She spoke from the tent's gloom, another shadow there. It's not yet full light, beloved. Sihaya, he said, speaking with half a laugh in his voice. You call me your desert spring, she said, but this day I'm thy goad. I am the Sayadina who watches that the rites be obeyed. He began tightening his still suit. You told me once the words of the Kitab Alibar, he said. You told me, woman is thy field. Go then to thy field and till it. I am the mother of thy firstborn, she agreed. He saw her in the greyness matching him movement for movement, securing her still suit for the open desert. You should get all the rest you can, she said. He recognized her love for him speaking then and chided her gently. The Sayadina of the watch does not caution or warn the candidate. She slid across to his side, touched his cheek with her palm. Today I am both the watcher and the woman. You should have left this duty to another, he said. Waiting is bad enough at best, she said. I'd sooner be at thy side. He kissed her palm before securing the face flap of his suit, then turned and cracked the seal of the tent. The air that came into them held the chill, not quite dryness that would precipitate trace dew in the dawn. With it came the smell of a pre-spice mass, the mass they had detected off to the northeast, and that told them there would be a maker nearby. Paul crawled through the sphincter opening, stood on the sand and stretched the sleep from his muscles. A faint green-pearl luminescence etched the eastern horizon. The tents of his troop were small, false dunes around him in the gloom. He saw movement off to the left, the guard, and knew they had seen him. They knew the peril he faced this day. Each Fremen had faced it. They gave him this last few moments of isolation now that he might prepare himself. It must be done today, he told himself. He thought of the power he wielded in the face of the pogrom, the old men who sent their sons to him to be trained in the weirding way of battle, the old men who listened to him now in council and followed his plans, the men who returned to pay him that highest Fremen compliment, Your plan worked, Muad'Dib. Yet the meanest and smallest of the Fremen warriors could do a thing that he had never done, and Paul knew his leadership suffered from the omnipresent knowledge of this difference between them. He had not ridden the Maker. Oh, he'd gone up with the others for training trips and raids, but he had not made his own voyage. Until he did, his world was bounded by the abilities of others. No true Fremen could permit this. Until he did this thing himself, even the great Southlands, the area some twenty thumpers beyond the Erg, were denied him unless he ordered a palanquin and rode like a reverend mother or one of the sick and wounded. Memory returned to him of his wrestling with his inner awareness during the night. He saw a strange parallel here, 
If he mastered the Maker, his rule was strengthened. If he mastered the inward eye, this carried its own measure of command. But beyond them both lay the clouded area, the great unrest where all the universe seemed embroiled. The differences in the ways he comprehended the universe haunted him, accuracy matched with inaccuracy. He saw it in situ. Yet when it was born, when it came into the pressures of reality, the now had its own life and grew with its own subtle differences. Terrible purpose remained. Race consciousness remained. And over all loomed the jihad, bloody and wild. Cheney joined him outside the tent, hugging her elbows, looking up at him from the corners of her eyes the way she did when she studied his mood. "'Tell me again about the waters of thy birth-world, Usul,' she said. He saw that she was trying to distract him, ease his mind of tensions before the deadly test. It was growing lighter, and he noted that some of his Fadaikin were already striking their tents. "'I'd rather you told me about the Siech and about our son,' he said. Does our Leto yet hold my mother in his palm? It's Alia he holds as well, she said, and he grows rapidly. He'll be a big man. What's it like in the south? he asked. When you ride the Maker, you'll see for yourself, she said. But I wish to see it first through your eyes. It's powerfully lonely, she said. He touched the Nejone scarf at her forehead where it protruded from her still-suit cap. Why will you not talk about the Siech? I have talked about it. The Siech is a lonely place without our men. It's a place of work. We labor in the factories and the potting rooms. There are weapons to be made, poles to plant that we may forecast the weather, spice to collect for the bribes. There are dunes to be planted to make them grow and to anchor them. There are fabrics and rugs to make, fuel cells to charge. There are children to train that the tribe's strength may never be lost. Is nothing, then, pleasant in the Siech? he asked. The children are pleasant. We observe the rites. We have sufficient food. Sometimes one of us may come north to be with her man. Life must go on. My sister, Aliyah, is she accepted yet by the people? Cheney turned toward him in the growing dawn light. Her eyes bored into him. It's a thing to be discussed another time, beloved. Let us discuss it now. You should conserve your energies for the test, she said. He saw that he had touched something sensitive, hearing the withdrawal in her voice. The unknown brings its own worries, he said. Presently she nodded, said, There is yet misunderstanding because of Aliyah's strangeness. The women are fearful because a child little more than an infant talks of things that only an adult should know. They do not understand the change in the womb that made Aliyah different. There is trouble, he asked, and he thought, I've seen visions of trouble over Aliyah. Cheney looked toward the growing line of the sunrise. Some of the women banded to appeal to the Reverend Mother. They demanded she exorcise the demon in her daughter. They quoted the scripture, Suffer not a witch to live among us. And what did my mother say to them? She recited the law and sent the women away abashed. She said, If Aliyah incites trouble, it is the fault of authority for not foreseeing and preventing the trouble. And she tried to explain how the change had worked on Aliyah in the womb. But the women were angry because they had been embarrassed. They went away muttering. 
There will be trouble because of Aaliyah, he thought. A crystal blowing of sand touched the exposed portions of his face, bringing the scent of the pre-spice mass. El Seal, the rain of sand that brings the morning, he said. He looked out across the grey light of the desert landscape, the landscape beyond pity, the sand that was form absorbed in itself. Dry lightning streaked a dark corner to the south, sign that a storm had built up its static charge there. The roll of thunder boomed long after. The voice that beautifies the land, Cheney said. Most of his men were stirring out of their tents. Guards were coming in from the rims. Everything around him moved smoothly in the ancient routine that required no orders. Give as few orders as possible, his father had told him. Once, long ago. Once you've given orders on a subject, you must always give orders on that subject. The Fremen knew this rule instinctively. The troop's watermaster began the morning shanty, adding to it now the call for the right to initiate a sand rider. The world is a carcass, the man chanted, his voice wailing across the dunes. Who can turn away the angel of death? What Shai Hulud has decreed must be. Paul listened, recognizing that these were the words that also began the death chant of his Fadaikin the words the death commandos recited as they hurled themselves into battle. Will there be a rock shrine here this day to mark the passing of another soul? Paul asked himself. Will Fremen stop here in the future, each to add another stone and think of Muad'Dib who died in this place? He knew this was among the alternatives today, a fact along lines of the future radiating from this position in time-space. The imperfect vision plagued him. The more he resisted his terrible purpose and fought against the coming of the jihad, the greater the turmoil that wove through his prescience. His entire future was becoming like a river hurtling toward a chasm, the violent nexus beyond which all was fog and clouds. Stilgar approaches, Cheney said. I must stand apart now, beloved. Now I must be Sayadina and observe the rite that it may be reported truly in the chronicles. She looked up at him, and for a moment her reserve slipped. Then she had herself under control. When this is past, I shall prepare thy breakfast with my own hands, she said. She turned away. Stilgar moved toward him across the flower sand, stirring up little dust puddles. The dark niches of his eyes remained steady on Paul with their untamed stare. The glimpse of black beard above the still-suit mask, the lines of craggy cheeks, could have been wind-etched from the native rock for all their movement. The man carried Paul's banner on its staff, the green and black banner with a water tube in the staff that already was a legend in the land. Half pridefully, Paul thought, I cannot do the simplest thing without its becoming a legend. They will mark how I parted from Cheney, how I greet Stilgar, every move I make this day. Live or die, it is a legend. I must not die. Then it will be only legend, and nothing to stop the jihad. Stilgar planted the staff in the sand beside Paul, dropped his hands to his sides. The blue within blue eyes remained level and intent, and Paul thought how his own eyes already were assuming this mask of colour from the spice. They denied us the hajj, Stilgar said with ritual solemnity. 
As Cheney had taught him, Paul responded, Who can deny a Fremen the right to walk or ride where he wills? I am a naib, Stilgar said, never to be taken alive. I am a leg of the death tripod that will destroy our foes. Silence settled over them. Paul glanced at the other Fremen scattered over the sand beyond Stilgar, at the way they stood without moving for this moment of personal prayer, and he thought of how the Fremen were a people whose living consisted of killing, an entire people who had lived with rage and grief all of their days, never once considering what might take the place of either, except for a dream with which Liet Kynes had infused them before his death. Where is the Lord who led us through the land of desert and of pits? Stilgar asked. He is ever with us, the Fremen chanted. Stilgar squared his shoulders, stepped closer to Paul, and lowered his voice. Now remember what I told you. Do it simply and directly, nothing fancy. Among our people we ride the Maker at the age of twelve. You are more than six years beyond that age and not born to this life. You don't have to impress anyone with your courage. We know you are brave. All you must do is call the Maker and ride him. I will remember, Paul said. See that you do. I'll not have you shame my teaching. Stilgar pulled a plastic rod about a meter long from beneath his robe. The thing was pointed at one end, had a spring-wound clapper at the other end. I prepared this thumper myself. It's a good one. Take it. Paul felt the warm smoothness of the plastic as he accepted the thumper. Shishakli has your hooks, Stilgar said. He'll hand them to you as you step out onto that dune over there. He pointed to his right. Call a big maker, Usul. Show us the way. Paul marked the tone of Stilgar's voice, half ritual and half that of a worried friend. In that instant the sun seemed to bound above the horizon, the sky took on the silvered grey-blue that warned this day would be a day of extreme heat and dryness even for Arrakis. "'It is the time of the scalding day,' Stilgar said, and now his voice was entirely ritual. "'Go, Usul, and ride the Maker. Travel the sand as a leader of men.' Paul saluted his banner, noting how the green and black flag hung limply now that the dawn wind had died. He turned toward the dune Stilgar had indicated, a dirty tan slope with an S-track crest. Already most of the troop was moving out in the opposite direction, climbing the other dune that had sheltered their camp. One robed figure remained in Paul's path. Shishakli, a squad leader of the Vodaikin, only his slope-lidded eyes visible between stillsuit cap and mask. Shishakli presented two thin, whip-like shafts as Paul approached. The shafts were about a metre and a half long, with glistening plasteel hooks at one end, roughened at the other end for a firm grip. Paul accepted them both in his left hand as required by the ritual. "'They are my own hooks,' she sharply said in a husky voice. "'They never have failed.' Paul nodded, maintaining the necessary silence, moved past the men and up the dune slope. At the crest he glanced back saw the troop scattering like a flight of insects, their robes fluttering. He stood alone now on the sandy ridge, with only the horizon in front of him, the flat and unmoving horizon. This was a good dune Stilgar had chosen, higher than its companions for the viewpoint vantage. 
Stooping, Paul planted the thumper deep into the windward face where the sand was compacted and would give maximum transmission to the drumming. Then he hesitated, reviewing the lessons, reviewing the life-and-death necessities that faced him. When he threw the latch, the thumper would begin its summons. Across the sand, a giant worm, a maker, would hear and come to the drumming. With a whip-like hook-staffs, Paul knew, he could mount the maker's high, curving back. For as long as a forward edge of a worm's ring segment was held open by a hook, open to admit abrasive sand into the more sensitive interior, the creature would not retreat beneath the desert. It would, in fact, roll its gigantic body to bring the opened segment as far away from the desert's surface as possible. I am a sand rider, Paul told himself. He glanced down at the hooks in his left hand, thinking that he had only to shift those hooks down the curve of a maker's immense side to make the creature roll and turn, guiding it where he willed. He had seen it done. He had been helped up the side of a worm for a short ride in training. The captive worm could be ridden until it lay exhausted and quiescent upon the desert surface, and a new maker must be summoned. Once he was past this test, Paul knew, he was qualified to make the twenty-thumper journey into the Southland, to rest and restore himself, into the South, where the women and the families had been hidden from the pogrom among the new palmeries and C.H. Warrens. He lifted his head and looked to the South, reminding himself that the maker summoned wild from the Erg was an unknown quantity, and the one who summoned it was equally unknown to this test. You must gauge the approaching maker carefully, Stilgar had explained. You must stand close enough that you can mount it as it passes, yet not so close that it engulfs you. With abrupt decision, Paul released the thumper's latch. The clapper began revolving, and the summons drummed through the sand, a measured lump, lump, lump. He straightened, scanning the horizon, remembering Stilgar's words. Judge the line of approach carefully. Remember, a worm seldom makes an unseen approach to a thumper. Listen all the same. You may often hear it before you see it. And Cheney's words of caution, whispered at night when her fear for him overcame her, filled his mind. When you take your stand along the maker's path, you must remain utterly still. You must think like a patch of sand. Hide beneath your cloak and become a little dune in your very essence. Slowly he scanned the horizon, listening, watching for the signs he had been taught. It came from the southeast, a distant hissing, a sand whisper. Presently he saw the faraway outline of the creature's track against the dawn light and realized he had never before seen a maker this large, never heard of one this size. It appeared to be more than half a league long, and the rise of the sand wave at its cresting head was like the approach of a mountain. This is nothing I have seen by vision or in life, Paul cautioned himself. He hurried across the path of the thing to take his stand, caught up entirely by the rushing needs of this moment. Control the coinage and the courts. Let the rabble have the rest. 
Thus the Padishah Emperor advised you, and he tells you, if you want profits, you must rule. There is truth in these words, but I ask myself, who are the rabble and who are the ruled? Muad'Dib's secret message to the Landsrad from Arrakis Awakening by the Princess Irulan. A thought came unbidden to Jessica's mind. Paul will be undergoing his Sandrider test at any moment now. They try to conceal this fact from me, but it's obvious. And Cheney has gone on some mysterious errand. Jessica sat in her resting chamber, catching a moment of quiet between the night's classes. It was a pleasant chamber, but not as large as the one she had enjoyed in Siech Tabor before their flight from the pogrom. Still, this place had thick rugs on the floor, soft cushions, a low coffee table near at hand, multicoloured hangings on the walls and soft yellow glow-globes overhead. The room was permeated with a distinctive acrid furry odour of a Fremen siege that she had come to associate with a sense of security. Yet she knew she would never overcome a feeling of being in an alien place. It was the harshness that the rugs and hangings attempted to conceal. A faint, tinkling, drumming, slapping penetrated to the resting chamber. Jessica knew it for a birth celebration, probably Soubier's. Her time was near. And Jessica knew she'd see the baby soon enough, a blue-eyed cherub brought to the Reverend Mother for blessing. She knew also that her daughter, Aaliyah, would be at the celebration and would report on it. It was not yet time for the nightly prayer of parting. They wouldn't have started a birth celebration near the time of ceremony that mourned the slave raids of Poritrin, Velitaguz, Rossak, and Harmonthep. Jessica sighed. She knew she was trying to keep her thoughts off her son and the dangers he faced, the pit traps with their poisoned barbs, the Harkonnen raids, although these were growing fewer as the Fremen took their toll of aircraft and raiders with the new weapons Paul had given them and the natural dangers of the desert-makers, and thirst, and dust-chasms. She thought of calling for coffee, and with the thought came that ever-present awareness of paradox in the Fremen way of life, how well they lived in these Siech caverns compared to the Graben peons, yet how much more they endured in the open Hadra of the desert than anything the Harkonnen bondsmen endured. A dark hand inserted itself through the hangings beside her, deposited a cup upon the table, and withdrew. From the cup arose the aroma of spiced coffee. An offering from the birth celebration, Jessica thought. She took the coffee and sipped it, smiling at herself. In what other society of our universe, she asked herself, could a person of my station accept an anonymous drink and quaff that drink without fear? I could alter any poison now before it did me harm, of course, but the donor doesn't realise this. She drained the cup, feeling the energy and lift of its contents, hot and delicious. And she wondered what other society would have such a natural regard for her privacy and comfort that the giver would intrude only enough to deposit the gift and not inflict her with the donor. Respect and love had sent the gift with only a slight tinge of fear. Another element of the incident forced itself into her awareness. She had thought of coffee, and it had appeared. There was nothing of telepathy here, she knew. It was the Tao, the oneness of the Siech community, 
a compensation from the subtle poison of the spice diet they shared. The great mass of the people could never hope to attain the enlightenment the spice seed brought to her. They had not been trained and prepared for it. Their minds rejected what they could not understand or encompass. Still, they felt and reacted sometimes like a single organism, and the thought of coincidence never entered their minds. Has Paul passed his test on the sand? Jessica asked herself. He's capable, but accident can strike down even the most capable. The waiting. It's the dreariness, she thought. You can wait just so long, then the dreariness of the waiting overcomes you. There was all manner of waiting in their lives. More than two years we've been here, she thought, and twice that number at least to go before we can even hope to think of trying to wrest Arrakis from the Harkonnen governor, the Mudirnaya, the beast Raban. Reverend Mother? The voice from outside the hangings at her door was that of Hera, the other woman in Paul's menage. Yes, Hera? The hangings parted and Hera seemed to glide through them. She wore siech sandals, a red-yellow wraparound that exposed her arms almost to the shoulders. Her black hair was parted in the middle and swept back like the wings of an insect, flat and oily against her head. The jutting, predatory features were drawn into an intense frown. Behind Hera came Alia, a girl child of about two years. Seeing her daughter, Jessica was caught, as she frequently was, by Alia's resemblance to Paul at that age, the same wide-eyed solemnity to her questing look, the dark hair and firmness of mouth. But there were subtle differences, too, and it was in these that most adults found Alia disquieting. The child, little more than a toddler, carried herself with a calmness and awareness beyond her years. Adults were shocked to find her laughing at a subtle play of words between the sexes, or they'd catch themselves listening to her half-lisping voice, still blurred as it was by an unformed soft palate, and discover in her words sly remarks that could only be based on experiences no two-year-old had ever encountered. Hera sank to a cushion with an exasperated sigh, frowned at the child. Alia? Jessica motioned to her daughter. The child crossed to a cushion beside her mother, sank to it, and clasped her mother's hand. The contact of flesh restored that mutual awareness they had shared since before Alia's birth. It wasn't a matter of shared thoughts, although there were bursts of that if they touched while Jessica was changing the spice poison for a ceremony. It was something larger, an immediate awareness of another living spark, a sharp and poignant thing, a nerve simpatico that made them emotionally one. In the formal manner that befitted a member of her son's household, Jessica said, Subak al-Kuhar, Hera. This night finds you well? With the same traditional formality, she said, Subak nar I am well. The words were almost toneless. Again, she sighed. Jessica sensed amusement from Aaliyah. My brother's Ganima is annoyed with me, Aaliyah said in her half-lisp. Jessica marked the term Aaliyah used to refer to Hera. Ganima. In the subtleties of the Fremen tongue, the word meant something acquired in battle, and with the added overtone that the something no longer was used for its original purpose, an ornament, a spearhead used as a curtain weight. Hera scowled at the child. Don't try to insult me, child. I know my place. What have you done this time, Alia? Jessica asked. 
Hera answered. Not only has she refused to play with the other children today, but she intruded where I hid behind the hangings and watched Subie's child being born, Aaliyah said. It's a boy. He cried and cried. What a set of lungs. When he cried long enough, she came out and touched him, Hera said, and he stopped crying. Everyone knows a Fremen baby must get his crying done at birth, if he's in Siege, because he can never cry again lest he betray us on Hajar. He'd cried enough, Aaliyah said. I just wanted to feel his spark, his life, that's all. And when he felt me, he didn't want to cry any more. It's just made more talk among the people, Hera said. Subie's boy is healthy? Jessica asked. She saw that something was troubling Hera deeply and wondered at it. Healthy as any mother could ask, Hera said. They know Aaliyah didn't hurt him. They didn't so much mind her touching him. He settled down right away and was happy. I was... Hera shrugged. It's the strangeness of my daughter. Is that it? Jessica asked. It's the way she speaks of things beyond her years, and of things no child her age could know, things of the past. How could she know what a child looked like on Bella Tegus? Hera demanded. But he does, Aaliyah said. Subie's boy looks just like the son of Mitha born before the parting. Aaliyah, Jessica said, I warned you. But mother, I saw it, and it was true, and... Jessica shook her head, seeing the signs of disturbance in Hera's face. What have I borne? Jessica asked herself. A daughter who knew at birth everything that I knew, and more. Everything revealed to her out of the corridors of the past by the reverend mothers within me. It's not just the things she says, Hera said. It's the exercises, too. The way she sits and stares at a rock, moving only one muscle beside her nose, or a muscle on the back of a finger, or... Those are the Bene Gesserit training, Jessica said. You know that, Hera. Would you deny my daughter her inheritance? Reverend Mother, you know these things don't matter to me, Hera said. It's the people and the way they mutter. I feel danger in it. They say your daughter's a demon, that other children refuse to play with her, that she's... She has so little in common with the other children, Jessica said. She's no demon. It's just the... Of course she's not. Jessica found herself surprised at the vehemence in Hera's tone, glanced down at Aaliyah. The child appeared lost in thought, radiating a sense of... waiting. Jessica returned her attention to Hera. I respect the fact that you're a member of my son's household, Jessica said. Aaliyah stirred against her hand. You may speak openly with me of whatever's troubling you. I will not be a member of your son's household much longer, Hera said. I've waited this long for the sake of my sons, the special training they receive as the children of Usul. It's little enough I could give them since it's known I don't share your son's bed. Again Aliyah stirred beside her, half sleeping, warm. You'd have made a good companion for my son, though, Jessica said and she added to herself, because such thoughts were ever with her, companion, not a wife. Jessica's thoughts went then straight to the centre, to the pang that came from the common talk in the Siege that her son's companionship with Cheney had become a permanent thing, the marriage. I love Cheney, Jessica thought, but she reminded herself that love might have to step aside for royal necessity. Royal marriages had other reasons than love. 
You think I don't know what you planned for your son? Hera asked. What do you mean? Jessica demanded. You planned to unite the tribes under him, Hera said. Is that bad? I see danger for him, and Aliyah is part of that danger. Aliyah nestled closer to her mother, eyes opened now and studying Hera. I've watched you two together, Hera said, the way you touch. And Aliyah is like my own flesh because she's sister to one who is like my brother. I've watched over her and guarded her from the time she was a mere baby, from the time of the Razia when we fled here. I've seen many things about her. Jessica nodded, feeling disquiet begin to grow in Aliyah beside her. You know what I mean, Hera said, the way she knew from the first what we were saying to her. When has there been another baby who knew the water discipline so young? What other baby's first words to her nurse were, I love you, Hera. Hera stared at Aliyah. Why do you think I accept her insults? I know there's no malice in them. Aliyah looked up at her mother. Yes, I have reasoning powers, Reverend Mother, Hera said. I could have been of the Syedina. I have seen what I have seen. Hera, Jessica shrugged, I don't know what to say. And she felt surprised at herself, because this literally was true. Aliyah straightened, squared her shoulders. Jessica felt the sense of waiting ended, an emotion compounded of decisions and sadness. We made a mistake, Aliyah said. Now we need Hera. It was the ceremony of the seed, Hera said, when you changed the water of life, Reverend Mother, when Aliyah was yet unborn within you. Need Hera? Jessica asked herself. Who else can talk among the people and make them begin to understand me? Aliyah asked. What would you have her do? Jessica asked. She already knows what to do, Aliyah said. I will tell them the truth, Hera said. Her face seemed suddenly old and sad, with its olive skin drawn into frown wrinkles, a witchery in the sharp features. I will tell them that Aliyah only pretends to be a little girl, that she has never been a little girl. Aliyah shook her head. Tears ran down her cheeks, and Jessica felt the wave of sadness from her daughter as though the emotion were her own. I know I'm a freak, Aliyah whispered. The adult summation coming from the child mouth was like a bitter confirmation. You're not a freak, Hera snapped. Who dared say you're a freak? Again, Jessica marveled at the fierce note of protectiveness in Hera's voice. Jessica saw then that Aliyah had judged correctly. They did need Hera. The tribe would understand Hera, both her words and her emotions, for it was obvious she loved Aliyah as though this were her own child. Who said it? Hera repeated. Nobody? Aliyah used a corner of Jessica's abba to wipe the tears from her face. She smoothed the robe where she had dampened and crumpled it. Then don't you say it? Hera ordered. Yes, Hera. Now, Hera said, you may tell me what it was like so that I may tell the others. Tell me what it is that happened to you. Aliyah swallowed, looked up at her mother. Jessica nodded. One day I woke up, Aliyah said. It was like waking from sleep, except that I could not remember going to sleep. I was in a warm, dark place, and I was frightened. 
Listening to the half-lisping voice of her daughter, Jessica remembered that day in the big cavern. When I was frightened, Aaliyah said, I tried to escape, but there was no way to escape. Then I saw a spark, but it wasn't exactly like seeing it. The spark was just there with me, and I felt the spark's emotions, soothing me, comforting me, telling me that way that everything would be all right. That was my mother. Hera rubbed at her eyes, smiled reassuringly at Aaliyah. Yet there was a look of wildness in the eyes of the Fremen woman, an intensity as though they too were trying to hear Aaliyah's words. And Jessica thought, what do we really know of how such a one thinks? out of her unique experiences and training and ancestry. Just when I felt safe and reassured, Aaliyah said, there was another spark with us, and everything was happening at once. The other spark was the old Reverend Mother. She was trading lives with my mother, everything, and I was there with them, seeing it all, everything, and it was over, and I was them, and all the others, and myself. Only it took me a long time to find myself again. There were so many others. It was a cruel thing, Jessica said. No one should wake into consciousness thus. The wonder of it is you could accept all that happened to you. I couldn't do anything else, Aaliyah said. I didn't know how to reject or hide my consciousness, or shut it off. Everything just happened. Everything we didn't know, Hera murmured. When we gave your mother the water to change, we didn't know you existed within her. Don't be sad about it, Hera, Aaliyah said. I shouldn't feel very sorry for myself. After all, there's cause for happiness here. I'm a reverend mother. The tribe has two rev... She broke off, tipped her head to listen. Hera rocked back on her heels against the sitting cushion, stared at Aaliyah, bringing her attention then up to Jessica's face. Didn't you suspect? Jessica asked. Shh, Aaliyah said. A distant, rhythmic chanting came to them through the hangings that separated them from the CH corridors. It grew louder, carrying distinct sounds now. Yo-yo-yom! Yo-yo-yom! Mutain! Walla! Yo-yo-yom! Mutain! Walla! The chanters passed the outer entrance, and their voices boomed through to the inner apartments. Slowly the sound receded. When the sound had dimmed sufficiently, Jessica began the ritual, the sadness in her voice. It was Ramadan and April on Bella Tegus. My family sat in their pool courtyard, Hera said, in air bathed by the moisture that arose from the spray of a fountain. There was a tree of porticles, round and deep in colour, near at hand. There was a basket with mishmish and baklava, and mugs of Liban, all manner of good things to eat. In our gardens and in our flocks there was peace, peace in all the land. Life was full with happiness until the raiders came, Aaliyah said. Blood ran cold at the scream of friends, Jessica said and she felt the memories rushing through her out of all those other pasts she shared. La, 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 the women cried, said Hera. The raiders came through the Mushtamal, rushing at us with their knives dripping red from the lives of our men, Jessica said. Silence came over the three of them, as it was in all the apartments of the Siege, 
the silence while they remembered and kept their grief thus fresh. Presently Hera uttered the ritual ending to the ceremony, giving the words a harshness that Jessica had never before heard in them. "'We will never forgive, and we will never forget,' Hera said. In the thoughtful quiet that followed her words, they heard a muttering of people, the swish of many robes. Jessica sensed someone standing beyond the hangings that shielded her chamber. "'Reverend Mother?' a woman's voice, and Jessica recognized it, the voice of Thartha, one of Stilgar's wives. What is it, Thartha? There is trouble, Reverend Mother. Jessica felt a constriction at her heart, an abrupt fear for Paul. Paul, she gasped. Thartha spread the hangings, stepped into the chamber. Jessica glimpsed a press of people in the outer room before the hangings fell. She looked up at Thartha, a small, dark woman in a red-figured robe of black, the total blue of her eyes trained fixedly on Jessica, the nostrils of her tiny nose dilated to reveal the plug scars. "'What is it?' Jessica demanded. "'There is word from the sand,' Thatha said. "'Usul meets the maker for his test. It is today. The young men say he cannot fail. He will be a sand-rider by nightfall. The young men are banding for a razia. They will raid in the north and meet Usul there.' They say they will raise the cry then. They say they will force him to call out Stilgar and assume command of the tribes. Gathering water, planting the dunes, changing their world slowly but surely, these are no longer enough, Jessica thought. The little raids, the certain raids, these are no longer enough now that Paul and I have trained them. They feel their power. They want to fight. Thar-Thar shifted from one foot to the other, cleared her throat. We know the need for cautious waiting, Jessica thought. But there's the core of our frustration. We know also the harm that waiting extended too long can do us. We lose our sense of purpose if the waiting's prolonged. The young men say if Usul does not call out Stilgar, then he must be afraid, Thar-Thar said. She lowered her gaze. So that's the way of it. Jessica muttered, and she thought, Well, I saw it coming, as did Stilgar. Again, Thartha cleared her throat. Even my brother, Shoab, says it, she said. They will leave Usul no choice. Then it has come, Jessica thought, and Paul will have to handle it himself. The Reverend Mother dare not become involved in the succession. Aaliyah freed her hand from her mother's, said, I will go with Thartha and listen to the young men. Perhaps there is a way. Jessica met Thartha's gaze, but spoke to Aaliyah. Go then, and report to me as soon as you can. We do not want this thing to happen, Reverend Mother, Thartha said. We do not want it, Jessica agreed. The tribe needs all its strength. She glanced at Hera. Will you go with them? Hera answered the unspoken part of the question. Tharthar will allow no harm to befall Aaliyah. She knows we will soon be wives together, she and I, to share the same man. We have talked, Tharthar and I. Hera looked up at Tharthar, back to Jessica. We have an understanding. Tharthar held out a hand for Aaliyah, said, We must hurry, the young men are leaving. They pressed through the hangings, the child's hand in the small woman's hand. But the child seemed to be leading. If Paul Muad'Dib slays Stilgar, this will not serve the tribe, Hera said. Always before, it has been the way of succession. 
but times have changed. Times have changed for you as well, Jessica said. You cannot think I doubt the outcome of such a battle, Hera said. Usul could not but win. That was my meaning, Jessica said. And you think my personal feelings enter into my judgment, Hera said. She shook her head, her water rings tinkling at her neck. How wrong you are. Perhaps you think as well that I regret not being the chosen of Usul, that I am jealous of Cheney. You make your own choice as you are able, Jessica said. I pity Cheney, Hera said. Jessica stiffened. What do you mean? I know what you think of Cheney, Hera said. You think she is not the wife for your son. Jessica settled back, relaxed on her cushions. She shrugged. Perhaps. You could be right, Hera said. If you are, you may find a surprising ally, Cheney herself. She wants whatever is best for him. Jessica swallowed past a sudden tightening in her throat. Chain is very dear to me, she said. She could be no... Your rugs are very dirty in here, Hera said. She swept her gaze around the floor, avoiding Jessica's eyes. So many people tramping through here all the time. You really should have them cleaned more often. You cannot avoid the interplay of politics within an orthodox religion. This power struggle permeates the training, educating, and disciplining of the Orthodox community. Because of this pressure, the leaders of such a community inevitably must face that ultimate internal question. To succumb to complete opportunism as the price of maintaining their rule, or risk sacrificing themselves for the sake of the Orthodox ethic. From Muad'Dib, The Religious Issues, by the Princess Irulan. Paul waited on the sand outside the gigantic maker's line of approach. I must not wait like a smuggler, impatient and jittering, he reminded himself. I must be part of the desert. The thing was only minutes away now, filling the morning with a friction hissing of its passage. Its great teeth within the cavern circle of its mouth spread like some enormous flower. The spice odour from it dominated the air. Paul's stillsuit rode easily on his body, and he was only distantly aware of his nose plugs, the breathing mask. Stilgar's teaching, the painstaking hours on the sand, overshadowed all else. How far outside the Maker's radius must you stand in pea sand? Stilgar had asked him, and he had answered correctly, half a meter for every meter of the Maker's diameter. Why? To avoid the vortex of its passage and still have time to run in and mount it. You've ridden the little ones, bred for the seed and the water of life, Stilgar had said. But what you'll summon for your test is a wild maker, an old man of the desert. You must have proper respect for such a one. Now the thumper's deep drumming blended with a hiss of the approaching worm. Paul breathed deeply, smelling mineral bitterness of sand even through his filters. The wild maker, the old man of the desert, loomed almost on him, its cresting front segments through a sand wave that would sweep across his knees. Come up, you lovely monster, he thought. Up, you hear me calling. Come up, come up. The wave lifted his feet. Surface dust swept across him. He steadied himself, his world dominated by the passage of that sand-clouded curving wall, that segmented cliff, the ring lines sharply defined in it. 
Paul lifted his hooks, sighted along them, leaned in. He felt them bite and pull. He leaped upward, planting his feet against that wall, leaning out against the clinging barbs. This was the true instant of the testing. If he had planted the hooks correctly at the leading edge of a ring segment opening the segment, the worm would not roll down and crush him. The worm slowed. It glided across the thumper, silencing it. Slowly it began to roll. Up, up, bringing those irritant barbs as high as possible, away from the sand that threatened the soft inner lapping of its ring segment. Paul found himself riding upright, atop the worm. He felt exultant, like an emperor surveying his world. He suppressed a sudden urge to cavort there, to turn the worm, to show off his mastery of this creature. Suddenly he understood why Stilgar had warned him once about brash young men who danced and played with these monsters, doing handstands on their backs, removing both hooks and replanting them before the worm could spill them. Leaving one hook in place, Paul released the other and planted it lower down the side. When the second hook was firm and tested, he brought down the first one, thus worked his way down the side. The maker rolled, and as it rolled, it turned, coming around the sweep of flower sand where the others waited. Paul saw them come up, using their hooks to climb, but avoiding the sensitive ring edges until they were on top. They rode at last in a triple line behind him, steadied against their hooks. Stilgar moved up through the ranks, checking the positioning of Paul's hooks, glanced up at Paul's smiling face. "'You did it, eh?' Stilgar asked, raising his voice above the hiss of their passage. "'That's what you think? You did it?' he straightened. "'Now I tell you that was a very sloppy job. We have twelve-year-olds who'd do better.' There was drum sand to your left where you waited. You could not retreat there if the worm turned that way. The smile slipped from Paul's face. I saw the drum sand. Then why did you not signal for one of us to take up a position secondary to you? It was a thing you could do even in the test. Paul swallowed, faced into the wind of their passage. You think it bad of me to say this now, Stilgar said. It is my duty. I think of your worth to the troop. If you had stumbled into that drum sand, the maker would have turned toward you. In spite of a surge of anger, Paul knew that Stilgar spoke the truth. It took a long minute and the full effort of the training he had received from his mother for Paul to recapture a feeling of calm. I apologize, he said. It will not happen again. In a tight position, always leave yourself a secondary. Someone to take the maker if you cannot, Stilgar said. Remember that we work together. That way we're certain. We work together, eh? He slapped Paul's shoulder. We work together, Paul agreed. Now, Stilgar said, and his voice was harsh. Show me you know how to handle a maker. Which side are we on? Paul glanced down at the scaled ring surface on which they stood, noted the character and size of the scales, the way they grew larger off to his right, smaller to his left. Every worm he knew moved characteristically with one side up more frequently. As it grew older, the characteristic up side became an almost constant thing. Bottom scales grew larger, heavier, smoother. Top scales could be told by size alone on a big worm. Shifting his hooks, Paul moved to the left. He motioned flankers down to open segments along the side and keep the worm on a straight course as it rolled. 
When he had it turned, he motioned two steersmen out of the line and into positions ahead. Ach, hi yo! he shouted in the traditional call. The left side steersman opened a ring segment there. In a majestic circle, the maker turned to protect its open segment. Full around it came, and when it was headed back to the south, Paul shouted, Gero! The steersman released his hook. The maker lined out in a straight course. Stilgar said, Very good, Paul Muad'Dib. With plenty of practice, you may yet become a sand rider. Paul frowned, thinking, Was I not first up? From behind him there came sudden laughter. The troop began chanting, flinging his name against the sky. One deep, one deep, one deep, one deep. And far to the rear along the worm's surface, Paul heard the beat of the goaders pounding the tail segments. The worm began picking up speed. Their robes flapped in the wind. The abrasive sound of their passage increased. Paul looked back through the troop, found Cheney's face among them. He looked at her as he spoke to Stilgar. Then I am a sand rider still? Halyom! You are a sand rider this day. Then I may choose our destination? That's the way of it. And I am a Fremen born this day here in the Habanya Erg. I have had no life before this day. I was as a child until this day. Not quite a child, Stilgar said. He fastened a corner of his hood where the wind was whipping it. But there was a cork sealing off my world, and that cork has been pulled. There is no cork. I would go south, Stilgar, twenty thumpers. I would see this land we make, this land that I've only seen through the eyes of others. And I would see my son and my family, he thought. I need time now to consider the future that is a past within my mind. The turmoil comes, and if I'm not where I can unravel it, the thing will run wild. Stilgar looked at him with a steady, measuring gaze. Paul kept his attention on Cheney, seeing the interest quicken in her face, noting also the excitement his words had kindled in the troop. The men are eager to raid with you in the Harkonnen sinks, Stilgar said. The sinks are only a thumper away. The Vadaikin have raided with me, Paul said. They'll raid with me again until no Harkonnen breathes Arakeen air. Stilgar studied him as they rode, and Paul realized that the man was seeing this moment through the memory of how he had risen to command of the Tabor Siech and to leadership of the Council of Leaders now that Liet Kynes was dead. He has heard the reports of unrest among the young Fremen, Paul thought. Do you wish a gathering of the leaders? Stilgar asked. Eyes blazed among the young men of the troop. They swayed as they rode and they watched, and Paul saw the look of unrest in Cheney's glance, the way she looked from Stilgar, who was her uncle, to Paul Muad'Dib, who was her mate. You cannot guess what I want, Paul said, and he thought, I cannot back down, I must hold control over these people. You are Mudir of the Sandride this day, Stilgar said. Cold formality rang in his voice. How do you use this power? We need time to relax, time for cool reflection, Paul thought. We shall go south, Paul said. Even if I say we shall turn back to the north when this day is over? We shall go south, Paul repeated. A sense of inevitable dignity enfolded Stilgar as he pulled his robe tightly around him. There will be a gathering, he said. I will send the messages. 
He thinks I will call him out, Paul thought, and he knows he cannot stand against me. Paul faced south, feeling the wind against his exposed cheeks, thinking of the necessities that went into his decisions. They do not know how it is, he thought. But he knew he could not let any consideration deflect him. He had to remain on the central line of the time storm he could see in the future. There would come an instant when it could be unravelled, but only if he were where he could cut the central knot of it. I will not call him out if it can be helped, he thought. If there's another way to prevent the jihad. We'll camp for the evening meal and prayer at Cave of Birds beneath Habania Ridge, Stilgar said. He steadied himself with one hook against the swaying of the maker, gestured ahead at a low rock barrier rising out of the desert. Paul studied the cliff, the great streaks of rock crossing it like waves. No green, no blossom softened that rigid horizon. Beyond it stretched the way to the southern desert, a course of at least ten days and nights as fast as they could goad the makers. Twenty thumpers. The way led far beyond the Harkonnen patrols. He knew how it would be. The dreams had shown him. One day, as they went, there'd be a faint change of colour on the far horizon, such a slight change that he might feel he was imagining it out of his hopes. And there would be the new Siege. Does my decision suit Muad'Dib? Stilgar asked. Only the faintest touch of sarcasm tinged his voice, but Fremen ears around them, alert to every tone in a bird's cry, or a Cielago's piping message, heard the sarcasm and watched Paul to see what he would do. Stilgar heard me swear my loyalty to him when we consecrated the Fadaikin, Paul said. My death commandos know I spoke with honour. Does Stilgar doubt it? Real pain exposed itself in Paul's voice. Stilgar heard it and lowered his gaze. Usul, the companion of my siege, him I would never doubt, Stilgar said. But you are Paul Muad'Dib, the Atreides Duke, and you are the Lisan al-Gaib, the voice from the outer world. These men I don't even know. Paul turned away to watch the Habanya Ridge climb out of the desert. The maker beneath them still felt strong and willing. It could carry them almost twice the distance of any other in Fremen experience. He knew it. There was nothing outside the stories told to children that could match this old man of the desert. It was the stuff of a new legend, Paul realized. A hand gripped his shoulder. Paul looked at it, followed the arm to the face beyond it, the dark eyes of Stilgar exposed between filter mask and still-suit hood. The one who led Tabur Siech before me, Stilgar said. He was my friend. We shared dangers. He owed me his life many a time, and I owed him mine. I am your friend, Stilgar, Paul said. No man doubts it, Stilgar said. He removed his hand, shrugged. It's the way. Paul saw that Stilgar was too immersed in the Fremen way to consider the possibility of any other. Here a leader took the reins from the dead hands of his predecessor, or slew among the strongest of his tribe if a leader died in the desert. Stilgar had risen to be a naib in that way. We should leave this maker in deep sand, Paul said. Yes, Stilgar agreed. We could walk to the cave from here. We've ridden him far enough that he'll bury himself and sulk for a day or so, Paul said. 
You're the Moodir of the Sand Ride, Stilgar said. Say when we— He broke off, stared at the eastern sky. Paul whirled. The spice-blue overcast of his eyes made the sky appear dark, a richly filtered azure against which a distant rhythmic flashing stood out in sharp contrast. Ornithopter. One small thopter, Stilgar said. Could be a scout, Paul said. Do you think they've seen us? At this distance we're just a worm on the surface, Stilgar said. He motioned with his left hand. Off. Scatter on the sand. The troop began working down the worm's sides, dropping off, blending with the sand beneath their cloaks. Paul marked where Cheney dropped. Presently only he and Stilgar remained. First up, last off,' Paul said. Stilgar nodded, dropping down the side on his hooks, leaping onto the sand. Paul waited until the maker was safely clear of the scatter area, then released his hooks.' This was the tricky moment, with a worm not completely exhausted. Freed of its goads and hooks, the big worm began burrowing into the sand. Paul ran lightly back along its broad surface, judged his moment carefully, and leaped off. He landed running, lunged against the slip face of a dune the way he had been taught, and hid himself beneath the cascade of sand over his robe. Now the waiting... Paul turned gently, exposed a crack of sky beneath a crease in his robe. He imagined the others back along their path doing the same. He heard the beat of the thopter's wings before he saw it. There was a whisper of jet pods, and it came over his patch of desert, turned in a broad arc toward the ridge. An unmarked thopter, Paul noted. It flew out of sight beyond Habanya Ridge. A bird cry sounded over the desert. Another. Paul shook himself free of sand, climbed to the dune top. Other figures stood out in a line trailing away from the ridge. He recognized Cheney and Stilgar among them. Stilgar signaled toward the ridge. They gathered and began the sand walk, gliding over the surface in a broken rhythm that would disturb no maker. Stilgar paced himself beside Paul along the wind-packed crest of a dune. It was a smuggler craft, Stilgar said. So it seemed... Paul said, but this is deep into the desert for smugglers. They've their difficulties with patrols too, Stilgar said. If they come this deep, they may go deeper, Paul said. True. It wouldn't be well for them to see what they could see if they ventured too deep into the south. Smugglers sell information too. They were hunting spice, don't you think? Stilgar asked. There will be a wing and a crawler waiting somewhere for that one, Paul said. We've spice. Let's bait a patch of sand and catch us some smugglers. They should be taught that this is our land, and our men need practice with the new weapons. Now Usul speaks, Stilgar said. Usul thinks Fremen. But Usul must give way to decisions that match a terrible purpose, Paul thought. And the storm was gathering. When law and duty are one, united by religion, you never become fully conscious, fully aware of yourself. You are always a little less than an individual. From Muad'Dib, The 99 Wonders of the Universe, by Princess Irulan. The smuggler's spice factory, with its parent carrier and ring of drone ornithopters, came over a lifting of dunes like a swarm of insects following its queen. 
Ahead of the swarm lay one of the low rock ridges that lifted from the desert floor like small imitations of the shield wall. The dry beaches of the ridge were swept clean by a recent storm. In the con bubble of the factory, Gurney Halleck leaned forward, adjusted the oil lenses of his binoculars and examined the landscape. Beyond the ridge, he could see a dark patch that might be a spice blow, and he gave the signal to a hovering ornithopter that sent it to investigate. The thopter waggled its wings to indicate it had the signal. It broke away from the swarm, sped down toward the darkened sand, circled the area with its detectors dangling close to the surface. Almost immediately, it went through the wing-tucked dip and circle that told the waiting factory that spice had been found. Gurney sheathed his binoculars, knowing the others had seen the signal. He liked this spot. The ridge offered some shielding and protection. This was deep in the desert, an unlikely place for an ambush. Still, Gurney signaled for a crew to hover over the ridge, to scan it, sent reserves to take up station in pattern around the area, not too high because then they could be seen from afar by Harkonnen detectors. He doubted, though, that Harkonnen patrols would be this far south. This was still Fremen country. Gurney checked his weapons, damning the fate that made shields useless out here. Anything that summoned a worm had to be avoided at all costs. He rubbed the ink-vine scar along his jaw, studying the scene, decided it would be safest to lead a ground party through the ridge. Inspection on foot was still the most certain. You couldn't be too careful when Fremen and Harkonnen were at each other's throats. It was Fremen that worried him here. They didn't mind trading for all the spice you could afford, but they were devils on the warpath if you stepped foot where they forbade you to go and they were so devilishly cunning of late. It annoyed Gurney, the cunning and adroitness in battle of these natives. They displayed a sophistication in warfare as good as anything he had ever encountered, and he had been trained by the best fighters in the universe, then seasoned in battles where only the superior few survived. Again Gurney scanned the landscape, wondering why he felt uneasy. Perhaps it was the worm they had seen, but that was on the other side of the ridge. A head popped up into the con bubble beside Gurney, the factory commander, a one-eyed old pirate with full beard, the blue eyes and milky teeth of a spice diet. Looks like a rich patch, sir. Shall I take her in? Come down at the edge of that ridge. Let me disembark with my men. You can tractor out to the spice from there. We'll have a look at that rock. Aye. In case of trouble, save the factory. We'll lift in the thopters. The factory commander saluted. Aye, sir. He popped back down through the hatch. Again Gurney scanned the horizon. He had to respect the possibility that there were Fremen here and he was trespassing. Fremen worried him, their toughness and unpredictability. Many things about this business worried him, but the rewards were great. The fact that he couldn't send spotters high overhead worried him too. The necessity of radio silence added to his uneasiness. The factory crawler turned, began to descend. Gently it glided down to the dry beach at the foot of the ridge. Treads touched sand. Gurney opened the bubble dome, released his safety straps. The instant the factory stopped, he was out, slamming the bubble closed behind him, scrambling out over the tread guards to swing down to the sand beyond the emergency netting. The five men of his personal guard were out with him, emerging from the nose hatch. Others released the factory's carrier wing. 
It detached, lifted away to fly in a parking circle low overhead. Immediately, the big factory crawler lurched off, swinging away from the ridge toward the dark patch of spice out on the sand. A thopter swooped down nearby, skidded to a stop. Another followed, and another. They disgorged Gurney's platoon and lifted to hover flight. Gurney tested his muscles in his stillsuit, stretching. He left the filter mask off his face, losing moisture for the sake of a greater need, the carrying power of his voice if he had to shout commands. He began climbing up into the rocks, checking the terrain, pebbles and pea sand underfoot, the smell of spice. Good sight for an emergency base, he thought. Might be sensible to bury a few supplies here. He glanced back, watching his men spread out as they followed him. Good men. Even the new ones he hadn't had time to test. Good men. Didn't have to be told every time what to do. Not a shield glimmer showed on any of them. No cowards in this bunch, carrying shields into the desert where a worm could sense the field and come to rob them of the spice they found. From this slight elevation in the rocks, Gurney could see the spice patch about half a kilometre away and the crawler just reaching the near edge. He glanced up at the cover flight, noting the altitude, not too high. He nodded to himself, turned to resume his climb up the ridge. In that instant, the ridge erupted. Twelve roaring paths of flame streaked upward to the hovering thopters and carrier wing. They came a blasting of metal from the factory crawler, and the rocks around Gurney were full of hooded, fighting men. Gurney had time to think, by the horns of the Great Mother, rockets! They dare to use rockets! Then he was face to face with a hooded figure who crouched low, Chris Knife at the ready. Two more men stood waiting on the rocks above, to left and right. Only the eyes of the fighting man ahead of him were visible to Gurney, between hood and veil of a sand-coloured burnous, but the crouch and readiness warned him that here was a trained fighting man. The eyes were the blue-in-blue of the deep desert Fremen. Gurney moved one hand toward his own knife, kept his eyes fixed on the other's knife. If they dared use rockets, they'd have other projectile weapons. This moment argued extreme caution. He could tell by sound alone that at least part of his sky cover had been knocked out. There were gruntings, too, the noise of several struggles behind him. The eyes of the fighting man ahead of Gurney followed the motion of hand toward knife, came back to glare into Gurney's eyes. Leave the knife in its sheath, Gurney Halleck. Gurney hesitated. That voice sounded oddly familiar, even through a still-suit filter. You know my name? You've no need of a knife with me, Gurney. The man straightened, slipped his Chris knife into its sheath back beneath his robe. Tell your men to stop their useless resistance. The man threw his hood back, swung the filter aside. The shock of what he saw froze Gurney's muscles. He thought at first he was looking at a ghost image of Duke Leto Atreides. Full recognition came slowly. Paul? Is it truly Paul? Don't you trust your own eyes? I said you were dead. Gurney took a half-step forward. Tell your men to submit. Paul waved toward the lower reaches of the ridge. Gurney turned, reluctant to take his eyes off Paul. He saw only a few knots of struggle. 
Hooded desert men seemed to be everywhere around. The factory crawler lay silent, with Fremen standing atop it. There were no aircraft overhead. Stop the fighting! He took a deep breath, cupped his hands for a megaphone. This is Gurney Halleck. Stop the fight! Slowly, warily, the struggling figures separated, eyes turned toward him, questioning. These are friends! Fine friends! Half our people murdered! It's a mistake! Don't add to it! He turned back to Paul, stared into the youth's blue, blue Fremen eyes. A smile touched Paul's mouth, but there was a hardness in the expression that reminded Gurney of the old Duke, Paul's grandfather. Gurney saw then the sinewy harshness in Paul that had never before been seen in an Atreides. A leathery look to the skin, a squint to the eyes, and calculation in the glance that seemed to weigh everything in sight. They said you were dead. And it seemed the best protection to let them think so. Gurney realized that was all the apology he'd ever get for having been abandoned to his own resources, left to believe his young duke, his friend, was dead. He wondered then if there were anything left here of the boy he had known and trained in the ways of fighting men. Paul took a step closer to Gurney, found that his eyes were smarting. Gurney! It seemed to happen of itself, and they were embracing, pounding each other on the back, feeling the reassurance of solid flesh. You young pup! You young pup! Gurney man! Gurney man! Presently they stepped apart, looked at each other. Gurney took a deep breath. So you're why the Fremen have grown so wise in battle tactics. I might have known. They keep doing things I could have planned myself. If I'd only known... He shook his head. If you'd only got word to me, lad, nothing would have stopped me. I'd have come running and... A look in Paul's eyes stopped him. The hard, weighing stare. Sure. And there'd have been those who wondered why Gurney Halleck went a-running, and some would have done more than question. They'd have gone hunting for answers. Paul nodded, glanced to the waiting Fremen around them, the looks of curious appraisal on the faces of the Fadaikin. He turned from the Death Commandos back to Gurney. Finding his former swordmaster filled him with elation. He saw it as a good omen, a sign that he was on the course of the future where all was well. With Gurney at my side... Paul glanced down the ridge past the Fadaikin, studied the smuggler crew who had come with Halleck. How do your men stand, Gurney? They're smugglers all. They stand where the profit is. Little enough profit in our venture. Paul noted the subtle finger signal flashed to him by Gurney's right hand, the old hand code out of their past. There were men to fear and distrust in the smuggler crew. Paul pulled at his lip to indicate he understood looked up at the men standing guard above them on the rocks. He saw Stilgar there. Memory of the unsolved problem with Stilgar cooled some of Paul's elation. Stilgar, this is Gurney Halleck of whom you've heard me speak. My father's master of arms. One of the swordmasters who instructed me. An old friend. He can be trusted in any venture. I hear. You are his duke. Paul stared at the dark visage above him, wondering at the reasons which had impelled Stilgar to say just that. 
his duke. There had been a strange, subtle intonation in Stilgar's voice, as though he would rather have said something else. And that wasn't like Stilgar, who was a leader of Fremen, a man who spoke his mind. My duke, Gurney thought. He looked anew at Paul. Yes, with Leto dead, the title fell on Paul's shoulders. The pattern of the Fremen ward on Arrakis began to take on new shape in Gurney's mind. My duke. A place that had been dead within him began coming alive. Only part of his awareness focused on Paul's ordering the smuggler crew disarmed until they could be questioned. Gurney's mind returned to the command when he heard some of his men protesting. He shook his head, whirled. Are you men deaf? This is the rightful duke of Arrakis. Do as he commands. Grumbling, the smugglers submitted. Paul moved up beside Gurney, spoke in a low voice. I'd not have expected you to walk into this trap, Gurney. I'm properly chastened. I'll wager yon patch of spice is little more than a sand grain's thickness. A bait to lure us. That's a wager you'd win. Paul looked down at the men being disarmed. Are there any more of my father's men among your crew? None. We're spread thin. There are a few among the free traders. Most have spent their profits to leave this place. But you stayed. I stayed. Because Raban is here. I thought I had nothing left but revenge. An oddly chopped cry sounded from the ridgetop. Gurney looked up to see a Fremen waving his handkerchief. A maker comes. Paul moved out to a point of rock with Gurney following, looked off to the southwest. A burrow mound of a worm could be seen in the middle distance, a dust-crowned track that cut directly through the dunes on a course toward the ridge. He's big enough. A clattering sound lifted from the factory crawler below them. It turned on its treads like a giant insect, lumbered toward the rocks. Too bad we couldn't have saved the carry-all. Gurney glanced at him, looked back to the patches of smoke and debris out on the desert where Carriol and Ornithopters had been brought down by Fremen rockets. He felt a sudden pang for the men lost there. His men. Your father would have been more concerned for the men he couldn't save. Paul shot a hard stare at him, lowered his gaze. They were your friends, Gurney. I understand. To us, though, they were trespassers who might see things they shouldn't see. You must understand that. I understand it well enough. Now I'm curious to see what I shouldn't. Paul looked up to see the old and well-remembered wolfish grin on Halleck's face, the ripple of the ink-vine scar along the man's jaw. Gurney nodded toward the desert below them. Fremen were going about their business all over the landscape. It struck him that none of them appeared worried by the approach of the worm. A thumping sounded from the open dunes beyond the baited patch of spice, a deep drumming that seemed to be heard through their feet. Gurney saw Fremen spread out across the sand there in the path of the worm. The worm came on like some great sandfish, cresting the surface, its rings rippling and twisting. In a moment, from his vantage point above the desert, Gurney saw the taking of a worm, the daring leap of the first hookman, the turning of the creature, the way an entire band of men went up the scaly, glistening curve of the worm's side. There's one of the things you shouldn't have seen. There's been stories and rumors. 
But it's not a thing easy to believe without seeing it. The creature all men on Arrakis fear, you treat it like a riding animal. You heard my father speak of desert power. There it is. The surface of this planet is ours. No storm nor creature nor condition can stop us. Us, Gurney thought. He means the Fremen. He speaks of himself as one of them. Again Gurney looked at the spice blue in Paul's eyes. His own eyes, he knew, had a touch of the color, but smugglers could get off-world foods and there was a subtle caste implication in the tone of the eyes among them. They spoke of the touch of the spice brush, to mean a man had gone too native, and there was always a hint of distrust in the idea. There was a time when we did not ride the Maker in the light of day in these latitudes. But Raban has little enough air cover left that he can waste it looking for a few specks in the sand. Your aircraft were a shock to us here. He looked at Gurney. To us. To us. Gurney shook his head to drive out such thoughts. We weren't the shock to you that you were to us. What's the talk of Raban in the sinks and villages? They say they fortified the Graben villages to the point where you cannot harm them. They say they need only sit inside their defenses while you wear yourselves out in futile attack. In a word, they're immobilized. Well, you can go where you will. It's a tactic I learned from you. They've lost the initiative, which means they've lost the war. Gurney smiled, a slow, knowing expression. Our enemy is exactly where I want him to be. Paul glanced at Gurney. Well, Gurney, do you enlist with me for the finish of this campaign? Gurney stared at him. Enlist? My lord, I've never left your service. You're the only one left me. To think you dead. And I being cast adrift made what shrift I could, waiting for the moment I might sell my life for what it's worth. The death of Raban. An embarrassed silence settled over Paul. A woman came climbing up the rocks toward them, her eyes between steel-suit hood and face mask flicking between Paul and his companion. She stopped in front of Paul. Gurney noted the possessive air about her, the way she stood close to Paul. Cheney, this is Gurney Halleck. You've heard me speak of him. She looked at Halleck. Back to Paul. I have heard. Where did the men go on the Maker? They but diverted it, to give us time to save the equipment. Well then. Paul broke off, sniffed the air. There's wind coming. A voice called out from the ridgetop above them. Ho there! The wind! Gurney saw a quickening of motion among the Fremen now, a rushing about and sense of hurry. A thing the worm had not ignited was brought about by fear of the wind. The factory crawler lumbered up onto the dry beach below them and a way was opened for it among the rocks, and the rocks closed behind it so neatly that the passage escaped his eyes. Have you many such hiding places? Many times many, Paul said. He looked at Cheney. Find Korba. Tell him that Gurney has warned me there are men among the smuggler crew who are not to be trusted. She looked once at Gurney, back to Paul, nodded and was off down the rocks, leaping with a gazelle-like agility. She is your woman? The mother of my firstborn. There's another later among the Atreides. 
Gurney accepted this with only a widening of the eyes. Paul watched the action around them with a critical eye. A curry colour dominated the southern sky now, and there came fitful bursts and gusts of wind that whipped dust around their heads. Seal your suit. Paul fastened the mask and hood about his face. Gurney obeyed, thankful for the filters. Which of your crew don't you trust, Gurney? There are some new recruits. Off-worlders. He hesitated, wondering at himself suddenly. Off-worlders. The word had come so easily to his tongue. Yes? They're not like the usual fortune-hunting lot we get. They're tougher. Harkonnen spies. I think, my lord, that they report to no Harkonnen. I suspect they're men of the Imperial Service. They have a hint of Seleucus Secundus about them. Paul shot a sharp glance at him. Sadokar? Gurney shrugged. They could be, but it's well masked. Paul nodded, thinking how easily Gurney had fallen back into the pattern of a Treides retainer, but with subtle reservations, differences. Arrakis had changed him, too. Two hooded Fremen emerged from the broken rock below them, began climbing upward. One of them carried a large black bundle over one shoulder. Where are my crew now? Secure in the rocks below us. We've a cave here. Cave of birds. We'll decide what to do with them after the storm. A voice called from above them. Muad'Dib! Paul turned at the call, saw a Fremen guard motioning them down to the cave. Paul signaled he had heard. Gurney studied him with a new expression. You're Muad'Dib? You're the Will of the Sand? It's my Fremen name. Gurney turned away, feeling an oppressive sense of foreboding. Half his own crew dead on the sand, the others captive. He did not care about the new recruits, the suspicious ones, but among the others were good men, friends, people for whom he felt responsible. We'll decide what to do with them after the storm. That's what Paul had said. Muad'Dib had said. And Gurney recalled the stories told of Muad'Dib, the Lisan al-Gaib, how he had taken the skin of a Harkonnen officer to make his drumheads, how he was surrounded by death commandos for Daikin who leaped into battle with their death chants on their lips. Him. The two Fremen climbing up the rocks leaped lightly to a shelf in front of Paul. The dark-faced one spoke. All secure, Muad'Dib. We best get below now. Right. Gurney noted the tone of the man's voice. Half command and half request. This was the man called Stilgar, another figure of the new Fremen legends. Paul looked at the bundle the other man carried. Korba, what's in the bundle? Twas in the crawler. It had the initial of your friend here, and it contains a balisset. Many times have I heard you speak of the prowess of Gurney Halleck on the balisset. Gurney studied the speaker, seeing the edge of black beard above the still-suit mask, the hawk stare, the chiseled nose. You've a companion who thinks, my lord. Thank you, Stilgar. Stilgar signaled for his companion to pass the bundle to Gurney. Thank your lord, Duke. His countenance earns your admittance here. Gurney accepted the bundle, puzzled by the hard undertones in this conversation. 
There was an air of challenge about the man, and Gurney wondered if it could be a feeling of jealousy in the Fremen. Here was someone called Gurney Halleck, who'd known Paul even in the times before Arrakis, a man who shared a camaraderie that Stilgar could never invade. You are two I'd have be friends. Stilgar the Fremen is a name of renown. Any killer of Harkonnens I'd feel honored to count among my friends. Will you touch hands with my friend Gurney Halleck, Stilgar? Slowly, Stilgar extended his hand, gripped the heavy calluses of Gurney's sword hand. There are few who haven't heard the name of Gurney Halleck. He released his grip and turned to Paul. The storm comes rushing. At once! Stilgar turned away, led them down through the rocks, a twisting and turning path into a shadowed cleft that admitted them to the low entrance of a cave. Men hurried to fasten a door seal behind them. Glow globes showed a broad, dome-sealing space with a raised ledge on one side and a passage leading off from it. Paul leaped to the ledge with Gurney right behind him, led the way into the passage. The others headed for another passage opposite the entrance. Paul led the way through an anteroom and into a chamber with dark, wine-coloured hangings on its walls. We can have some privacy here for a while, Paul said. The others will respect my... An alarm symbol clanged from the outer chamber, was followed by shouting and clashing of weapons. Paul whirled, ran back through the anteroom and out onto the atrium lip above the outer chamber. Gurney was right behind, weapon drawn. Beneath them, on the floor of the cave, swirled a melee of struggling figures. Paul stood an instant assessing the scene, separating the Fremen robes and borkas from the costumes of those they opposed. Senses that his mother had trained to detect the most subtle clues picked out a significant face. The Fremen fought against men wearing smuggler robes, but the smugglers were crouched in trios, backed into triangles where pressed. That habit of close fighting was a trademark of the Imperial Sardaka. A Fadaikin in the crowd saw Paul, and his battle cry was lifted to echo in the chamber. Muad'Dib! 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 Another eye had also picked Paul out. A black knife came hurtling toward him. Paul dodged, heard the knife clatter against stone behind him, glanced to see Gurney retrieve it. The triangular knots were being pressed back now. Gurney held the knife up in front of Paul's eyes, pointed to the hairline yellow coil of imperial color, the golden lion crest, multifaceted eyes at the pommel. Sardaka for certain. Paul stepped out to the lip of the ledge. Only three of the Sardaka remained. Bloody rag mounds of Sardaka and Fremen lay in a twisted pattern across the chamber. Hold! Paul shouted. The Duke Paul Atreides commands you to hold. The fighting wavered, hesitated. You Sardaka, Paul called the remaining group. By whose orders do you threaten the ruling Duke? And quickly, as his men started to press in around the Sardaka, Hold, I say! One of the cornered trio straightened. Who says we're Sardaka? he demanded. Paul took the knife from Gurney, held it aloft. This says you're Sardaka. Then who says you're a ruling duke? 
the man demanded. Paul gestured to the Vodaikin. These men say I'm a ruling duke. Your own emperor bestowed Arrakis on House Atreides. I am House Atreides. The Sardaka stood silent, fidgeting. Paul studied the man, tall, flat-featured, with a pale scar across half his left cheek. Anger and confusion were betrayed in his manner, but still there was that pride about him without which a Sardaka appeared undressed, and with which he could appear fully clothed, though naked. Paul glanced to one of his Fadaikin lieutenants, said, Korba, how came they to have weapons? They held back knives concealed in cunning pockets within their still suits, the lieutenant said. Paul surveyed the dead and wounded across the chamber, brought his attention back to the lieutenant. There was no need for words. The lieutenant lowered his eyes. Where is Cheney? Paul asked, and waited, breath held for the answer. Stilgar spirited her aside. He nodded toward the other passage, glanced at the dead and wounded. I hold myself responsible for this mistake, Muad'Dib. How many of these Sardaukar were there, Gurney? Paul asked. Ten. Paul leaped lightly to the floor of the chamber, strode across to stand within striking distance of the Sardaukar spokesman. A tense air came over the Fadaikin. They did not like him thus exposed to danger. This was the thing they were pledged to prevent because the Fremen wished to preserve the wisdom of Muad'Dib. Without turning, Paul spoke to his lieutenant. How many are our casualties? Four wounded, two dead, Muad'Dib. Paul saw motion beyond the Sarduka. Cheney and Stilgar were standing in the other passage. He returned his attention to the Sarduka, staring into the off-world whites of the spokesman's eyes. You, what is your name? Paul demanded. The man stiffened, glanced left and right. Don't try it. Paul said. It's obvious to me that you were ordered to seek out and destroy Muad'Dib. I'll warrant you were the ones suggested seeking spice in the deep desert. A gasp from Gurney behind him brought a thin smile to Paul's lips. Blood suffused the Sardaka's face. What you see before you is more than Muad'Dib, Paul said. Seven of you are dead, for two of us. Three for one. Pretty good against Sardaka, eh? The man came up on his toes, sank back as the Fadaikin pressed forward. I asked your name, Paul said, and he called up the subtleties of voice. Tell me your name. Captain Aramsham, Imperial Sardaka, the man snapped. His jaw dropped. He stared at Paul in confusion. The manner about him that had dismissed this cavern as a barbarian warren melted away. Well, Captain Aramsham, Paul said. The Harkonnens would pay dearly to learn what you now know. And the Emperor, what he wouldn't give to learn an Atreides still lives despite his treachery. The captain glanced left and right at the two men remaining to him. Paul could almost see the thoughts turning over in the man's head. Sardaukar did not submit, but the Emperor had to learn of this threat. Still using the voice, Paul said, Submit, Captain. The man at the captain's left leaped without warning toward Paul, met the flashing impact of his own captain's knife in his chest. The attacker hit the floor in a sodden heap with a knife still in him. The captain faced his sole remaining companion. I decide what best serves his majesty, he said. Understood?
The other Sardaka's shoulders slumped. Drop your weapon, the captain said. The Sardaka obeyed. The captain returned his attention to Paul. I have killed a friend for you, he said. Let us always remember that. You're my prisoners, Paul said. You submitted to me. Whether you live or die is of no importance. He motioned to the guard to take the two Sardaka, signalled the lieutenant who had searched the prisoners. The guard moved in, hustled the Sardaka away. Paul bent toward his lieutenant. What did the man said. I failed you in... The failure was mine, Korba, Paul said. I should have warned you what to seek. In the future, when searching Sarduka, remember this. Remember, too, that each has a false toenail or two that can be combined with other items secreted about their bodies to make an effective transmitter. They'll have more than one false tooth. They carry coils of shiga wire in their hair, so fine you can barely detect it, yet strong enough to garrote a man and cut off his head in the process. With Sardaka, you must scan them, scope them, both reflex and hard ray, cut off every scrap of body hair, and when you're through, be certain you haven't discovered everything. He looked up at Gurney, who had moved close to listen. Then we best kill them, the lieutenant said. Paul shook his head, still looking at Gurney. No, I want them to escape. Gurney stared at him. Sire, he breathed. Yes? Your man here is right. Kill those prisoners at once. Destroy all evidence of them. You've shamed Imperial Sardaka. When the Emperor learns that, he'll not rest until he has you over a slow fire. The Emperor's not likely to have that power over me, Paul said. He spoke slowly, coldly. Something had happened inside him while he faced the Sardaka. A sum of decisions had accumulated in his awareness. Gurney, he said. Are there many guildsmen around Raban? Gurney straightened, eyes narrowed. Your question makes no... Are there? Paul barked. Arrakis is crawling with guild agents. They're buying spice as though it were the most precious thing in the universe. Why else do you think we ventured this far into... It is the most precious thing in the universe, Paul said. To them. He looked towards Stilgar and Cheney, who were now crossing the chamber toward him. And we control it, Gurney. The Harkonnens control it, Gurney protested. The people who can destroy a thing, they control it, Paul said. He waved a hand to silence further remarks from Gurney, nodded to Stilgar, who stopped in front of Paul, Cheney beside him. Paul took the Sardaka knife in his left hand, presented it to Stilgar. You live for the good of the tribe, Paul said. Could you draw my life's blood with that knife? For the good of the tribe, Stilgar growled. Then use that knife, Paul said. Are you calling me out? Stilgar demanded. If I do, Paul said, I shall stand there without weapon and let you slay me. Stilgar drew in a quick, sharp breath. Cheney said, Usul, then glanced at Gurney, back to Paul. While Stilgar was still weighing his words, Paul said, You are Stilgar a fighting man. When the Sardaka began fighting here, you were not in the front of battle. Your first thought was to protect Cheney. She's my niece, Stilgar said. If there'd been any doubt of your Fadike in handling those scum. Why was your first thought of Cheney? Paul demanded. It wasn't. Oh? It was of you, Stilgar admitted. Do you think you could lift your hand against me? Paul asked. 
Stilgar began to tremble. It's the way, he muttered. It's the way to kill off-world strangers found in the desert and take their water as a gift from Shaihulud, Paul said. Yet you permitted two such to live one night, my mother and myself. As Stilgar remained silent, trembling, staring at him, Paul said, Ways change still. You have changed them yourself. Stilgar looked down at the yellow emblem on the knife he held. When I am duke in Arakeen, with Cheney by my side, do you think I'll have time to concern myself with every detail of governing Tabur Siech? Paul asked. Do you concern yourself with the internal problems of every family? Stilgar continued staring at the knife. Do you think I wish to cut off my right arm? Paul demanded. Slowly, Stilgar looked up at him. You, Paul said, do you think I wish to deprive myself or the tribe of your wisdom and strength? In a low voice, Stilgar said, The young man of my tribe, whose name is known to me, this young man I could kill on the challenge floor, Shai Hulud willing, the Lisan al-Gaib, him I could not harm. You knew this when you handed me this knife. I knew it, Paul agreed. Stilgar opened his hand. The knife clattered against the stone of the floor. Ways change, he said. Cheney, Paul said. Go to my mother. Send her here that her counsel will be available in... But you said we would go to the south, she protested. I was wrong, he said. The Harkonnens are not there. The war is not there. She took a deep breath. Accepting this as a desert woman accepted all necessities in the midst of a life involved with death. You will give my mother a message for her ears alone, Paul said. Tell her that Stilgar acknowledges me, Duke of Arrakis, but a way must be found to make the young men accept this without combat. Cheney glanced at Stilgar. Do as he says, Stilgar growled. We both know he could overcome me, and I could not raise my hand against him. For the good of the tribe. I shall return with your mother, Cheney said. Send her, Paul said. Stilgar's instinct was right. I am stronger when you are safe. You will remain in the Siege. She started to protest, swallowed it. Sihaya, Paul said, using his intimate name for her. He whirled away to the right, met Gurney's glaring eyes. The interchange between Paul and the older Fremen had passed as though in a cloud around Gurney since Paul's reference to his mother. Your mother, Gurney said. Idaho saved us the night of the raid, Paul said, distracted by the parting with Cheney. Right now we've... What of Duncan Idaho, my lord? Gurney asked. He's dead, buying us a bit of time to escape. The she-witch alive? Gurney thought. The one I saw vengeance against alive? And it's obvious Duke Paul doesn't know what manner of creature gave him birth. The evil one betrayed his own father to the Harkonnens. Paul pressed past him, jumped up to the ledge. He glanced back, noted that the wounded and dead had been removed, and he thought bitterly that here was another chapter in the legend of Paul Muad'Dib. I didn't even draw my knife. But it'll be said of this day that I slew twenty Sardaka by my own hand. Gurney followed with Stilgar, stepping on ground that he did not even feel. The cavern with its yellow light of glow globes was forced out of his thoughts by rage. 
the she-witch alive, while those she betrayed are bones in lonesome graves. I must contrive it that Paul learns the truth about her before I slay her. How often it is that the angry man rages denial of what his inner self is telling him. The Collected Sayings of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan. The crowd in the cavern assembly chamber radiated that pack feeling Jessica had sensed the day Paul killed Jameis. There was murmuring nervousness in the voices, little cliques gathered like knots among the robes. Jessica tucked a message cylinder beneath her robe as she emerged to the ledge from Paul's private quarters. She felt rested after the long journey up from the south, but still rankled that Paul would not yet permit them to use the captured ornithopters. We do not have full control of the air, he had said, and we must not become dependent upon off-world fuel. Both fuel and aircraft must be gathered and saved for the day of maximum effort. Paul stood with a group of the younger men near the ledge. The pale light of glow globes gave the scene a tinge of unreality. It was like a tableau, but with the added dimension of Warren smells, the whispers, the sounds of shuffling feet. She studied her son, wondering why he had not yet trotted out his surprise, Gurney Halleck. The thought of Gurney disturbed her with its memories of an easier past, days of love and beauty with Paul's father. Stilgar waited with a small group of his own at the other end of the ledge. There was a feeling of inevitable dignity about him, the way he stood without talking. We must not lose that man, Jessica thought. Paul's plan must work. Anything else would be the highest tragedy. She strode down the ledge, passing Stilgar without a glance, stepped down into the crowd. A way was made for her as she headed toward Paul, and silence followed her. She knew the meaning of the silence, the unspoken questions of the people, or of the Reverend Mother. The young men drew back from Paul as she came up to him, and she found herself momentarily dismayed by the new deference they paid him. All men beneath your position covet your station, went the Bene Gesserit axiom. But she found no covetousness in these faces. They were held at a distance by the religious ferment around Paul's leadership, and she recalled another Bene Gesserit saying, Prophets have a way of dying by violence. Paul looked at her. It's time, she said, and passed the message cylinder to him. One of Paul's companions, bolder than the others, glanced across at Stilgar, said, Are you going to call him out, Muad'Dib? Now's the time for sure. They'll think you a coward if you... Who dares call me coward? Paul demanded. His hand flashed to his Chris knife hilt. Baited silence came over the group, spreading out into the crowd. There's work to do, Paul said, as the man drew back from him. Paul turned away, shouldered through the crowd to the ledge, leaped lightly up to it and faced the people. Do it, someone shrieked. Murmurs and whispers arose behind the shriek. Paul waited for silence. It came slowly amidst scattered shufflings and coughs. When it was quiet in the cavern, Paul lifted his chin, spoke in a voice that carried to the farthest corners. You are tired of waiting, Paul said. Again he waited while the cries of response died out. Indeed they are tired of waiting, Paul thought. 
He hefted the message cylinder, thinking of what it contained. His mother had showed it to him, explaining how it had been taken from a Harkonnen courier. The message was explicit. Raban was being abandoned to his own resources here on Arrakis. He could not call for help or reinforcements. Again Paul raised his voice. You think it's time I called out Stilgar and challenged the leadership of the troops? Before they could respond, Paul hurled his voice at them in anger. Do you think the Lizan al-Gaib that stupid? There was a stunned silence. He's accepting the religious mantle. Jessica thought. He must not do it. It's the way, someone shouted. Paul spoke dryly, probing the emotional undercurrents. Ways change. An angry voice lifted from a corner of the cavern. We'll say what's to change. There were scattered shouts of agreement through the throng. As you wish, Paul said. And Jessica heard the subtle intonations as he used the powers of voice she had taught him. You will say, he agreed, but first you will hear my say. Stilgar moved along the ledge, his bearded face impassive. That is the way too, he said. The voice of any Fremen may be heard in council. Paul Muad'Dib is a Fremen. The good of the tribe, that is the most important thing, eh? Paul asked. Still with that flat-voiced dignity, Stilgar said, Thus our steps are guided. All right, Paul said. Then, who rules this troop of our tribe? And who rules all the tribes and troops through the fighting instructors we've trained in the weirding way? Paul waited, looking over the heads of the throng. No answer came. Presently he said, Does Stilgar rule all this? He says himself that he does not. Do I rule? Even Stilgar does my bidding on occasion, and the sages, the wisest of the wise, listen to me and honour me in council. There was shuffling silence among the crowd. So, Paul said, does my mother rule? He pointed down to Jessica in her black robes of office among them. Stilgar and all the other troop leaders ask her advice in almost every major decision. You know this. But does a reverend mother walk the sand, or lead a razia against the Harkonnens? Frowns creased the foreheads of those Paul could see, but still there were angry murmurs. This is a dangerous way to do it, Jessica thought. But she remembered the message, Cylinder, and what it implied. And she saw Paul's intent go right to the depth of their uncertainty, dispose of that, and all the rest must follow. No man recognizes leadership without the challenge and the combat, eh? Paul asked. That's the way, someone shouted. What's our goal? Paul asked. To unseat Raban, the Harkonnen beast, and remake our world into a place where we may raise our families in happiness amidst an abundance of water? Is this our goal? Hard tasks need hard ways, someone shouted. Do you smash your knife before a battle, Paul demanded. I say this as fact, not meaning it as boast or challenge. There isn't a man here, Stilgar included, who could stand against me in single combat. This is Stilgar's own admission. He knows it, so do you all. Again the angry mutters lifted from the crowd. 
Many of you have been with me on the practice floor, Paul said. You know this isn't idle boast. I say it because it's fact known to us all, and I'd be foolish not to see it for myself. I began training in these ways earlier than you did, and my teachers were tougher than any you've ever seen. How else do you think I bested Jamis, at an age when your boys are still fighting only mock battles? He's using the voice well, Jessica thought. But that's not enough with these people. They've good insulation against vocal control. He must catch them also with logic. So, Paul said, we come to this. He lifted the message cylinder, removed its scrap of tape. This was taken from a Harkonnen courier. Its authenticity is beyond question. It is addressed to Raban. It tells him that his request for new troops is denied that his spice harvest is far below quota, that he must wring more spice from Arrakis with the people he has. Stilgar moved up beside Paul. How many of you see what this means? Paul asked. Stilgar saw it immediately. They're cut off, someone shouted. Paul pushed message and cylinder into his sash. From his neck, he took a braided shigawire cord and removed a ring from the cord, holding the ring aloft. This was my father's ducal signet, he said. I swore never to wear it again until I was ready to lead my troops over all of Arrakis and claim it as my rightful fief. He put the ring on his finger, clenched his fist. Utter stillness gripped the cavern. Who rules here? Paul asked. He raised his fist. I rule here. I rule on every square inch of Arrakis. This is my ducal fief, whether the emperor says yea or nay. He gave it to my father, and it comes to me through my father. Paul lifted himself onto his toes, settled back to his heels. He studied the crowd, feeling their temper. Almost, he thought. There are men here who will hold positions of importance on Arrakis when I claim those imperial rights which are mine, Paul said. Stilgar is one of those men, not because I wish to bribe him, not out of gratitude, though I'm one of many here who owe him life for life, no, but because he's wise and strong, because he governs this troop by his own intelligence and not just by rules. Do you think me stupid? Do you think I'll cut off my right arm and leave it bloody on the floor of this cavern just to provide you with a circus? Paul swept a hard gaze across the throng. Who is there here to say I'm not the rightful ruler of Arrakis? Must I prove it by leaving every Fremen tribe in the Erg without a leader? Beside Paul, Stilgar stirred, looked at him questioningly. Will I subtract from our strength when we need it most? Paul asked. I am your ruler, and I say to you that it is time we stopped killing off our best men and started killing our real enemies, the Harkonnens. In one blurred motion, Stilgar had his Chris knife out and pointed over the heads of the throng. Long live Duke Paul Mordib! he shouted. A deafening roar filled the cavern, echoed and re-echoed. They were cheering and chanting. Yahya, Chuhada, Muadib, 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 Yahya, Chuhada. 
Jessica translated it to herself. Long live the fighters of Muad'Dib. The scene she and Paul and Stilgar had cooked up between them had worked as they'd planned. The tumult died slowly. When silence was restored, Paul faced Stilgar, said, Kneel, Stilgar. Stilgar dropped to his knees on the ledge. Hand me your Chris knife, Paul said. Stilgar obeyed. This was not as we planned it, Jessica thought. Repeat after me, Stilgar, Paul said. And he called up the words of investiture as he had heard his own father use them. I, Stilgar, take this knife from the hands of my duke. I, Stilgar, take this knife from the hands of my duke, Stilgar said, and accepted the milky blade from Paul. Where my duke commands, there shall I place this blade, Paul said. Stilgar repeated the words, speaking slowly and solemnly. Remembering the source of the rite, Jessica blinked back tears, shook her head. I know the reasons for this, she thought. I shouldn't let it stir me. I dedicate this blade to the cause of my duke and the death of his enemies for as long as our blood shall flow, Paul said. Stilgar repeated it after him. Kiss the blade, Paul ordered. Stilgar obeyed, then in the Fremen manner kissed Paul's knife arm. At a nod from Paul, he sheathed the blade, got to his feet. A sighing whisper of awe passed through the crowd, and Jessica heard the words. The prophecy. A Bene Gesserit shall show the way, and a reverend mother shall see it. And from farther away, she shows us through her son. Stilgar leads this tribe, Paul said. Let no man mistake that. He commands with my voice. What he tells you, it is as though I told you. Wise, Jessica thought. The tribal commander must lose no face among those who should obey him. Paul lowered his voice, said, Stilgar, I want sandwalkers out this night, and Cialago sent to summon a council gathering. When you've sent them, bring Khat, Korba, and Othaim, and two other lieutenants of your own choosing. Bring them to my quarters for battle planning. We must have a victory to show the council of leaders when they arrive. Paul nodded for his mother to accompany him, led the way down off the ledge and through the throng toward the central passage and the living chambers that had been prepared there. As Paul pressed through the crowd, hands reached out to touch him. Voices called out to him. My knife goes where Stilgar commands it, Paul Muad'Dib. Let us fight soon, Paul Muad'Dib. Let us wet our world with the blood of Harkonnens. Feeling the emotions of the throng, Jessica sensed the fighting edge of these people. They could not be more ready. We are taking them at the crest, she thought. In the inner chamber, Paul motioned his mother to be seated, said, Wait here, and he ducked through the hangings to the side passage. It was quiet in the chamber after Paul had gone, so quiet behind the hangings that not even the faint soughing of the wind pumps that circulated air in the sietch penetrated to where she sat. He is going to bring Gurney Halleck here, she thought, and she wondered at the strange mingling of emotions that filled her. Gurney and his music had been a part of so many pleasant times on Caladan, before the move to Arrakis. She felt that Caladan had happened to some other person. In the nearly three years since then, she had become another person. Having to confront Gurney forced a reassessment of the changes. 
Paul's coffee service, the fluted alloy of silver and jasmium that he had inherited from Jamis, rested on a low table to her right. She stared at it, thinking of how many hands had touched that metal. Cheney had served Paul from it within the month. What can his desert woman do for a duke except serve him coffee? She asked herself. She brings him no power, no family. Paul has only one major chance, to ally himself with a powerful great house, perhaps even with the imperial family. There are marriageable princesses, after all, and every one of them Benny Gesserit trained. Jessica imagined herself leaving the rigours of Arrakis for the life of power and security she could know as mother of a royal consort. She glanced at the thick hangings that obscured the rock of this cavern cell, thinking of how she had come here, riding amidst a host of worms, the palanquins and pack platforms piled high with necessities for the coming campaign. As long as Cheney lives, Paul will not see his duty, Jessica thought. She has given him a son, and that is enough. A sudden longing to see her grandson, the child whose likeness carried so much of the grandfather's features, so like Leto, swept through her. Jessica placed her palms against her cheeks, began the ritual breathing that stilled emotion and clarified the mind, then bent forward from the waist in the devotional exercise that prepared the body for the mind's demands. Paul's choice of this cave of birds as his command post could not be questioned, she knew. It was ideal, and to the north lay Wind Pass opening onto a protected village in a cliff-walled sink. It was a key village, home of artisans and technicians, maintenance centre for an entire Harkonnen defensive sector. A cough sounded outside the chamber hangings. Jessica straightened, took a deep breath, exhaled slowly. Enter, she said. Draperies were flung aside and Gurney Halleck bounded into the room. She had only time for a glimpse of his face with its odd grimace, then he was behind her, lifting her to her feet with one brawny arm beneath her chin. Gurney, you fool, what are you doing? she demanded. Then she felt the touch of the knife tip against her back. Chill awareness spread out from that knife tip. She knew in that instant that Gurney meant to kill her. Why? She could think of no reason, for he wasn't the kind to turn traitor, but she felt certain of his intention. Knowing it, her mind churned. Here was no man to be overcome easily. Here was a killer, wary of the voice, wary of every combat stratagem, wary of every trick of death and violence. Here was an instrument she herself had helped train with subtle hints and suggestions. You thought you had escaped, eh, witch? Gurney snarled. Before she could turn the question over in her mind or try to answer, the curtains parted, and Paul entered. Here he is, my... Paul broke off, taking in the tensions of the scene. You will stand where you are, my lord, Gurney said. What? Paul shook his head. Jessica started to speak, felt the arm tighten against her throat. You will speak only when I permit it, witch, Gurney said. I want only one thing from you for your son to hear it, and I am prepared to send this knife into your heart by reflex at the first sign of a counter against me. Your voice will remain in a monotone. Certain muscles you will not tense or move. You will act with the most extreme caution to gain yourself a few more seconds of life, and I assure you, these are all you have. 
Paul took a step forward. Gurney, man, what is- Stop right where you are, Gurney snapped. One more step and she's dead. Paul's hand slipped to his knife hilt. He spoke in a deadly quiet. You had best explain yourself, Gurney. I swore an oath to slay the betrayer of your father, Gurney said. Do you think I can forget the man who rescued me from a Harkonnen slave pit? Gave me freedom, life, and honor? Gave me friendship, a thing I prized above all else? I have his betrayer under my knife. No one can stop me from... You couldn't be more wrong, Gurney, Paul said. And Jessica thought, so that's it. What irony. Wrong, am I? Gurney demanded. Let us hear it from the woman herself, and let her remember that I have bribed and spied and cheated to confirm this charge. I've even pushed Samuta on a Harkonnen guard captain to get part of the story. Jessica felt the arm at her throat ease slightly, but before she could speak, Paul said, The betrayer was Yui. I tell you this once, Gurney. The evidence is complete, cannot be controverted. It was Yui. I do not care how you came by your suspicion, for it can be nothing else, but if you harm my mother... Paul lifted his Chris knife from its scabbard, held the blade in front of him. I'll have your blood. Yui was a conditioned medic, fit for a royal house, Gurney snarled. He could not turn traitor. I know a way to remove that conditioning, Paul said. Evidence, Gurney insisted. The evidence is not here, Paul said. It's in Tabor Siech, far to the south. But if this is a trick, Gurney snarled, and his arm tightened on Jessica's throat. No trick, Gurney, Paul said, and his voice carried such a note of terrible sadness that the sound tore at Jessica's heart. I saw the message captured from the Harkonnen agent, Gurney said. The note pointed directly at... I saw it too, Paul said. My father showed it to me the night he explained why it had to be a Harkonnen trick aimed at making him suspect the woman he loved. Aya, Gurney said. You have not... Be quiet, Paul said. And the monotone stillness of his words carried more command than Jessica had ever heard in another voice. He has the great control, she thought. Gurney's arm trembled against her neck. The point of the knife at her back moved with uncertainty. What you have not done, Paul said, is heard my mother sobbing in the night over her lost duke. You have not seen her eyes stab flame when she speaks of killing Harkonnens. So he has listened, she thought. Tears blinded her eyes. What you have not done, Paul went on, is remembered the lessons you learned in a Harkonnen slave pit. You speak of pride in my father's friendship. Didn't you learn the difference between Harkonnen and Atreides so that you could smell a Harkonnen trick by the stink they left on it? Didn't you learn that Atreides' loyalty is bought with love, while the Harkonnen coin is hate? Couldn't you see through to the very nature of this betrayal? But Yui, Gurney muttered, the evidence we have is Yui's own message to us, admitting his treachery, Paul said. I swear this to you by the love I hold for you, a love I will still hold, even after I leave you dead on this floor. Hearing her son, Jessica marveled at the awareness in him, the penetrating insight of his intelligence. My father had an instinct for his friends, Paul said. He gave his love sparingly, but with never an error. His weakness lay in misunderstanding hatred. He thought anyone who hated Harkonnens could not betray him. He glanced at his mother. 
She knows this. I've given her my father's message, that he never distrusted her. Jessica felt herself losing control, a bit at her lower lip. Seeing the stiff formality in Paul, she realized what these words were costing him. She wanted to run to him, cradle his head against her breast as she never had done. But the arm against her throat had ceased its trembling. The knife pointed her back, pressed still and sharp. One of the most terrible moments in a boy's life, Paul said, is when he discovers his father and mother are human beings who share a love that he can never quite taste. It's a loss, an awakening to the fact that the world is there and here, and we are in it alone. The moment carries its own truth. You can't evade it. I heard my father when he spoke of my mother. She's not the betrayer, Gurney. Jessica found her voice, said, Gurney, release me. There was no special command in the words, no trick to play on his weaknesses, but Gurney's hand fell away. She crossed to Paul, stood in front of him, not touching him. Paul, she said, there are other awakenings in this universe. I suddenly see how I've used you and twisted you and manipulated you to set you on a course of my choosing, a course I had to choose, if that's any excuse, because of my own training. She swallowed past a lump in her throat, looked up into her son's eyes. Paul, I want you to do something for me. Choose the course of happiness. Your desert woman, marry her if that's your wish. Defy everyone and everything to do this, but choose your own course. I... She broke off, stopped by the low sound of muttering behind her. Gurney. She saw Paul's eyes directed beyond her. Turned. Gurney stood in the same spot, but had sheathed his knife, pulled the robe away from his breast to expose the slick greyness of an issue still suit, the type the smugglers traded for among the Sietch Warrens. Put your knife right here in my breast, Gurney muttered. I say kill me and have done with it. I've besmirched my name. I've betrayed my own duke. The finest beast still, Paul said. Gurney stared at him. Close that robe and stop acting like a fool, Paul said. I've had enough foolishness for one day. Kill me, I say, Gurney raged. You know me better than that, Paul said. How many kinds of an idiot do you think I am? Must I go through this with every man I need? Gurney looked at Jessica, spoke in a forlorn, pleading note so unlike him. Then you, my lady, please, you kill me. Jessica crossed to him, put her hands on his shoulders. Gurney, why do you insist the Atreides must kill those they love? Gently she pulled the spread robe out of his fingers, closed and fastened the fabric over his chest. Gurney spoke brokenly. But I... You thought you were doing a thing for Leto, she said, and for this I honour you. My lady, Gurney said. He dropped his chin to his chest, squeezed his eyelids closed against the tears. Let us think of this as a misunderstanding among old friends, she said, and Paul heard the soothers, the adjusting tones in her voice. It's over and we can be thankful we'll never again have that sort of misunderstanding between us. 
Gurney opened eyes, bright with moisture, looked down at her. The Gurney Halleck I knew was a man adept with both blade and baliset, Jessica said. It was the man of the baliset I most admired. Doesn't that Gurney Halleck remember how I used to enjoy listening by the hour while he played for me? Do you still have a baliset, Gurney? Of a new one, Gurney said. Bought from Chusek, a sweet instrument. Plays like a genuine Verota, though there's no signature on it. I think myself it was made by a student of Verota's who... He broke off. What can I say to you, my lady? Here we prattle about... Not prattle, Gurney, Paul said. He crossed to stand beside his mother, eye to eye with Gurney. Not prattle, but a thing that brings happiness between friends. I'd take it a kindness if you'd play for her now. Battle planning can wait a little while. We'll not be going into the fight till tomorrow at any rate. I, I'll get my baliset, Gurney said. It's in the passage. He stepped around them and through the hangings. Paul put a hand on his mother's arm, found that she was trembling. It's over, mother, he said. Without turning her head, she looked up at him from the corners of her eyes. Over? Of course. Gurney's... Gurney? Oh, yes. She lowered her gaze. The hangings rustled as Gurney returned with his baliset. He began tuning it, avoiding their eyes. The hangings on the walls dulled the echoes, making the instrument sound small and intimate. Paul led his mother to a cushion, seated her there with her back to the thick draperies of the wall. He was suddenly struck by how old she seemed to him, with the beginnings of desert-dried lines in her face, the stretching at the corners of her blue-veiled eyes. She's tired, he thought. We must find some way to ease her burdens. Gurney strummed a chord. Paul glanced at him, said, I've things that need my attention. Wait here for me. Gurney nodded. His mind seemed far away, as though he dwelled for this moment beneath the open skies of Caladan, with cloud fleece on the horizon promising rain. Paul forced himself to turn away, let himself out through the heavy hangings over the side passage. He heard Gurney take up a tune behind him, and paused a moment outside the room to listen to the muted music. Orchards and vineyards, and full-breasted houris, and a cup overflowing before me. Why do I babble of battles, and mountains reduced to dust? Why do I feel these tears? Heavens stand open and scatter their riches. My hands need but gather their wealth. Why do I think of an ambush and poison in molten cup? Why do I feel my years? Love's arms beckon with their naked delights, and Eden's promise of ecstasies. Why do I remember the scars, dream of old transgressions? And why do I sleep with fears? A robed for Daikin courier appeared from a corner of the passage ahead of Paul. The man had hood thrown back and fastenings of his still suit hanging loose about his neck, proof that he had come just now from the open desert. Paul motioned for him to stop, left the hangings of the door and moved down the passage to the courier. The man bowed, hands clasped in front of him the way he might greet a reverend mother or Syedina of the rites. He said, Mwadib, leaders are beginning to arrive for the council. So soon? These are the ones Stilgar sent for earlier when it was thought... He shrugged. 
I see. Paul glanced back toward the faint sound of the baliset, thinking of the old song that his mother favoured, an odd stretching of happy tune and sad words. Stilgar will come here soon with others. Show them where my mother waits. I will wait here, Muad'Dib, the courier said. Yes, yes, do that. Paul pressed past the man toward the depths of the cavern, headed for the place that each such cavern had, a place near its water-holding basin. There would be a small shy hulud in this place, a creature no more than nine meters long, kept stunted and trapped by surrounding water ditches. The maker, after emerging from its little maker vector, avoided water for the poison it was. And the drowning of a maker was the greatest Fremen secret because it produced the substance of their union, the water of life, the poison that could only be changed by a reverend mother. The decision had come to Paul while he faced the tension of danger to his mother. No line of the future he had ever seen carried that moment of peril from Gurney Halleck. The future, the grey cloud future, with its feeling that the entire universe rolled toward a boiling nexus, hung around him like a phantom world. I must see it, he thought. His body had slowly acquired a certain spice tolerance that made prescient visions fewer and fewer, dimmer and dimmer. The solution appeared obvious to him. I will drown the Maker. We will see now whether I'm the Kwisatz Hadrak, who can survive the test that the Reverend Mothers have survived. And it came to pass in the third year of the Desert War that Paul Muad'Dib lay alone in the Cave of Birds beneath the Kiswa hangings of an inner cell. And he lay as one dead, caught up in the revelation of the Water of Life, his being translated beyond the boundaries of time by the poison that gives life. Thus was the prophecy made true that the Lisan al-Gaib might be both dead and alive. Collected Legends of Arrakis by the Princess Irulan. Cheney came up out of the Habanya Basin in the pre-dawn darkness, hearing the thopter that had brought her from the south go whir-whirring off to a hiding place in the vastness. Around her, the escort kept its distance, fanning out into the rocks of the ridge to probe for dangers, and giving the mate of Muad'Dib, the mother of his firstborn, the thing she had requested, a moment to walk alone. Why did he summon me? she asked herself. He told me before that I must remain in the south with little Leto and Alia. She gathered her robe and leaped lightly up across a barrier rock and onto the climbing path that only the desert trained could recognize in the darkness. Pebbles slithered underfoot and she danced across them without considering the nimbleness required. The climb was exhilarating, easing the fears that had fermented in her because of her escort's silent withdrawal and the fact that a precious thopter had been sent for her. She felt the inner leaping at the nearness of reunion with Paul Muad'Dib, her Usul. His name might be a battle cry over all the land, Muad'Dib, 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 but she knew a different man by a different name, the father of her son, the tender lover. 
A great figure loomed out of the rocks above her, beckoning for speed. She quickened her pace. Dawn birds already were calling and lifting into the sky. A dim spread of light grew across the eastern horizon. The figure above was not one of her own escort. Othheim? she wondered, marking a familiarity of movement and manner. She came up to him, recognized in the growing light the broad, flat features of the Fadaikin lieutenant, his hood open and mouth filter loosely fastened, the way one did sometimes when venturing out on the desert for only a moment. Hurry, he hissed, and led her down the secret crevasse into the hidden cave. It will be light soon, he whispered, as he held a door seal open for her. The Harkonnens have been making desperation patrols over some of this region. We dare not chance discovery now. They emerged into the narrow side-passage entrance to the cave of birds. Glow-globes came alight. Othheim pressed past her, said, Follow me, quickly now. They sped down the passage, through another valve door, another passage, and through hangings into what had been the Syadina's alcove in the days when this was an overday rest cave. Rugs and cushions now covered the floor. Woven hangings with a red figure of a hawk hid the rock walls. A low field desk at one side was strewn with papers from which lifted the aroma of their spice origin. The Reverend Mother sat alone directly opposite the entrance. She looked up with the inward stare that made the uninitiated tremble. Othheim pressed palms together, said, I have brought Cheney. He bowed, retreated through the hangings. And Jessica thought, How do I tell Cheney? How is my grandson? Jessica asked. So it's to be the ritual greeting, Cheney thought, and her fears returned. Where is Muad'Dib? Why isn't he here to greet me? He is healthy and happy, my mother, Cheney said. I left him with Aliyah in the care of Hera. My mother, Jessica thought. Yes, she has the right to call me that in the formal greeting. She has given me a grandson. I hear a gift of cloth has been sent from Kohanua Siege, Jessica said. It is lovely cloth, Cheney said. Does Aliyah send a message? No message, but the Siege moves more smoothly now that the people are beginning to accept the miracle of her status. Why does she drag this out so? Cheney wondered. Something was so urgent that they sent a thopter for me. Now we drag through the formalities. We must have some of the new cloth cut into garments for a little later, Jessica said. Whatever you wish, my mother. Cheney said. She lowered her gaze. Is there news of battles? She held her face expressionless that Jessica might not see the betrayal, that this was a question about Paul Muad'Dib. New victories, Jessica said. Raban has sent cautious overtures about a truce. His messengers have been returned without their water. Raban has even lightened the burdens of the people in some of the sink villages, but he is too late. The people know he does it out of fear of us. Thus it goes, as Muad'Dib said, Cheney said. She stared at Jessica, trying to keep her fears to herself. I have spoken his name, but she has not responded. One cannot see emotion in that glazed stone she calls a face, but she is too frozen. Why is she so still? What has happened to my Usul? I wish we were in the south, Jessica said. The oases were so beautiful when we left. Do you not long for the day when the whole land may blossom thus? The land is beautiful, true, Cheney said, but there is much grief in it. 
Grief is the price of victory, Jessica said. Is she preparing me for grief? Cheney asked herself. She said, there are so many women without men. There was jealousy when it was learned that I'd been summoned north. I summoned you, Jessica said. Cheney felt her heart hammering. She wanted to clap her hands to her ears, fearful of what they might hear. Still, she kept her voice even. The message was signed Muad'Dib. I signed it thus in the presence of his lieutenants, Jessica said. It was a subterfuge of necessity. And Jessica thought, this is a brave woman, my Pauls. She holds to the niceties even when fear is almost overwhelming her. Yes, she may be the one we need now. Only the slightest tone of resignation crept into Chena's voice as she said, Now you may say the thing that must be said. You were needed here to help me revive Paul, Jessica said, and she thought, There, I said it in the precisely correct way, revive. Thus she knows Paul is alive and knows there is peril all in the same word. Chaney took only a moment to calm herself. Then, what is it I may do? She wanted to leap at Jessica, shake her and scream, Take me to him! But she waited silently for the answer. I suspect, Jessica said, that the Harkonnens have managed to send an agent among us to poison Paul. It's the only explanation that seems to fit. A most unusual poison. I've examined his blood in the most subtle ways without detecting it. Cheney thrust herself forward onto her knees. Poison? Is he in pain? Could I... He is unconscious, Jessica said. The processes of his life are so low that they can be detected only with the most refined techniques. I shudder to think what could have happened had I not been the one to discover him. He appears dead to the untrained eye. You have reasons other than courtesy for summoning me. Cheney said. I know you, Reverend Mother. What is it you think I may do that you cannot do? She is brave, lovely, and, ah, so perceptive, Jessica thought. She'd have made a fine Bene Gesserit. Cheney, Jessica said, you may find this difficult to believe, but I do not know precisely why I sent for you. It was an instinct, a basic intuition, the thought came unbidden. Send for Cheney. For the first time, Cheney saw the sadness in Jessica's expression, the unveiled pain modifying the inward stare. I've done all I know to do, Jessica said. That all, it is so far beyond what is usually supposed as all, that you would find difficulty imagining it. Yet, I failed. The old companion, Halleck, Cheney asked, is it possible he's a traitor? Not Gurney, Jessica said. The two words carried an entire conversation, and Cheney saw the searching, the tests, the memories of old failures that went into this flat denial. Cheney rocked back onto her feet, stood up, smoothed her desert-stained robe. Take me to him, she said. Jessica arose, turned through hangings on the left wall. Cheney followed, found herself in what had been a storeroom, its rock walls concealed now beneath heavy draperies. Paul lay on a field pad against the far wall. A single glow globe above him illuminated his face. A black robe covered him to the chest, leaving his arms outside it, stretched along his sides. He appeared to be unclothed under the robe. 
The skin exposed looked waxen, rigid. There was no visible movement to him. Cheney suppressed the desire to dash forward, throw herself across him. She found her thoughts instead going to her son, Leto. And she realized in this instant that Jessica once had faced such a moment. Her man threatened by death, forced in her own mind to consider what might be done to save a young son. The realization formed a sudden bond with the older woman, so that Cheney reached out and clasped Jessica's hand. The answering grip was painful in its intensity. He lives, Jessica said. I assure you, he lives. But the thread of his life is so thin it could easily escape detection. There are some among the leaders already muttering that the mother speaks and not the reverend mother, that my son is truly dead and I do not want to give up his water to the tribe. How long has he been this way? Cheney asked. She disengaged her hand from Jessica's, moved farther into the room. Three weeks, Jessica said. I spent almost a week trying to revive him. There were meetings, arguments, investigations. Then I sent for you. The Fadaikin obey my orders, else I might not have been able to delay thee. She wet her lips with her tongue, watched Cheney cross to Paul. Cheney stood over him now, looking down on the soft beard of youth that framed his face, tracing with her eyes the high brow line, the strong nose, the shuttered eyes the features so peaceful in this rigid repose. How does he take nourishment? Cheney asked. The demands of his flesh are so slight he does not yet need food, Jessica said. How many know of what has happened? Cheney asked. Only his closest advisers, a few of the leaders, the Fadaikin and, of course, whoever administered the poison. There is no clue to the poisoner? And it's not for want of investigating, Jessica said. What do the Fadaikin say? Cheney asked. They believe Paul is in a sacred trance, gathering his holy powers before the final battles. This is a thought I've cultivated. Cheney lowered herself to her knees beside the pad, bent close to Paul's face. She sensed an immediate difference in the air about his face, but it was only the spice, the ubiquitous spice whose odour permeated everything in Fremen life. Still... You were not born to the spice as we were, Cheney said. Have you investigated the possibility that his body has rebelled against too much spice in his diet? Allergy reactions are all negative, Jessica said. She closed her eyes, as much to blot out this scene as because of sudden realization of fatigue. How long have I been without sleep? She asked herself. Too long. When you change the water of life, Cheney said, you do it within yourself by the inward awareness. Have you used this awareness to test his blood? Normal Fremen blood, Jessica said, completely adapted to the diet and the life here. Cheney sat back on her heels, submerging her fears in thought as she studied Paul's face. This was a trick she had learned from watching the Reverend Mothers. Time could be made to serve the mind. One concentrated the entire attention. Presently, Cheney said, Is there a maker here? There are several, Jessica said, with a touch of weariness. We are never without them these days. Each victory requires its blessing, each ceremony before a raid. But Paul Mouadib has held himself aloof from these ceremonies, Cheney said. 
Jessica nodded to herself, remembering her son's ambivalent feelings toward the spice drug and the prescient awareness it precipitated. How did you know this? Jessica asked. It is spoken. Too much is spoken, Jessica said bitterly. Get me the raw water of the maker, Cheney said. Jessica stiffened at the tone of command in Cheney's voice, then observed the intense concentration in the younger woman and said, At once. She went out through the hangings to send a waterman. Cheney sat staring at Paul. If he has tried to do this, she thought, and it's the sort of thing he might try. Jessica knelt beside Cheney, holding out a plain camp ewer. The charged odor of the poison was sharp in Cheney's nostrils. She dipped a finger in the fluid, held the finger close to Paul's nose. The skin along the bridge of his nose wrinkled slightly. Slowly, the nostrils flared. Jessica gasped. Cheney touched the dampened finger to Paul's upper lip. He drew in a long, sobbing breath. What is this? Jessica demanded. Be still, Cheney said. You must convert a small amount of the sacred water, quickly. Without questioning, because she recognized the tone of awareness in Cheney's voice, Jessica lifted the ewer to her mouth, drew in a small sip. Paul's eyes flew open. He stared upward at Cheney. It is not necessary for her to change the water, he said. His voice was weak, but steady. Jessica, a sip of the fluid on her tongue, found her body rallying, converting the poison almost automatically. In the light elevation the ceremony always imparted, she sensed the life glow from Paul, a radiation there registering on her senses. In that instant, she knew. You drank the sacred water! she blurted. One drop of it, Paul said. So small. One drop. How could you do such a foolish thing? she demanded. He is your son, Cheney said. Jessica glared at her. A rare smile, warm and full of understanding, touched Paul's lips. Hear, my beloved, he said. Listen to her, mother. She knows. A thing that others can do he must do, Cheney said. When I had the drop in my mouth, when I felt it and smelled it, when I knew what it was doing to me, then I knew I could do the thing that you have done, he said. Your Bene Gesserit proctors speak of the Kwisatz Haderach, but they cannot begin to guess the many places I have been. In the few minutes I... He broke off, looking at Cheney with a puzzled frown. Cheney, how did you get here? You're supposed to be... Why are you here? He tried to push himself onto his elbows. Cheney pressed him back, gently. Please, my Usul, she said. I feel so weak, he said. His gaze darted around the room. How long have I been here? You've been three weeks in a coma so deep that the spark of life seemed to have fled, Jessica said. But it was... I took it just a moment ago, and a moment for you. Three weeks of fear for me, Jessica said. It was only one drop, but I converted it, Paul said. I changed the water of life. And before Cheney or Jessica could stop him, he dipped his hand into the ewer they had placed on the floor beside him, and he brought the dripping hand to his mouth, swallowed the palm-cupped liquid. Paul! Jessica screamed. 
He grabbed her hand, faced her with a death's head grin, and he sent his awareness surging over her. The rapport was not as tender, not as sharing, not as encompassing as it had been with Aaliyah and with the old reverend mother in the cavern, but it was a rapport, a sense-sharing of the entire being. It shook her, weakened her, and she cowered in her mind, fearful of him. Aloud, he said, You speak of a place where you cannot enter? This place which the Reverend Mother cannot face. Show it to me. She shook her head, terrified by the very thought. Show it to me, he commanded. No! But she could not escape him. Bludgeoned by the terrible force of him, she closed her eyes and focused inward the direction that is dark. Paul's consciousness flowed through and around her and into the darkness. She glimpsed the place dimly before her mind blanked itself away from the terror. Without knowing why, her whole being trembled at what she had seen, a region where a wind blew and sparks glared, where rings of light expanded and contracted, where rows of tumescent white shapes flowed over and under and around the lights, driven by darkness and a wind out of nowhere. Presently she opened her eyes, saw Paul staring up at her, he still held her hand, but the terrible rapport was gone. She quieted her trembling. Paul released her hand. It was as though some crutch had been removed. She staggered up and back, would have fallen had not Cheney jumped to support her. Reverend Mother, Cheney said, what is wrong? Tired, Jessica whispered. So, tired. Here, Cheney said, sit here. She helped Jessica to a cushion against the wall. The strong young arms felt so good to Jessica. She clung to Cheney. He has, in truth, seen the water of life? Cheney asked. She disengaged herself from Jessica's grip. He has seen, Jessica whispered. Her mind still rolled and surged from the contact. It was like stepping to solid land after weeks on a heaving sea. She sensed the old reverend mother within her, and all the others awakened and questioning. What was that? What happened? Where was that place? Through it all threaded the realization that her son was the Kwisatz Haderach, the one who could be many places at once. He was the fact out of the Bene Gesserit dream, and the fact gave her no peace. What happened? Cheney demanded. Jessica shook her head. Paul said, there is in each of us an ancient force that takes and an ancient force that gives. A man finds little difficulty facing that place within himself where the taking force dwells. But it's almost impossible for him to see into the giving force without changing into something other than man. For a woman, the situation is reversed. Jessica looked up, found Cheney was staring at her while listening to Paul. Do you understand me, mother? Paul asked. She could only nod. These things are so ancient within us, Paul said, that they're ground into each separate cell of our bodies. We're shaped by such forces. You can say to yourself, yes, I see how such a thing may be. But when you look inward and confront the raw force of your own life unshielded, you see your peril. You see that this could overwhelm you. The greatest peril to the giver is the force that takes. The greatest peril to the taker is the force that gives. It's as easy to be overwhelmed by giving 
as by taking. And you, my son? Jessica asked. Are you one who gives, or one who takes? I'm at the fulcrum, he said. I cannot give without taking, and I cannot take without... He broke off, looking to the wall at his right. Cheney felt a draught against her cheek, turned to see the hangings close. It was Othheim, Paul said. He was listening. Accepting the words, Cheney was touched by some of the prescience that haunted Paul, and she knew a thing yet to be as though it already had occurred. Othheim would speak of what he had seen and heard. Others would spread the story until it was a fire over the land. Paul Muad'Dib is not as other men, they would say. There can be no more doubt. He is a man, yet he sees through to the water of life in the way of a reverend mother. He is indeed the Lisan al-Gaib. You have seen the future, Paul, Jessica said. Will you say what you've seen? Not the future, he said. I've seen the now. He forced himself to a sitting position, waved Cheney aside as she moved to help him. The space above Arrakis is filled with the ships of the Guild. Jessica trembled at the certainty in his voice. The Padishah Emperor himself is there, Paul said. He looked at the rock ceiling of his cell, with his favourite truth-sayer and five legions of Sarduka. The old Baron Vladimir Harkonnen is there, with Thulfir Howat beside him, and seven ships jammed with every conscript he could muster. Every great house has its raiders above us, waiting. Cheney shook her head, unable to look away from Paul. His strangeness, the flat tone of voice, the way he looked through her, filled her with awe. Jessica tried to swallow in a dry throat, said, For what are they waiting? Paul looked at her. For the Guild's permission to land. The Guild will strand on Arrakis any force that lands without permission. The Guild's protecting us? Jessica asked. Protecting us? The Guild itself caused this by spreading tales about what we do here and by reducing troop transport fares to a point where even the poorest houses are up there now waiting to loot us. Jessica noted the lack of bitterness in his tone, wondered at it. She couldn't doubt his words. They had that same intensity she'd seen in him the night he'd revealed the path of the future that had taken them among the Fremen. Paul took a deep breath, said, Mother, you must change a quantity of the water for us. We need the catalyst. Cheney, have a scout force sent out to find a pre-spice mass. If we plant a quantity of the water of life above a pre-spice mass, do you know what will happen? Jessica weighed his words, suddenly saw through his meaning. Paul, she gasped. The water of death, he said. It'll be a chain reaction. He pointed to the floor, spreading death among the little makers, killing a vector of the life cycle that includes the spice and the makers. Arrakis will become a true desolation without spice or maker. Cheney put a hand to her mouth, shocked to numb silence by the blasphemy pouring from Paul's lips. He who can destroy a thing has the real control of it, Paul said. We can destroy the spice. What stays the guild's hand? Jessica whispered. They are searching for me, Paul said. Think of that. The finest guild navigators, men who can quest ahead through time to find the safest course for the fastest highliners, all of them seeking me, 
and unable to find me. How they tremble. They know I have their secret here. Paul held out his cupped hand. Without the spice, they're blind. Cheney found her voice. You said you see them now. Paul lay back, searching the spread out present, its limits extended into the future and into the past, holding onto the awareness with difficulty as the spice illumination began to fade. Go do as I commanded, he said. The future's becoming as muddled for the guild as it is for me. The lines of vision are narrowing. Everything focuses here where the spice is, where they've dared not interfere before, because to interfere was to lose what they must have. But now they're desperate. All paths lead into darkness. And that day dawned when Arrakis lay at the hub of the universe with the wheel poised to spin. From Arrakis Awakening by the Princess Irulan. Will you look at that thing? Stilgar whispered. Paul lay beside him in a slit of rock high on the shield wall rim, eye fixed to the collector of a Fremen telescope. The oil lens was focused on a starship lighter exposed by dawn in the basin below them. The tall eastern face of the ship glistened in the flat light of the sun, but the shadow side still showed yellow portholes from glow globes of the night. Beyond the ship, the city of Arakeen lay cold and gleaming in the light of the northern sun. It wasn't the lighter that excited Stilgar's awe, Paul knew, but the construction for which the lighter was only the center post. A single metal hutment, many stories tall, reached out in a thousand-meter circle from the base of the lighter. A tent composed of interlocking metal leaves, the temporary lodging place for five legions of Sardaukar and his imperial majesty, the Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV. From his position squatting at Paul's left, Gurney Halleck said, I count nine levels to it. Must be quite a few Sardaukar in there. Five legions, Paul said. It grows light, Stilgar hissed. We like it not, you're exposing yourself, Muad'Dib. Let us go back into the rocks now. I'm perfectly safe here, Paul said. That ship mounts projectile weapons, Gurney said. They believe us protected by shields, Paul said. They wouldn't waste a shot on an unidentified trio even if they saw us. Paul swung the telescope to scan the far wall of the basin, seeing the pock-marked cliffs, the slides that marked the tombs of so many of his father's troopers. And he had a momentary sense of the fitness of things that the shades of those men should look down on this moment. The Harkonnen forts and towns across the shielded lands lay in Fremen hands, or cut away from their source like stalks severed from a plant and left to wither. Only this basin and its city remained to the enemy. They might try a sortie by Thopter, Stilgar said, if they see us. Let them, Paul said. We've Thopters to burn today, and we know a storm is coming. He swung the telescope to the far side of the Arakeen landing field now, to the Harkonnen frigates lined up there with a Chome Company banner waving gently from its staff on the ground beneath them. And he thought of the desperation that had forced the guild to permit these two groups to land while all the others were held in reserve. The guild was like a man testing the sand with his toe to gauge its temperature before erecting a tent. 
Is there anything new to see from here? Gurney asked. We should be getting under cover. The storm is coming. Paul returned his attention on the giant hutment. They've even brought their women, he said, and lackeys, and servants. Ah, my dear emperor, how confident you are. Men are coming up this secret way, Stilgar said. It may be Othheim and Korpa returning. All right, Still, Paul said. We'll go back. But he took one final look around through the telescope, studying the plain with its tall ships, the gleaming metal hutment, the silent city, the frigates of the Harkonnen mercenaries. Then he slid backward around a scarp of rock. His place at the telescope was taken by a Fadaikin guardsman. Paul emerged into a shallow depression in the shield wall's surface. It was a place about thirty meters in diameter and some three meters deep, a natural feature of the rock that the Fremen had hidden beneath a translucent camouflage cover. Communications equipment was clustered around a hole in the wall to the right. Fadaikin guards deployed through the depression waited for Muad'Dib's command to attack. Two men emerged from the hole by the communications equipment, spoke to the guards there. Paul glanced at Stilgar and nodded in the direction of the two men. Get their reports, Still. Stilgar moved to obey. Paul crouched with his back to the rock, stretching his muscles. Straightened. He saw Stilgar sending the two men back into that dark hole in the rock, thought about the long climb down that narrow man-made tunnel to the floor of the basin. Stilgar crossed to Paul. What was so important that they couldn't send a Cielago with the message? Paul asked. They're saving their birds for the battle, Stilgar said. He glanced at the communications equipment, back to Paul. Even with a tight beam, it is wrong to use those things, Muad'Dib. They can find you by taking a bearing on its emission. They'll soon be too busy to find me, Paul said. What did the man report? Our pet Saduka have been released near Old Gap, low on the rim, and are on their way to their master. The rocket launchers and other projectile weapons are in place. The people are deployed as you ordered. It was all routine. Paul glanced across the shallow bowl, studying his men in the filtered light admitted by the camouflage cover. He felt time creeping like an insect working its way across an exposed rock. It'll take our Sardica a little time afoot before they can signal a troop carrier, Paul said. They are being watched? They are being watched, Stilgar said. Beside Paul, Gurney Halleck cleared his throat. Hadn't we best be getting to a place of safety? There is no such place, Paul said. Is the weather report still favourable? A great-grandmother of a storm coming, Stilgar said. Can you not feel it, Wadib? The air does feel chancy, Paul agreed, but I like the certainty of polling the weather. The storm will be here in the hour, Stilgar said. He nodded toward the gap that looked out on the Emperor's hutment and on the Harkonnen frigates. They know it there, too. Not a thopter in the sky. Everything pulled in and tied down. They've had a report on the weather from their friends in space. Any more probing sorties? Paul asked. Nothing since the landing last night, Stilgar said. They know we're here. I think now they wait to choose their own time. We choose the time, Paul said. Gurney glanced upward, growled, if they led us. That fleet'll stay in space, Paul said. Gurney shook his head. They have no choice, Paul said. We can destroy the spice. The guild dares not risk that. Desperate people are the most dangerous, Gurney said. 
Are we not desperate? Stilgar asked. Gurney scowled at him. You haven't lived with a Fremen dream, Paul cautioned. Still is thinking of all the water we've spent on bribes, the years of waiting we've added before Arrakis can bloom. He's not— Ah! Gurney scowled. Why is he so gloomy? Stilgar asked. He's always gloomy before a battle, Paul said. It's the only form of good humour Gurney allows himself. A slow, wolfish grin spread across Gurney's face, the teeth showing white above the chip cut of his still suit. It glooms me much to think on all the poor Harkonnen souls we'll dispatch unshriven, he said. Stilgar chuckled. He talks like a Vodikin. Gurney was born a death commando, Paul said. And he thought, yes, let them occupy their minds with small talk before we test ourselves against that force on the plain. He looked to the gap in the rock wall and back to Gurney, found that the troubadour warrior had resumed a brooding scowl. Worry saps the strength, Paul murmured. You told me that once, Gurney. My duke, Gurney said, my chief worry is the atomics. If you use them to blast a hole in the shield wall, those people up there won't use atomics against us, Paul said. They don't dare, for the same reason that they cannot risk our destroying the source of the spice. But the injunction against the injunction, Paul barked. It's fear, not the injunction that keeps the houses from hurling atomics against each other. The language of the Great Convention is clear enough. Use of atomics against humans shall be cause for planetary obliteration. We are going to blast the shield wall, not humans. It's too fine a point, Gurney said. The hair splitters up there will welcome any point, Paul said. Let's talk no more about it. He turned away, wishing he actually felt that confident. Presently he said, What about the city, people? Are they in position yet? Yes, Stilgar muttered. Paul looked at him. What's eating you? I never knew the city man could be trusted completely, Stilgar said. I was a city man myself once, Paul said. Stilgar stiffened. His face grew dark with blood. Wadib knows I did not mean. I know what you meant still. But the test of a man isn't what you think he'll do, it's what he actually does. These city people have Fremen blood. It's just that they haven't yet learned how to escape their bondage. We'll teach them. Stilgar nodded, spoke in a rueful tone. The habits of a lifetime, Wadib. On the funeral plain we learn to despise the men of the communities. Paul glanced at Gurney, saw him studying Stilgar. Tell us, Gurney, why were the city folk down there driven from their homes by the Sarduka? An old trick, my duke. They thought to burden us with refugees. It's been so long since guerrillas were effective that the mighty have forgotten how to fight them, Paul said. The Sarduka have played into our hands. They grabbed some city women for their sport, decorated their battle standards with the heads of the men who objected, and they've built up a fever of hate among people who otherwise would have looked on the coming battle as no more than a great inconvenience, and the possibility of exchanging one set of masters for another. The Sarduka recruit for us, Stilgar. The city people do seem eager, Stilgar said. Their hate is fresh and clear. Paul said. That's why we use them as shock troops. The slaughter among them will be fearful, Gurney said. Stilgar nodded agreement. They were told the odds, Paul said. 
They know every Sardaka they kill will be one less for us. You see, gentlemen, they have something to die for. They discovered they're a people. They're awakening. A muttered exclamation came from the watcher at the telescope. Paul moved to the rock slit, asked, What is it out there? A great commotion, Wadib, the watcher hissed. At that monstrous metal tent, a surface car came from Rimwall West, and it was like a hawk into a nest of rock partridge. Our captive Sardaka have arrived, Paul said. They've a shield around the entire landing field now, the watcher said. I can see the air dancing even to the edge of the storage yard where they kept the spice. Now they know who it is they fight, Gurney said. Let the Harkonnen beasts tremble and fret themselves that an Atreides yet lives. Paul spoke to the Fadaikin at the telescope. Watch the flagpole atop the Emperor's ship. If my flag is raised there, it will not be, Gurney said. Paul saw the puzzled frown on Stilgar's face, said, If the Emperor recognized my claim, he'll signal by restoring the Atreides' flag to Arrakis. We'll use the second plan, then, move only against the Harkonnens. The Sardica will stand aside and let us settle the issue between ourselves. I've no experience with these off-world things, Stilgar said. I've heard of them, but it seems unlikely the— You don't need experience to know what they'll do, Gurney said. They're sending a new flag up on the tall ship, the Watcher said. The flag is yellow, with a black and red circle in the centre. There's a subtle piece of business, Paul said. The Chome Company flag. It's the same as the flag at the other ships, the Fadaikin guard said. I don't understand, Stilgar said. A subtle piece of business indeed, Gurney said. Had he sent up the Atreides banner, he'd have had to live by what that meant. Too many observers about. He could have signalled with the Harkonnen flag on his staff, a flat declaration that'd have been. But no. He sends up the chome rag. He's telling the people up there, Gurney pointed towards space, where the prophet is. He's saying he doesn't care if it's an Atreides here or not. How long till the storm strikes the shield wall? Paul asked. Stilgar turned away, consulted one of the Fadaikin in the bowl. Presently he returned, said, Very soon, Wadib, sooner than we expected. It's a great, great grandmother of a storm. Perhaps even more than you wished. It's my storm, Paul said, and saw the silent awe on the faces of the Fadaikin who heard him. Though it shook the entire world, it could not be more than I wished. Will it strike the shield wall full on? Close enough to make no difference, Stilgar said. A courier crossed from the hole that led down into the basin, said, The Sarduka and Harkonnen patrols are pulling back, Muad'Dib. They expect the storm to spill too much sand into the basin for good visibility, Stilgar said. They think we'll be in the same fix. Tell our gunners to set their sights well before visibility drops, Paul said. They must knock the nose off every one of those ships as soon as the storm has destroyed the shields. He stepped to the wall of the bowl, pulled back a fold of the camouflage cover and looked up at the sky. The horsetail twistings of blow sand could be seen against the dark of the sky. Paul restored the cover, said, Start sending our men down still. Will you not go with us? Stilgar asked. I'll wait here a bit with the Fadaikin, Paul said. Stilgar gave a knowing shrug toward Gurney, moved to the hole in the rock wall, was lost in its shadows. 
The trigger that blasts the shield wall aside, that I leave in your hands, Gurney, Paul said. You will do it? I'll do it. Paul gestured to a Fadaikin lieutenant, said, Othheim, start moving the Czech patrols out of the blast area. They must be out of there before the storm strikes. The man bowed, followed Stilgar. Gurney leaned into the rock slit, spoke to the man at the telescope. Keep your attention on the south wall. It'll be completely undefended until we blow it. Dispatch a Cielago with a time signal, Paul ordered. Some ground cars are moving toward the south wall, the man at the telescope said. Some are using projectile weapons. Testing. Our people are using body shields as you commanded. The ground cars have stopped. In the abrupt silence, Paul heard the wind devils playing overhead, the front of the storm. Sand began to drift down into their bowl through gaps in the cover. A burst of wind caught the cover, whipped it away. Paul motioned his Fadaikin to take shelter, crossed to the men at the communications equipment near the tunnel mouth. Gurney stayed beside him. Paul crouched over the signalmen. One said, A great, great, great grandmother of a storm, Mwadib. Paul glanced up at the darkening sky, said, Gurney, have the south wall observers pulled out. He had to repeat his order, shouting above the growing noise of the storm. Gurney turned to obey. Paul fastened his face filter, tightened the still-suit hood. Gurney returned. Paul touched his shoulder, pointed to the blast trigger set into the tunnel mouth beyond the signalmen. Gurney went into the tunnel, stopped there, one hand at the trigger, his gaze on Paul. We are getting no messages, the signalman beside Paul said. Much static. Paul nodded, kept his eye on the time-standard dial in front of the signalman. Presently, Paul looked at Gurney, raised a hand, returned his attention to the dial. The time counter crawled around its final circuit. Now! Paul shouted and dropped his hand. Gurney depressed the blast trigger. It seemed that a full second passed before they felt the ground beneath them ripple and shake. A rumbling sound was added to the storm's roar. The Fadaikin watcher from the telescope appeared beside Paul. The telescope clutched under one arm. The shield wall is breached, Muad'Dib! he shouted. This storm is on them, and our gunners already are firing. Paul thought of the storm sweeping across the basin, the static charge within the wall of sand that destroyed every shield barrier in the enemy camp. This storm, someone shouted. We must get under cover, Muad'Dib. Paul came to his senses, feeling the sand needles sting his exposed cheeks. We are committed, he thought. He put an arm around the signalman's shoulder, said, Leave the equipment! There's more in the tunnel! He felt himself being pulled away, for Daikin pressed around him to protect him. They squeezed into the tunnel mouth, feeling its comparative silence, turned a corner into a small chamber with glow globes overhead and another tunnel opening beyond. Another signalman sat there at his equipment. Much static, the man said. A swirl of sand filled the air around them. Seal off this tunnel, Paul shouted. A sudden pressure of stillness showed that his command had been obeyed. Is the way down to the basin still open? Paul asked. A Fadaikin went to look, returned, said, The explosion caused a little rock to fall, but the engineers say it is still open. They're cleaning up with laser beams. Tell them to use their hands, Paul barked. There are shields active down there. They are being careful, Muad'Dib, the man said. But he turned to obey. The signalmen from outside pressed past them, carrying their equipment. 
I told those men to leave their equipment, Paul said. Fremen do not like to abandon equipment, Muad'Dib, one of his Vodaikin chided. Men are more important than equipment now, Paul said. We'll have more equipment than we can use soon, or have no need for any equipment. Gurney Halleck came up beside him, said, I heard them say the way down is open. We're very close to the surface here, my lord. Should the Harkonnens try to retaliate in kind? They're in no position to retaliate, Paul said. They're just now finding out that they have no shields, and are unable to get off Arrakis. The new command post is all prepared, though, my lord, Gurney said. They've no need of me in the command post yet, Paul said. The plan would go ahead without me. We must wait for the... I'm getting a message, Muad'Dib, said the signalman at the communications equipment. The man shook his head, pressed the receiver phone against his ear. Much static. He began scribbling on a pad in front of him, shaking his head, writing, waiting. Paul crossed to the signalman's side. The Fadaikin stepped back, giving him room. He looked down at what the man had written, read, Raid on Siech Tabor, Captives, Aliyah, Families of Dead are They, Son of Muad'Dib. Again the signalman shook his head. Paul looked up to see Gurney staring at him. The message is garbled, Gurney said. The static, you don't know that my son is dead, Paul said, and knew as he spoke that it was true. My son is dead, and Aliyah is a captive, hostage. He felt emptied, a shell without emotions. Everything he touched brought death and grief, and it was like a disease that could spread across the universe. He could feel the old man wisdom, the accumulation out of the experiences from countless possible lives. Something seemed to chuckle and rub its hands within him. And Paul thought, how little the universe knows about the nature of real cruelty. And Muad'Dib stood before them, and he said, Though we deem the captive dead, yet does she live. For her seed is my seed, and her voice is my voice. And she sees unto the farthest reaches of possibility. Yea, unto the veil of the unknowable does she see because of me. From Arrakis Awakening by the Princess Irulan. The Baron Vladimir Harkonnen stood with eyes downcast in the Imperial Audience Chamber, the oval Selamlik within the Padisha Emperor's hutment. With covert glances, the Baron had studied the metal walled room and its occupants, the Nogurs, the pages, the guards, the troop of House Sauduka drawn up around the walls, standing at ease there beneath the bloody and tattered captured battle flags that were the room's only decoration. Voices sounded from the right of the chamber, echoing out of a high passage. Make way! Make way for the royal person! The Padisha Emperor Shaddam IV came out of the passage into the audience chamber, followed by his suite. He stood waiting while his throne was brought, ignoring the baron, seemingly ignoring every person in the room. The baron found that he could not ignore the royal person, and studied the emperor for a sign, any clue to the purpose of this audience. The emperor stood poised, waiting, a slim, elegant figure in a grey Sardauka uniform with silver and gold trim. His thin face and cold eyes reminded the baron of the Duke Leto, long dead. There was that same look of the predatory bird. 
but the emperor's hair was red, not black, and most of that hair was concealed by Berseg's ebon helmet with the imperial crest in gold upon its crown. Pages brought the throne. It was a massive chair carved from a single piece of Hegel quartz, blue-green translucency shot through with streaks of yellow fire. They placed it on the dais, and the emperor mounted, seated himself. An old woman in a black abba robe, with hood drawn down over her forehead, detached herself from the emperor's suite, took up station behind the throne, one scrawny hand resting on the quartz back. Her face peered out of the hood like a witch caricature, sunken cheeks and eyes, an overlong nose, skin mottled and with protruding veins. The baron stilled his trembling at sight of her. The presence of the Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Mohayam, the Emperor's truth-sayer, betrayed the importance of this audience. The baron looked away from her, studied the suite for a clue. There were two of the guild agents, one tall and fat, one short and fat, both with bland grey eyes. And among the lackeys stood one of the Emperor's daughters, the Princess Yurulan, a woman, they said, was being trained in the deepest of the Bene Gesserit ways, destined to be a reverend mother. She was tall, blonde, face of chiseled beauty, green eyes that looked past and through him. My dear Baron, the Emperor had deigned to notice him. The voice was baritone and with exquisite control. It managed to dismiss him while greeting him. The baron bowed low, advanced to the required position ten paces from the dais. I came at your summons, majesty. Summons? the old witch cackled. Now, reverend mother, the emperor chided, but he smiled at the baron's discomfiture, said, First, you will tell me where you've sent your minion, Thufir Howard. The baron darted his gaze left and right, reviled himself for coming here without his own guards, not that they'd be much use against Sardegar, still. "'Well,' the emperor said, "'he has been gone these five days, majesty.' The baron shot a glance at the guild agents, back to the emperor. "'He was to land at a smuggler base, and attempt infiltrating the camp of the Fremen fanatic, this Muad'Dib.' "'Incredible,' the emperor said." One of the witch's claw-like hands tapped the emperor's shoulder. She leaned forward, whispered in his ear. The emperor nodded, said, Five days, baron. Tell me, why aren't you worried about his absence? But I am worried, majesty. The emperor continued to stare at him, waiting. The reverend mother emitted a cackling laugh. What I mean, majesty, the baron said, is that Howard will be dead within another few hours anyway. And he explained about the latent poison and need for an antidote. How clever of you, Baron, the Emperor said. And where are your nephews, Raban, and the young Fade Rautha? The storm comes, Majesty. I sent them to inspect our perimeter, lest the Fremen attack under cover of the sand. Perimeter the emperor said. The word came out as though it puckered his mouth. The storm won't be much here in the basin, and that Fremen rabble won't attack while I'm here with five legions of Sardaukar. Surely not, majesty, the baron said, but error on the side of caution cannot be censured. Ah, the emperor said, 
censure, that I'm not to speak of how much time this Arrakis nonsense has taken from me, nor the Chome Company profits pouring down this rat hole, nor the court functions and affairs of state I've had to delay, even cancel because of this stupid affair. The Baron lowered his gaze, frightened by the imperial anger. The delicacy of his position here, alone and dependent upon the convention and the dictum familia of the great houses, fretted him. Does he mean to kill me? The Baron asked himself. He couldn't. Not with the other great houses waiting up there, aching for any excuse to gain from this upset on Arrakis. Have you taken hostages? The Emperor asked. It's useless, Majesty. The baron said, these mad Fremen hold a burial ceremony for every captive and act as though such a one were already dead. So, the emperor said. And the baron waited, glancing left and right at the metal walls of the Salamlik, thinking of the monstrous fan-metal tent around him. Such unlimited wealth it represented that even the baron was awed. He brings pages, the baron thought, and useless court lackeys. His women and their companions, hairdressers, designers, everything, all the fringe parasites of the court, all here, fawning, slyly plotting, roughing it with the emperor, here to watch him put an end to this affair, to make epigrams over the battles and idolize the wounded. Perhaps you've never sought the right kind of hostages, the emperor said. He knows something, the baron thought. Fear sat like a stone in his stomach until he could hardly bear the thought of eating. Yet the feeling was like hunger, and he poised himself several times in his suspenses on the point of ordering food brought to him. But there was no one here to obey his summons. Do you have any idea who this Muad'Dib could be? the Emperor asked. One of the Uma, surely, the Baron said. A Fremen fanatic, a religious adventurer. They crop up regularly on the fringes of civilization. Your Majesty knows this. The Emperor glanced at his truth-sayer, turned back to scowl at the Baron. And you have no other knowledge of this Muad'Dib? A madman, the Baron said. But all Fremen are a little mad. Mad? His people scream his name as they leap into battle. The women throw their babies at us and hurl themselves onto our knives to open a wedge for their men to attack us. They have no... no... decency. As bad as that, the Emperor murmured, and his tone of derision did not escape the Baron. Tell me, my dear Baron, have you investigated the southern polar regions of Arrakis? The Baron stared up at the Emperor, shocked by the change of subject. But, well, you know, your majesty, the entire region is uninhabitable, open to wind and worm. There's not even any spice in those latitudes. You had no reports from spice lighters that patches of greenery appear there? There have always been such reports. Some were investigated long ago. A few plants were seen. Many thopters were lost. Much too costly, your majesty. It's a place where men cannot survive for long. So, the emperor said, he snapped his fingers, and a door opened at his left behind the throne. Through the door came two Sardaka, herding a girl child who appeared to be about four years old. She wore a black abba, 
the hood thrown back to reveal the attachments of a still suit hanging free at her throat. Her eyes were Fremen blue, staring out of a soft, round face. She appeared completely unafraid, and there was a look to her stare that made the Baron feel uneasy for no reason he could explain. Even the old Bene Gesserit truthsayer drew back as the child passed and made a warding sign in her direction. The old witch obviously was shaken by the child's presence. The emperor cleared his throat to speak, but the child spoke first. A thin voice with traces of a soft palate lisp, but clear nonetheless. So, here he is, she said. She advanced to the edge of the dais. He doesn't appear much, does he? One frightened old fat man, too weak to support his own flesh, without the help of suspensus. It was such a totally unexpected statement from the mouth of a child that the baron stared at her, speechless in spite of his anger. Is it a midget? he asked himself. My dear baron, the emperor said, become acquainted with the sister of Muad'Dib. The sister? The baron shifted his attention to the emperor. I do not understand. I, too, sometimes err on the side of caution, the emperor said. It has been reported to me that your uninhabited south polar regions exhibit evidence of human activity. But that's impossible, the baron protested. The worms! There's sand clear to the— These people seem able to avoid the worms, the emperor said. The child sat down on the dais beside the throne, dangled her feet over the edge, kicking them. There was such an air of sureness in the way she appraised her surroundings. The baron stared at the kicking feet, the way they moved the black robe, the wink of sandals beneath the fabric. Unfortunately, the emperor said, I only sent in five troop carriers with a light attack force to pick up prisoners for questioning. We barely got away with three prisoners and one carrier. Mind you, Baron, my Sardauka were almost overwhelmed by a force composed mostly of women, children, and old men. This child here was in command of one of the attacking groups. You see, Your Majesty, the Baron said, you see how they are. I allowed myself to be captured, the child said. I did not want to face my brother and have to tell him that his son had been killed. Only a handful of our men got away, the Emperor said. Got away, you hear that? We'd have had them too, the child said, except for the flames. My Sadoka used the attitudinal jets on their carrier as flamethrowers, the Emperor said. A move of desperation and the only thing that got them away with their three prisoners. Mark that. My dear Baron, Sardica forced to retreat in confusion from women and children and old men. We must attack in force, the Baron rasped. We must destroy every last vestige of silence, the Emperor roared. He pushed himself forward on his throne. Do not abuse my intelligence any longer. You stand there in your foolish innocence and... Majesty, the old truthsayer said. He waved her to silence. You say you don't know about the activity we found, nor the fighting qualities of these superb people. The emperor lifted himself half off his throne. What do you take me for, baron? 
The Baron took two backward steps, thinking, It was Raban. He has done this to me. Raban has... And this fake dispute with Duke Leto. The Emperor purred, sitting back into his throne. How beautifully you maneuvered it. Majesty, the Baron pleaded. What are you... Silence! The old Bene Gesserit put a hand on the Emperor's shoulder, leaned close to whisper in his ear. The child, seated on the dais, stopped kicking her feet, said, Make him afraid some more, Shaddam. I shouldn't enjoy this, but I find the pleasure impossible to suppress. Quiet, child, the Emperor said. He leaned forward, put a hand on her head, stared at the Baron. Is it possible, Baron? Could you be as simple-minded as my truth-sayer suggests? Do you not recognize this child, daughter of your ally, Duke Leto? My father was never his ally, the child said. My father is dead, and this old Harkonnen beast has never seen me before. The Baron was reduced to stupefied glaring. When he found his voice, it was only to rasp. Who? I am Alia. Daughter of Duke Leto and the Lady Jessica, sister of Duke Paul Muad'Dib, the child said. She pushed herself off the dais, dropped to the floor of the audience chamber. My brother has promised to have your head atop his battle standard, and I think he shall. Be hush, child, the emperor said, and he sank back into his throne, hand to chin, studying the baron. I do not take the emperor's orders, Alia said. She turned, looked up at the old reverend mother. She knows. The emperor glanced up at his truth-sayer. What does she mean? That child is an abomination, the old woman said. Her mother deserves a punishment greater than anything in history. Death, it cannot come too quickly for that child or for the one who spawned her. The old woman pointed a finger at Alia. Get out of my mind. T.P., the emperor whispered. He snapped his attention back to Alia. By the great mother! You don't understand, Majesty, the old woman said. Not telepathy. She's in my mind. She's like the ones before me, the ones who gave me their memories. She stands in my mind. She cannot be there, but she is. What others? the emperor demanded. What's this nonsense? The old woman straightened, lowered her pointing hand. I've said too much, but the fact remains that this child who is not a child must be destroyed. Long were we warned against such a one and how to prevent such a birth. But one of our own has betrayed us. You babble, old woman, Aaliyah said. You don't know how it was, yet you rattle on like a purblind fool. Aaliyah closed her eyes, took a deep breath, and held it. The old reverend mother groaned and staggered. Alia opened her eyes. That is how it was, she said. A cosmic accident, and you played your part in it. The reverend mother held out both hands, palms pushing the air toward Alia. What is happening here? the emperor demanded. Child, can you truly project your thoughts into the mind of another? That's not how it is at all. Alia said, unless I'm born as you, I cannot think as you. Kill her, the old woman muttered, and clutched the back of the throne for support. Kill her, 
The sunken old eyes glared at Alia. Silence, the emperor said, and he studied Alia. Child, can you communicate with your brother? My brother knows I'm here, Alia said. Can you tell him to surrender as the price of your life? Alia smiled up at him with clear innocence. I shall not do that, she said. The baron stumbled forward to stand beside Alia. Majesty, he pleaded, I knew nothing of- Interrupt me once more, baron, the emperor said, and you will lose the powers of interruption forever. He kept his attention focused on Alia, studying her through slitted lids. You will not, eh? Can you read in my mind what I'll do if you disobey me? I've already said I cannot read minds, she said, but one doesn't need telepathy to read your intentions. The emperor scowled. Child, your cause is hopeless. I have but to rally my forces and reduce this planet to... It's not that simple, Aaliyah said. She looked at the two guildsmen. Ask them. It is not wise to go against my desires, the emperor said. You should not deny me the least thing. My brother comes now, Aaliyah said. Even an emperor may tremble before Muad'Dib, for he has the strength of righteousness and heaven smiles upon him. The emperor surged to his feet. This play has gone far enough. I will take your brother and this planet and grind them to... The room rumbled and shook around them. There came a sudden cascade of sand behind the throne where the hutment was coupled to the emperor's ship. The abrupt flicker, tightening of skin pressure told of a wide-area shield being activated. I told you, Alia said, my brother comes. The emperor stood in front of his throne, right hand pressed to right ear, the servo receiver there chattering its report on the situation. The baron moved two steps behind Alia. Sardaka were leaping to positions at the doors. We will fall back into space and reform, the emperor said. Baron, my apologies. These madmen are attacking under cover of the storm. We will show them an emperor's wrath then. He pointed at Alia. Give her body to the storm. As he spoke, Alia fled backward, feigning terror. Let the storm have what it can take, she screamed, and she backed into the baron's arms. I have her majesty, the baron shouted. Shall I dispatch her now? He hurled her to the floor, clutched his left arm. I'm sorry, grandfather, Alia said. You've met the Atreides Gomjabar. She got to her feet, dropped a dark needle from her hand. The baron fell back. His eyes bulged as he stared at a red slash on his left palm. You, you, he rolled sideways in his suspensers. A sagging mass of flesh supported inches off the floor, with head lolling and mouth hanging open. These people are insane, the emperor snarled. Quick, into the ship. We'll purge this planet of every... Something sparkled to his left. A roll of ball lightning bounced away from the wall there, crackled as it touched the metal floor. The smell of burned insulation swept through the Selamlik. The shield, one of the Sarduka officers shouted. The outer shield is down. They... His words were drowned in a metallic roaring as the ship wall behind the emperor trembled and rocked. They've shot the nose off our ship, someone called. 
Dust boiled through the room. Under its cover, Alia leaped up, ran toward the outer door. The Emperor whirled, motioned his people into an emergency door that swung open in the ship's side behind the throne. He flashed a hand signal to a Sardica officer leaping through the dust haze. We will make our stand here, the Emperor ordered. Another crash shook the hutment. The double doors banged open at the far side of the chamber, admitting wind-blown sand and the sound of shouting. A small, black-robed figure could be seen momentarily against the light, Alia darting out to find a knife and, as befitted her Fremen training, to kill Harkonnen and Sardaukar wounded. House Sardaukar charged through a greened-yellow haze toward the opening, weapons ready, forming an arc there to protect the Emperor's retreat. Save yourself, sir! the Sardaukar officer shouted. Into the ship! But the Emperor stood alone now on his dais, pointing toward the doors. A forty-metre section of the hutment had been blasted away there, and the Selimleek's doors opened now onto drifting sand. A dust cloud hung low over the outside world, blowing from pastel distances. Static lightning crackled from the cloud, and the spark flashes of shields being shorted out by the storm's charge could be seen through the haze. The plane surged with figures in combat, Sardaukar and leaping, gyrating, robed men who seemed to come down out of the storm. All this was as a frame for the target of the Emperor's pointing hand. Out of the sand haze came an orderly mass of flashing shapes, great rising curves with crystal spokes that resolved into the gaping mouths of sandworms, a massed wall of them, each with troops of Fremen riding to the attack. They came in a hissing wedge, robes whipping in the wind as they cut through the melee on the plain. Onward, toward the Emperor's hutment, they came, while the house Sardaukar stood awed, for the first time in their history, by an onslaught their minds found difficult to accept. But the figures leaping from the worm backs were men, and the blades flashing in that ominous yellow light were a thing the Sardaukar had been trained to face, they threw themselves into combat, and it was man to man on the plain of Arakin while a picked Sardaukar bodyguard pressed the Emperor back into the ship, sealed the door on him, and prepared to die at the door as part of his shield. In the shock of comparative silence within the ship, the Emperor stared at the wide-eyed faces of his suite, seeing his oldest daughter with a flush of exertion on her cheeks, the old truthsayer standing like a black shadow with her hood pulled about her face, finding at last the faces he sought, the two guildsmen. They wore the guild grey, unadorned, and it seemed to fit the calm they maintained despite the high emotions around them. The taller of the two, though, held a hand to his left eye. As the emperor watched, someone jostled the guildsman's arm, the hand moved, and the eye was revealed. The man had lost one of his masking contact lenses, and the eye stared out a total blue, so dark as to be almost black. The smaller of the pair elbowed his way a step nearer the Emperor, said, We cannot know how it will go. And the taller companion, hand restored to eye, added in a cold voice, But this Muad'Dib cannot know either. The words shocked the Emperor out of his days. He checked the scorn on his tongue by a visible effort, because it did not take a guild navigator's single-minded focus on the main chance to see the immediate future out on that plane. Were these two so dependent upon their faculty that they had lost the use of their eyes 
and their reason, he wondered. Reverend Mother, he said, we must devise a plan. She pulled the hood from her face, met his gaze with an unblinking stare. The look that passed between them carried complete understanding. They had one weapon left, and both knew it. Treachery. Summon Count Fenring from his quarters, the Reverend Mother said. The Padishah Emperor nodded, waved for one of his aides to obey that command. He was warrior and mystic, ogre and saint, the fox and the innocent, chivalrous, ruthless, less than a god, more than a man. There is no measuring Muad'Dib's motives by ordinary standards. In the moment of his triumph, he saw the death prepared for him, yet he accepted the treachery. Can you say he did this out of a sense of justice? Whose justice, then? Remember, we speak now of the Muad'Dib, who ordered battle drums made from his enemies' skins. The Muad'Dib who denied the conventions of his ducal past with a wave of the hand, saying merely, I am the Kwisatz Haderach. That is reason enough. From Arrakis Awakening by the Princess Irulan. It was to the Arakeen governor's mansion, the old residency the Atreides had first occupied on Dune, that they had escorted Paul Muad'Dib on the evening of his victory. The building stood as Raban had restored it, virtually untouched by the fighting, although there had been looting by townspeople. Some of the furnishings in the main hall had been overturned or smashed. Paul strode through the main entrance with Gurney Halleck and Stilgar a pace behind, their escort fanned out into the great hall, straightening the place and clearing an area for Muad'Dib. One squad began investigating that no sly trap had been planted here. I remember the day we first came here with your father. Gurney glanced around at the beams and the high, slitted windows. I didn't like this place then, and I like it less now. One of our caves would be safer. Spoken like a true Fremen. Will you reconsider, Muad'Dib? This place is a symbol. Raban lived here. By occupying this place, I seal my victory for all to understand. Send men through the building. Touch nothing. Just be certain no Harkonnen people or toys remain. As you command. Reluctance was heavy in his tone as Stilgar turned to obey. Communications men hurried into the room with their equipment, began setting up near the massive fireplace. The Fremen guard that augmented the surviving for Daikin took up stations around the room. There was muttering among them, much darting of suspicious glances. This had been too long a place of the enemy for them to accept their presence in it casually. Gurney, have an escort bring my mother and Cheney. Does Cheney know yet about our son? The message was sent, my lord. Are the makers being taken out of the basin yet? Yes, my lord. The storm's almost spent. What's the extent of the storm damage? In the direct path, on the landing field and across the spice storage yards of the plane, extensive damage, as much from battle as from the storm. Nothing money won't repair, I presume? 
except for the lives, my lord. There was a tone of reproach in his voice, as though to say, when did an Atreides worry first about things when people were at stake? But Paul could only focus his attention on the inner eye and the gaps visible to him in the time wall that still lay across his path. Through each gap the jihad raged away down the corridors of the future. His side crossed the hall, seeing a chair against the wall. The chair had once stood in the dining hall, and might even have held his own father. At the moment, though, it was only an object to rest his weariness and conceal it from the men. He sat down, pulling his robes around his legs, loosening his still-suit at the neck. The Emperor is still holed up in the remains of his ship. For now, contain him there. Have they found the Harkonnens yet? They're still examining the dead. What reply from the ships up there? Paul jerked his chin toward the ceiling. No reply yet, my lord. Paul sighed, resting against the back of his chair. Bring me a captive Sardaukar. We must send a message to our emperor. It's time to discuss terms. Yes, my lord. Gurney turned away, dropped a hand signal to one of the Fadaikin, who took up close guard position beside Paul. Gurney, since we've been rejoined, I've yet to hear you produce the proper quotation for the event. Paul turned, saw Gurney swallow, saw the sudden, grim hardening of the man's jaw. As you wish, my lord. And the victory that day was turned into mourning unto all the people. For the people heard say that day how the king was grieved for his son. Paul closed his eyes, forcing grief out of his mind, letting it wait as he had once waited to mourn his father. Now he gave his thoughts over to this day's accumulated discoveries, the mixed futures and the hidden presence of Alia within his awareness. Of all the uses of time vision, this was the strangest. I have breasted the future to place my words where only you can hear them, Alia had said. Even you cannot do that, my brother. I find it an interesting play, and, oh yes, I've killed our grandfather, the demented old baron. He had very little pain. Silence. His time sense had seen her withdrawal. Mwadib. Paul opened his eyes to see Stilgar's black bearded visage above him, the dark eyes glaring with battle light. You've found the body of the old baron. How could you know? We just found the body in that great pile of metal the emperor built. Paul ignored the question, seeing Gurney return accompanied by two Fremen who supported a captive Sardaukar. Here's one of them, my lord. Gurney signaled to the guard to hold the captive five paces in front of Paul. The Sardaukar's eyes, Paul noted, carried a glazed expression of shock. A blue bruise stretched from the bridge of his nose to the corner of his mouth. He was of the blonde, chisel-featured caste, the look that seemed synonymous with rank among the Sardaka, yet there were no insignia on his torn uniform except the gold buttons with the imperial crest and the tattered braid of his trousers. I think this one's an officer, my lord. I am the Duke Paul Atreides. Do you understand that man? The Sardaka stared at him, unmoving. Speak up, or your emperor may die. The man blinked, swallowed. Who am I? You are the Duke Paul Atreides. He seemed too submissive to Paul, 
But then the Sadhaka had never been prepared for such happenings as this day. They'd never known anything but victory, which, Paul realized, could be a weakness in itself. He put that thought aside for later consideration in his own training program. I have a message for you to carry to the Emperor. Paul couched his words in the ancient formula. I, a duke of a great house, an imperial kinsman, give my word of bond under the convention. If the Emperor and his people lay down their arms and come to me here, I will guard their lives with my own. Paul held up his left hand with a ducal signet for the Sadhaka to see. I swear it by this. The man wet his lips with his tongue, glanced at Gurney. Yes. Who but an Atreides could command the allegiance of Gurney Halleck? I will carry the message. Take him to our forward command post and send him in. Yes, my lord. Gurney motioned for the guard to obey, led them out. Paul turned back to Stilgar. Cheney and your mother have arrived. Cheney has asked time to be alone with her grief. The Reverend Mother sought a moment in the weirding room. I know not why. My mother's sick with longing for a planet she may never see, where water falls from the sky and plants grow so thickly you cannot walk between them. Water from the sky? In that instant, Paul saw how Stilgar had been transformed from the Fremen Naib to a creature of the Lisan Al-Gaib, a receptacle for awe and obedience. It was a lessening of the man, and Paul felt the ghost wind of the jihad in it. I have seen a friend become a worshipper, he thought. In a rush of loneliness, Paul glanced around the room, noting how proper and on review his guards had become in his presence. He sensed the subtle, prideful competition among them, each hoping for notice from Wadib. Wadib, from whom all blessings flow, he thought, and it was the bitterest thought of his life. They sense that I must take the throne, he thought, but they cannot know I do it to prevent the jihad. <clears throat> Raban, too, is dead. Paul nodded. Guards to the right suddenly snapped aside, standing at attention to open an aisle for Jessica. She wore her black abba and walked with a hint of striding across sand, but Paul noted how this house had restored to her something of what she had once been here, concubine to a ruling duke. Her presence carried some of its old assertiveness. Jessica stopped in front of Paul, looked down at him. She saw his fatigue and how he hid it, but found no compassion for him. It was as though she had been rendered incapable of any emotion for her son. Jessica had entered the great hall, wondering why the place refused to fit itself snugly into her memories. It remained a foreign room, as though she had never walked here, never walked here with her beloved Leto, never confronted a drunken Duncan Idaho here, never, never, never. There should be a word tension directly opposite to a dub, the demanding memory, she thought. There should be a word for memories that deny themselves. Where is Aaliyah? Out doing what any good Fremen child should be doing in such times. She's killing enemy wounded and marking their bodies for the water recovery teams. Paul! You must understand that she does this out of kindness. Isn't it odd how we misunderstand the hidden unity of kindness and cruelty? Jessica glared at her son, shocked by the profound change in him. Was it his child's death did this? she wondered. The men tell strange stories of you, Paul. 
They say you've all the powers of the legend. Nothing can be hidden from you that you see where others cannot see. A Benny Jesuit should ask about legends. I've had a hand in whatever you are, but you mustn't expect me to- How would you like to live billions upon billions of lives? There's a fabric of legends for you. Think of all those experiences, the wisdom they'd bring. But wisdom tempers love, doesn't it? And it puts a new shape on hate. How can you tell what's ruthless unless you've plumbed the depths of both cruelty and kindness? You should fear me, mother. I am the Kwisatz Haderach. Jessica tried to swallow in a dry throat. Once you denied to me that you were the Kwisatz Haderach. I can deny nothing anymore. Paul looked up into her eyes. The Emperor and his people come now. They will be announced any moment. Stand beside me. I wish a clear view of them. My future bride will be among them. Paul, don't make the mistake your father made. She's a princess. She's my key to the throne and that's all she'll ever be. Mistake? You think because I'm what you made me that I cannot feel the need for revenge? Even on the innocent? Jessica thought, he must not make the mistakes I made. There are no innocent anymore. Tell that to Cheney. Jessica gestured toward the passage from the rear of the residency. Cheney entered the great hall there, walking between the Fremen guards as though unaware of them. Her hood and still-suit cap were thrown back, face mask fastened aside. She walked with a fragile uncertainty as she crossed the room to stand beside Jessica. Paul saw the marks of tears on her cheeks. She gives water to the dead. He felt a pang of grief strike through him, but it was as though he could only feel this thing through Cheney's presence. He is dead, beloved. Our son is dead. Holding himself under stiff control, Paul got to his feet. He reached out, touched Cheney's cheek, feeling the dampness of her tears. He cannot be replaced, but there will be other sons. It is Usul who promises this. Gently he moved her aside, gestured to Stilgar. Muadib. They come from the ship, the Emperor and his people. I will stand here, assemble the captives in an open space in the center of the room. They will be kept at a distance of ten meters from me unless I command otherwise. As you command, Wadib. As Stilgar turned to obey, Paul heard the awed muttering of Fremen guards. You see? He knew. No one told him, but he knew. The Emperor's entourage could be heard approaching now, his Sardaukar humming one of their marching tunes to keep up their spirits. There came a murmur of voices at the entrance, and Gurney Halleck passed through the guard, crossed to confer with Stilgar, then moved to Paul's side, a strange look in his eyes. Will I lose Gurney too? Paul wondered. The way I lost Stilgar? Losing a friend to gain a creature? They have no throwing weapons. I've made sure of that myself. He glanced around the room, seeing Paul's preparations. Fade Routha Harkonnen is with them. Shall I cut him out? Leave him. There's some guild people, too, demanding special privileges, threatening an embargo against Arrakis. I told them I'd give you their message. Let them threaten. Paul, he's talking about the guild. I'll pull their fangs presently. And he thought then about the guild the force that had specialized for so long that it had become a parasite, unable to exist independently of the life upon which it fed. They had never dared grasp the sword, and now they could not grasp it. 
they might have taken Arrakis when they realized the error of specializing on the melange awareness spectrum narcotic for their navigators. They could have done this, lived their glorious day, and died. Instead, they'd existed from moment to moment, hoping the seas in which they swam might produce a new host when the old one died. The guild navigators, gifted with limited prescience, had made the fatal decision. They'd chosen always the clear, safe course that leads ever downward into stagnation. Let them look closely at their new host, Paul thought. There's also a Bene Gesserit Reverend Mother who says she's a friend of your mother. My mother has no Bene Gesserit friends. Again, Gurney glanced around the great hall, then bent close to Paul's ear. Do fear how it's with him, my lord. I had no chance to see him alone, but he used our old hand signs to say he's been working with the Harkonnens. Thought you were dead. Says he's to be left among them. You left Thufir among those- He wanted it. And I thought it best. If- There's something wrong, he's where we can control him. If not, we've an ear on the other side. Paul thought then of prescient glimpses into the possibilities of this moment and one timeline where Thufir carried a poisoned needle which the Emperor commanded he use against this upstart duke. The entrance guards stepped aside, formed a short corridor of lances. There came a murmurous swish of garments, feet rasping the sand that had drifted into the residency. The Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV led his people into the hall. His Burseg helmet had been lost, and the red hair stood out in disarray. His uniform's left sleeve had been ripped along the inner seam. He was beltless and without weapons, but his presence moved with him like a force-shield bubble that kept his immediate area open. A Fremen lance dropped across his path, stopped him where Paul had ordered. The others bunched up behind, a montage of colour, of shuffling and of staring faces. Paul swept his gaze across the group saw women who hid signs of weeping, saw the lackeys who had come to enjoy grandstand seats at a Sadoka victory and now stood choked to silence by defeat. Paul saw the bird-bright eyes of the Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Mohayam glaring beneath her black hood, and beside her the narrow furtiveness of Fadrautha Harkonnen. There's a face time betrayed to me, Paul thought. He looked beyond Fadrautha then, attracted by a movement, seeing there a narrow, weaselish face he'd never before encountered, not in time or out of it. It was a face he felt he should know, and the feeling carried with it a marker of fear. Why should I fear that man? he wondered. He leaned toward his mother, whispered, That man to the left of the Reverend Mother, the evil-looking one, who is that? Jessica looked recognizing the face from her duke's dossiers. Count Fenring, the one who was here immediately before us, a genetic eunuch and a killer. The Emperor's errand boy, Paul thought, and the thought was a shock crashing across his consciousness because he had seen the Emperor in uncounted associations spread through the possible futures, but never once had Count Fenring appeared within those prescient visions. It occurred to Paul then that he had seen his own dead body along countless reaches of the time-web, but never once had he seen his moment of death. Have I been denied a glimpse of this man because he is the one who kills me? 
Paul wondered. The thought sent a pang of foreboding through him. He forced his attention away from Fenring, looked now at the remnants of Sardaukar men and officers, the bitterness on their faces and the desperation. Here and there among them faces caught Paul's attention briefly, Sardaukar officers measuring the preparations within this room, planning and scheming yet for a way to turn defeat into victory. Paul's attention came at last to a tall, blonde woman, green-eyed, a face of patrician beauty, classic in its hauteur, untouched by tears, completely undefeated. Without being told it, Paul knew her, Princess Royal, Bene Gesserit trained, a face that time vision had shown him in many aspects, Irulan. There's my key, he thought. Then he saw movement in the clustered people. A face and figure emerged. Thufir Hawat, the seamed old features with darkly stained lips, the hunched shoulders, the look of fragile age about him. There's Thufir Hawat. Let him stand free, Gurney. My lord. Let him stand free. Gurney nodded. Hawat shambled forward as a Fremen lance was lifted and replaced behind him. The roomy eyes peered at Paul, measuring, seeking. Paul stepped forward one pace, sensed the tense, waiting movement of the Emperor and his people. Howard's gaze stabbed past Paul. Lady Jessica, I but learned this day how I've wronged you in my thoughts. You needn't forgive. Paul waited, but his mother remained silent. Thufir, old friend. As you can see, my back is toward no door. The universe is full of doors. Am I my father's son? <clears throat> More like your grandfather's. You've his manner and the look of him in your eyes. Yet I'm my father's son, for I say to you, Thufia, that in payment for your years of service to my family, you may now ask anything you wish of me. Anything at all. Do you need my life now, Thufir? It is yours. Paul stepped forward a pace, hands at his side, seeing the look of awareness grow in Howard's eyes. He realizes that I know of the treachery, Paul thought. Paul pitched his voice to carry in a half-whisper for Howard's ears alone. I mean this, Thufir. If you're to strike me, do it now. I but wanted to stand before you once more. My duke. Paul became aware for the first time of the effort the old man exerted to keep from falling. Paul reached out, supported Howard by the shoulders, feeling the muscle tremors beneath his hands. Is there pain, old friend? There is pain, my duke. But the pleasure is greater. He half turned in Paul's arms, extended his left hand, palm up, toward the emperor exposing the tiny needle cupped against the fingers. See, Majesty, see your traitor's needle. Did you think that I who given my life to service of the Atreides would give them less now? Paul staggered as the old man sagged in his arms, felt the death there, the utter flaccidity. Gently, Paul lowered Howard to the floor straightened and signed for guardsmen to carry the body away. Silence held the hall while his command was obeyed. A look of deadly waiting held the Emperor's face now. 
eyes that had never admitted fear, admitted it at last. Majesty! Paul noted the jerk of surprised attention in the tall Princess Royal. The words had been uttered with a Bene Gesserit-controlled atonals, carrying in it every shade of contempt and scorn that Paul could put there. Bene Gesserit trained indeed, Paul thought. <clears throat> Perhaps my respected kinsman believes he has things all his own way now. Nothing could be more remote from fact. You have violated the convention, used atomics against... I used atomics against a natural feature of the desert. It was in my way, and I was in a hurry to get to you, Majesty, to ask your explanation for some of your strange activities. There's a massed armada of the great houses in space over Arrakis right now. I've but to say the word, and they'll... Oh, yes. I almost forgot about them. Paul searched through the Emperor's suite until he saw the faces of the two guildsmen spoke aside to Gurney. Are those the guild agents, Gurney? The two fat ones dressed in grey over there? Yes, my lord. You two, get out of there immediately and dispatch messages that will get that fleet on its way home. After this, you'll ask my permission before... The guild doesn't take your orders. The taller of the two had spoken. He and his companion pushed through to the barrier lances, which were raised at a nod from Paul. The two men stepped out, and the taller leveled an arm at Paul. You may very well be under embargo for your- If I hear any more nonsense from either of you, I'll give the order that'll destroy all spice production on Arrakis forever. Are you mad? The tall guildsman fell back half a step. You grant that I have the power to do this thing, then? The guildsman seemed to stare into space for a moment. Yes, you could do it, but you must not. Ah, guild navigators, both of you, eh? Y yes. You would blind yourself, too, and condemn us all to slow death. Have you any idea what it means to be deprived of the spice liquor once you're addicted? The eye that looks ahead to the safe course is closed forever. The guild is crippled. Humans become little isolated clusters on their isolated planets. You know... I might do this thing out of pure spite, or out of ennui. Let us talk this over privately. I'm sure we can come to some compromise that is... Send the message to your people over Arrakis. I grow tired of this argument. If that fleet over us doesn't leave soon, there'll be no need for us to talk. Paul nodded toward his communications men at the side of the hall. You may use our equipment. First we must discuss this. We cannot just do it. The power to destroy a thing is the absolute control over it. You've agreed I have that power. We are not here to discuss or to negotiate or to compromise. You will obey my orders or suffer the immediate consequences. He means it. The shorter guildsmen spoke, and Paul saw the fear grip them. Slowly the two crossed to the Fremen communications equipment. Will they obey? They have a narrow vision of time. They can see ahead to a blank wall, marking the consequences of disobedience. Every guild navigator on every ship over us can look ahead to that same wall. They'll obey. Paul turned back to look at the Emperor. When they permitted you to mount your father's throne, it was only on the assurance that you'd keep the spice flowing. You've failed them, Majesty. Do you know the consequences? Nobody permitted me. Stop playing the fool! 
The guild is like a village beside a river. They need the water, but can only dip out what they require. They cannot dam the river and control it, because that focuses attention on what they take. It brings down eventual destruction. The spice flow. That's their river. And I have built a dam. But my dam is such that you cannot destroy it without destroying the river. The emperor brushed a hand through his red hair, glanced at the backs of the two guildsmen. Even your Bene Gesserit truthsayer is trembling. There are other poisons the Reverend Mothers can use for their tricks, but once they've used the spice liquor, the others no longer work. The old woman pulled her shapeless black robes around her, pressed forward out of the crowd to stand at the barrier lances. Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Mahayam. It has been a long time since Caledon, hasn't it? She looked past him at his mother. Well, Jessica, I see that your son is indeed the one. For that, you can be forgiven even the abomination of your daughter. You've never had the right or cause to forgive my mother anything. The old woman locked eyes with him. Try your tricks on me, old witch. Where's your gom jabbar? Try looking into that place where you dare not look. You'll find me there staring out at you. The old woman dropped her gaze. Have you nothing to say? I welcomed you to the ranks of humans. Don't besmirch that. Observe her, comrades. This is a Bene Gesserit reverend mother, patient in a patient cause. She could wait with her sisters ninety generations for the proper combination of genes and environment to produce the one person their schemes required. Observe her. She knows now that the ninety generations have produced that person. Here I stand. But I will never do her bidding. Jessica, silence him! Silence him yourself. Paul glared at the old woman. For your part in all this, I could gladly have you strangled. You couldn't prevent it. But I think it better punishment that you live out your years, never able to touch me or bend me to a single thing your scheming desires. Jessica, what have you done? I'll give you only one thing. You saw part of what the race needs, but how poorly you saw it. You think to control human breeding and intermix a select few according to your master plan. How little you understand of what- You mustn't speak of these things! Silence! The word seemed to take substance as it twisted through the air between them under Paul's control. The old woman reeled back into the arms of those behind her, face blank with shock at the power with which he had seized her psyche. Jessica! Jessica! I remember your gom Jabbar. You remember mine. I can kill you with a word. The Fremen around the hall glanced knowingly at each other. Did the legend not say, And his word shall carry death eternal to those who stand against righteousness? Paul turned his attention to the tall Princess Royal, standing beside her Emperor Father. Keeping his eyes focused on her, he spoke. Majesty, we both know the way out of our difficulty. The Emperor glanced at his daughter. Back to Paul. You dare! You, an adventurer without family, a nobody from- You've already admitted who I am. Royal kinsman, you said. Let's stop this nonsense. I am your ruler. Paul glanced at the guildsmen standing now at the communications equipment and facing him. One of them nodded. I could force it. You will not dare! 
Paul merely stared at him. The Princess Royal put a hand on her father's arm. Father, don't try your tricks on me. You don't need to do this, daughter. We've other resources that- But here's a man fit to be your son. The old reverend mother, her composure regained, forced her way to the emperor's side, leaned close to his ear and whispered. She pleads your case. Paul continued to look at the golden-haired princess. That's Irulan, the oldest, isn't it? Yes. Cheney moved up on Paul's other side. Do you wish me to leave, Muad'Dib? Leave? You'll never again leave my side. There's nothing binding between us. Paul looked down at her for a silent moment. Speak only truth with me, my Sihaya. As she started to reply, he silenced her with a finger to her lips. That which binds us cannot be loosed. Now, watch these matters closely, for I wish to see this room later through your wisdom. The Emperor and his truth-sayer were carrying on a heated, low-voiced argument. Paul spoke to his mother. She reminds him that it's part of their agreement to place a Bene Gesserit on the throne, and Irulan is the one they've groomed for it. Was that their plan? Isn't it obvious? I see the signs. My question was meant to remind you that you should not try to teach me those matters in which I instructed you. Paul glanced at her, caught a cold smile on her lips. Gurney Halleck leaned between them. I remind you, my lord, that there's a Harkonnen in that bunch. He nodded toward the dark-haired Fade Rauther pressed against a barrier lance on the left. The one with the squinting eyes there on the left. As evil a face as I ever saw. You promised me once that- Thank you, Gurney. It's the Gnaw Baron. Baron now that the old man's dead. He'll do for what I've in- Can you take him, Gurney? My lord jests. That argument between the Emperor and his witch has gone on long enough, don't you think, Mother? Indeed. Majesty, is there a Harkonnen among you? Royal disdain revealed itself in the way the Emperor turned to look at Paul. I believe my entourage has been placed under the protection of your ducal word? My question was for information only. I wish to know if a Harkonnen is officially a part of your entourage, or if a Harkonnen is merely hiding behind a technicality out of cowardice. The Emperor's smile was calculating. Anyone accepted into the Imperial Company is a member of my entourage. You have the word of a duke, but Muad'Dib is another matter. He may not recognize your definition of what constitutes an entourage. My friend Gurney Halleck wishes to kill a Harkonnen. If he... Conley! Fade Rauther pressed against the barrier lance. Your father named this vendetta Atreides. You call me coward while you hide among your women and offer to send a lackey against me. The old truth-sayer whispered something fiercely into the Emperor's ear, but he pushed her aside. Conley, is it? There are strict rules for Conley. Paul, put a stop to this. My lord, you promised me my day against the Harkonnens. You've had your day against them. Paul felt a harlequin abandon take over his emotions. He slipped his robe and hood from his shoulders, handed them to his mother with his belt and Chris knife, began unstrapping his still suit. He sensed now that the universe focused on this moment. There's no need for this. There are easier ways, Paul. Paul stepped out of his still suit slipped the Chris knife from its sheath in his mother's hand. I know. Poison. 
an assassin, all the old familiar ways. You promised me a Harkonnen. Paul marked the rage in the man's face, the way the ink-vine scar stood out dark and ridged. You owe it to me, my lord. Have you suffered more from them than I? My sister? My years in the slave pits? My father, my good friends and companions, Sophia Howard and Duncan Idaho. My years as a fugitive without rank or succor. And one more thing. It is now Carnley, and you know as well as I the rules that must prevail. Halleck's shoulders sagged. My lord, if that swine... He's no more than a beast you'd spurn with your foot and discard the shoe because it had been contaminated. Call in an executioner if you must, or let me do it, but don't offer yourself to- Muad'Dib need not do this thing. Paul glanced at Cheney, saw the fear for him in her eyes. But the Duke Paul must. This is a Harkonnen animal. Paul hesitated on the point of revealing his own Harkonnen ancestry, stopped at a sharp look from his mother. But this being has human shape, Gurney, and deserves human doubt. If he so much as... Please stand aside. Paul hefted the Chris knife, pushed Gurney gently aside. Jessica touched Gurney's arm. He's like his grandfather in this mood. Don't distract him. It's the only thing you can do for him now. And she thought, great mother, what irony. The emperor was studying Fay Drowther, seeing the heavy shoulders, the thick muscles. He turned to look at Paul, a stringy whipcord of a youth, not as desiccated as the Arakeen natives, but with ribs there to count, and sunken in the flanks so that the ripple and gather of muscles could be followed under the skin. Jessica leaned close to Paul and pitched her voice for his ears alone. One thing, son. Sometimes a dangerous person is prepared by the Bene Gesserit, a word implanted into the deepest recesses by the old pleasure-pain methods. The word sound most frequently used is Uroshnor. If this one's been prepared, as I strongly suspect, that word uttered in his ear will render his muscles flaccid and... I want no special advantage for this one. Step back out of my way. Gurney spoke to Jessica. Why is he doing this? Does he think to get himself killed and achieve martyrdom? This Fremen religious prattle, is that what clouds his reason? Jessica hid her face in her hands, realizing that she did not know fully why Paul took this course. She could feel death in the room and knew that the changed Paul was capable of such a thing as Gurney suggested. Every talent within her focused on the need to protect her son, but there was nothing she could do. Is it this religious prattle? Be silent and pray. The Emperor's face was touched by an abrupt smile. If Fade Ralther Harkonnen, of my entourage, so wishes, I relieve him of all restraint and give him freedom to choose his own course in this. The Emperor waved a hand toward Paul's Fadiken guards. One of your rabble has my belt and short blade. If Fade Ralther wishes it, he may meet you with my blade in his hand. I wish it. Paul saw the elation on the man's face. He's overconfident, Paul thought. There's a natural advantage I can accept. Get the Emperor's blade. Paul watched as his command was obeyed. Put it on the floor there. He indicated a place with his foot. Clear the Imperial rabble back against the wall and let the Harkonnen stand clear. A flurry of robes 
scraping of feet, low-voiced commands and protests accompanied obedience to Paul's command. The guildsmen remained standing near the communications equipment. They frowned at Paul in obvious indecision. They're accustomed to seeing the future, Paul thought. In this place and time, they're blind, even as I am. And he sampled the time winds, sensing the turmoil, the storm nexus that now focused on this moment place. Even the faint gaps were closed now. Here was the unborn jihad, he knew. Here was the race consciousness that he had known once as his own terrible purpose. Here was reason enough for a Kwisatz Haderach or a Lisan al-Gaib or even the halting schemes of the Bene Gesserit. The race of humans had felt its own dormancy, sensed itself grown stale and knew now only the need to experience turmoil in which the genes would mingle and the strong new mixtures survive. All humans were alive as an unconscious single organism in this moment, experiencing a kind of sexual heat that could override any barrier. And Paul saw how futile were any efforts of his to change any smallest bit of this. He had thought to oppose the jihad within himself, but the jihad would be. His legions would rage out from Arrakis even without him. They needed only the legend he already had become. He had shown them the way, given them mastery even over the guild which must have the spice to exist. A sense of failure pervaded him, and he saw through it that Fadrautha Harkonnen had slipped out of the torn uniform, stripped down to a fighting girdle with a male core. This is the climax, Paul thought. From here the future will open, the clouds part onto a kind of glory, and if I die here, they'll say I sacrificed myself that my spirit might lead them, and if I live, they'll say nothing can oppose Muad'Dib. Is the Atreides ready? Fade Rautha used the words of the ancient Kanli ritual. Paul chose to answer him in the Fremen way. May thy knife chip and shatter. He pointed to the Emperor's blade on the floor, indicating that Fade Rautha should advance and take it. Keeping his attention on Paul, Fade Rautha picked up the knife, balancing it a moment in his hand to get the feel of it. Excitement kindled in him. This was a fight he had dreamed about, man against man, skill against skill, with no shields intervening. He could see a way to power opening before him because the Emperor surely would reward whoever killed this troublesome duke. The reward might even be that haughty daughter and a share of the throne. And this yokel duke, this backworld adventurer, could not possibly be a match for a Harkonnen, trained in every device and every treachery by a thousand arena combats. And the yokel had no way of knowing he faced more weapons than a knife here. Let's see if you're proof against poison, Fadrather thought. He saluted Paul with the Emperor's blade. Meet your death, fool. Shall we fight, cousin? Paul cat-footed forward, eyes on the waiting blade, his body crouched low with his own milk-white Chris knife pointing out as though an extension of his arm. They circled each other, bare feet grating on the floor, watching with eyes intent for the slightest opening. How beautifully you dance! He's a talker, Paul thought. There's another weakness. He grows uneasy in the face of silence. Have you been shriven? Still, Paul circled in silence. 
and the old reverend mother, watching the fight from the press of the emperor's suite, felt herself trembling. The Atreides youth had called the Harkonnen cousin. It could only mean he knew the ancestry they shared, easy to understand because he was the Kwisatz Haderach. But the words forced her to focus on the only thing that mattered to her here. This could be a major catastrophe for the Bene Gesserit breeding scheme. She had seen something of what Paul had seen here, that Fadrautha might kill but not be victorious. Another thought, though, almost overwhelmed her. Two end products of this long and costly program faced each other in a fight to the death that might easily claim both of them. If both died here, that would leave only Fadrautha's bastard daughter, still a baby, an unknown, an unmeasured factor, and Alia the abomination. Perhaps you have only pagan rites here. Would you like the Emperor's truth-sayer to prepare your spirit for its journey? Paul smiled, circling to the right, alert, his black thoughts suppressed by the needs of the moment. Phaedratha leaped, fainting with right hand, but with the knife shifted in a blur to his left hand. Paul dodged easily, noting the shield-conditioned hesitation in Phaedratha's thrust. Still, it was not as great a shield conditioning as some Paul had seen, and he sensed that Phaedratha had fought before against unshielded foes. Does an Atreides run or stand and fight? Paul resumed his silent circling. Idaho's words came back to him, the words of training from the long-ago practice floor on Caladan. Use the first moments in study. You may miss many an opportunity for quick victory this way, but the moments of study are insurance of success. Take your time and be sure. Perhaps you think this dance prolongs your life a few moments. Well and good. He stopped the circling, straightened. Paul had seen enough for a first approximation. Phaedrautha led to the left side, presenting the right hip as though the mailed fighting girdle could protect his entire side. It was the action of a man trained to the shield, and with a knife in both hands. Or, and Paul hesitated, the girdle was more than it seemed. The Harkonnen appeared too confident against a man who, this day, led the forces of victory against Sardauka legions. Phaedratha noted the hesitation. Why prolong the inevitable? You but keep me from exercising my rights over this ball of dirt. If it's a flip dart, Paul thought, it's a cunning one. The girdle shows no signs of tampering. Why don't you speak? Paul resumed his probing circle, allowing himself a cold smile at the tone of unease in Phaedrautha's voice, evidence that the pressure of silence was building. You smile, eh? And he leaped in mid-sentence. Expecting the slight hesitation, Paul almost failed to evade the downflash of blade, felt its tip scratch his left arm. He silenced the sudden pain there, his mind flooded with realization that the earlier hesitation had been a trick, an overfaint. Here was more of an opponent than he had expected. There would be tricks within tricks within tricks. Your own Thufir Howitt taught me some of my skills. He gave me first blood. Too bad the old fool didn't live to see it. And Paul recalled that Idaho had once said, Expect only what happens in the fight. That way you'll never be surprised. Again the two circled each other, crouched, cautious. Paul saw the return of elation to his opponent, wondered at it. Did a scratch signify that much to the man? Unless there were poison on the blade. But how could there be? 
His own men had handled the weapon, snooped it before passing it. They were too well trained to miss an obvious thing like that. That woman you were talking to over there, the little one, is she something special to you? A pet, perhaps? Will she deserve my special attentions? Paul remained silent, probing with his inner senses, examining the blood from the wound, finding a trace of soporific from the Emperor's blade. He realigned his own metabolism to match this threat and changed the molecules of the soporific, but he felt a thrill of doubt. They'd been prepared with soporific on a blade. A soporific. Nothing to alert a poison snooper, but strong enough to slow the muscles it touched. His enemies had their own plans within plans, their own stacked treacheries. Again Phaedrautha leaped, stabbing. Paul, the smile frozen on his face, fainted with slowness as though inhibited by the drug, and at the last instant dodged to meet the down-flashing arm on the Chris knife's point. Phaedrautha ducked sideways and was out and away, his blade shifted to his left hand, and the measure of him that only a slight paleness of jaw betrayed the acid pain where Paul had cut him. Let him know his own moment of doubt, Paul thought. Let him suspect poison. Treachery! He's poisoned me. I do feel poison in my arm. Only a little acid to counter the soporific on the Emperor's blade. Phaedrautha matched Paul's cold smile, lifted blade in left hand for a mock salute. His eyes glared rage behind the knife. Paul shifted his Chris knife to his left hand, matching his opponent. Again they circled, probing. Phaedrautha began closing the space between them, edging in, knife held high, anger showing itself in squint of eye and set of jaw. He fainted right and under, and they were pressed against each other, knife hands gripped, straining. Paul, cautious of Phaedrautha's right hip, where he suspected a poison flip dart, forced the turn to the right. He almost failed to see the needle point flick out beneath the belt line. A shift and a giving in Phaedrautha's motion warned him the tiny point missed Paul's flesh by the barest fraction. On the left hip. Treachery within treachery within treachery, Paul reminded himself. Using Bene Gesserit-trained muscles, he sagged to catch a reflex in Phaedrautha, but the necessity of avoiding the tiny point jutting from his opponent's hip threw Paul off just enough that he missed his footing and found himself thrown hard to the floor, Phaedrautha on top. You see it there on my hip? You're death, fool. Phaedrautha began twisting himself around, forcing the poisoned needle closer and closer. It'll stop your muscles and my knife will finish you. There'll be never a trace left to detect. Paul strained, hearing the silent screams in his mind, his cell-stamped ancestors demanding that he use the secret word to slow Phaedrautha to save himself. I will not say it. Phaedrautha gaped at him, caught in the merest fraction of hesitation. It was enough for Paul to find the weakness of balance in one of his opponent's leg muscles, and their positions were reversed. Phaedrautha lay partly underneath, with right hip high, unable to turn because of the tiny needle point caught against the floor beneath him. Paul twisted his left hand free, aided by the lubrication of blood from his arm, thrust once hard up underneath Phaedrautha's jaw. The point slid home into the brain. Phaedrautha jerked and sagged back, still held partly on his side by the needle embedded in the floor. Breathing deeply to restore his calm, 
Paul pushed himself away and got to his feet. He stood over the body, knife in hand, raised his eyes with deliberate slowness to look across the room at the Emperor. Majesty, your force is reduced by one more. Shall we now shed sham and pretense? Shall we now discuss what must be? Your daughter wed to me, and the way opened for Anatreides to sit on the throne. The Emperor turned, looked at Count Fenring. The Count met his stare, grey eyes against green. The thought lay there clearly between them, their association so long that understanding could be achieved with a glance. Kill this upstart for me, the Emperor was saying. The Atreides is young and resourceful, yes, but he is also tired from long effort, and he'd be no match for you anyway. Call him out now. You know the way of it. Kill him. Slowly Fenring moved his head, a prolonged turning until he faced Paul. Do it! The Count focused on Paul, seeing with eyes his Lady Margot had trained in the Bene Gesserit way, aware of the mystery and hidden grandeur about this Atreides youth. I could kill him, Fenring thought, and he knew this for a truth. Something in his own secretive depths stayed the Count then, and he glimpsed briefly, inadequately, the advantage he held over Paul, a way of hiding from the youth, a furtiveness of person and motives that no eye could penetrate. Paul, aware of some of this from the way the time Nexus boiled, understood at last why he had never seen Fenring along the webs of prescience. Fenring was one of the might have beens, an almost Kwisatz Haderach, crippled by a flaw in the genetic pattern, a eunuch, his talent concentrated into furtiveness and inner seclusion. A deep compassion for the Count flowed through Paul, the first sense of brotherhood he'd ever experienced. Fenring read Paul's emotion. Majesty, I must refuse. Rage overcame Shaddam IV. He took two short steps through the entourage, cuffed Fenring viciously across the jaw. A dark flush spread up and over the Count's face. He looked directly at the Emperor, spoke with deliberate lack of emphasis. We have been friends, Majesty. What I do now is out of friendship. I shall forget that you struck me. <clears throat> we were speaking of the throne, Majesty. The Emperor whirled, glared at Paul. I sit on the throne. You shall have a throne on Seleucus Secundus. I put down my arms and came here on your word of bond. You dare threaten. Your person is safe in my presence, and Atreides promised it. Muad'Dib, however, sentences you to your prison planet. But have no fear, Majesty. I will ease the harshness of the place with all the powers at my disposal. It shall become a garden world, full of gentle things. As the hidden import of Paul's words grew in the Emperor's mind, he glared across the room at Paul. Now we see true motives. Indeed. And what of Arrakis? Another garden world full of gentle things? The Fremen have the word of Muad'Dib. There will be flowing water here, open to the sky, and green oases rich with good things. But we have the spice to think of too. Thus, there will always be desert on Arrakis, and fierce winds, and trials to toughen a man. We Fremen have a saying. God created Arrakis to train the faithful, 
One cannot go against the word of God. The old truth-sayer, the Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Mohayam, had her own view of the hidden meaning in Paul's words now. She glimpsed the jihad. You cannot loose these people upon the universe. You will think back to the gentle ways of the Sardaukar. You cannot. You're a truth-sayer. Review your words. Paul glanced at the Princess Royal. Back to the Emperor. Best be done quickly, Majesty. The Emperor turned a stricken look upon his daughter. She touched his arm, spoke soothingly. For this I was trained, Father. The Emperor took a deep breath. You cannot stay this thing. The Emperor straightened, standing stiffly with a look of remembered dignity. Who will negotiate for you, kinsman? Paul turned, saw his mother, her eyes heavy-lidded, standing with Cheney in a squad of Fadaikin guards. He crossed to them, stood looking down at Cheney. I know the reasons. If it must be, Usal. Paul, hearing the secret tears in her voice, touched her cheek. My Sihaya need fear nothing, ever. He dropped his arm, faced his mother. You will negotiate for me, mother, with Cheney by your side. She has wisdom and sharp eyes, and it is wisely said that no one bargains tougher than a Fremen. She will be looking through the eyes of a love for me and with the thought of her sons to be, what they will need. Listen to her. Jessica sensed the harsh calculation in her son, put down a shudder. What are your instructions? The Emperor's entire term company holdings as dowry. Entire? He is to be stripped. I want an earldom and chome directorship for Gurney Halleck, and him and the Fife of Caledon. There will be titles and attendant power for every surviving Atreides man, not excepting the lowliest trooper. What of the Fremen? The Fremen are mine. What they receive shall be dispensed by Muad'Dib. It'll begin with Stilgar as governor on Arrakis, but that can wait. And for me? Is there something you wish? Perhaps Caledon. I'm not certain. I've become too much the Fremen and the Reverend Mother. I need a time of peace and stillness in which to think. That you shall have, and anything else that Gurney or I can give you. Jessica nodded, feeling suddenly old and tired. She looked at Cheney. And for the royal concubine? No title for me. Nothing. I beg of you. Paul stared down into her eyes, remembering her suddenly as she had stood once with little Leto in her arms, their child now dead in this violence. I swear to you now that you'll need no title. That woman over there will be my wife and you but a concubine because this is a political thing and we must weld peace out of this moment, enlist the great houses of the Landstrad. We must obey the forms, yet that princess shall have no more of me than my name. No child of mine, nor touch, nor softness of glance, nor instant of desire. So you say now? Cheney glanced across the room at the tall princess. Do you know so little of my son? See that princess standing there, so haughty and confident? They say she has pretensions of a literary nature. Let us hope she finds solace in such things. She'll have little else. Think on it, Cheney. That princess will have the name. Yet she'll live as less than a concubine, never to know a moment of tenderness from the man to whom she's bound. While we, Cheney, 
We who carry the name of concubine, history will call us wives. We hope you've enjoyed Dune, an audio renaissance production with Tor Books. This program was executive produced by Laura Wilson, produced by Garrett Scott, and directed by Garrett Scott and Kevin Thompson. Text copyright 1965 by Frank Herbert. Audio production copyright 2007 by Audio Renaissance, a division of Holtzbrink Publishers, LLC. All rights reserved.